Hey, deserving listeners, this episode is a deep dive on narcissism and narcissistic personality disorder. I recently sent out a survey to all my patrons on Patreon, asking them what sort of deep dives they wanted me to do, and narcissistic personality disorder was the clear winner. So this is for all of you patrons. I've been wanting to do a deep dive on narcissism for years. I even bought a number of books years ago just for this episode, and I've been compiling research and uh, whatnot, but other things have taken priority, other deep dives, other professional endeavors. Also, I knew that this episode would possibly be one of the most, if not the most involved episodes I've ever done before. And it was always scary to me. I would say, I would see it on my list of episodes to do and I'd be like, Oh boy, that's, that's going to be like two or three months of, of research and note taking and thinking and talking and blah, blah, blah. So it, uh, and it was, but I finally have time to do it now. So, so, and the patrons motivated me by voting for this as their most uh, preferred deep dive. And this episode is going to be a long one. I have several pages of notes. I have, let me see here, I have 55 pages of notes. My God. Based on other episodes with page length, I'm guessing that this episode is going to be four hours long, maybe five, maybe more than five hours long. I don't know. There, there's just so much to talk about, you know. What is narcissism? What's the history going back to Freud and, and before Freud? Um, are we becoming more narcissistic as a society? Are there movies that depict narcissism well? Does Trump have narcissistic personality disorder? What about Facebook and social media and taking selfies? Does that indicate narcissism? How do how do we treat narcissistic personality disorder? What's the conceptualization of it? Is it, is it even treatable to begin with? And there's really just so much bad information about narcissism on the internet. I couldn't find a single resource that explained narcissistic personality disorder well enough for um, uh, me to hold something up and say, like, this is what you need to read in order to really get narcissism. I, I just I just could not find that. Um, I mean, there was one resource that I there were, there were a couple of resources that I liked. There was one video that I saw on YouTube that I saw in all my research over the past number of months. And I just recently tried to find it again and I couldn't find it. <laughs> um, basically it's a, if you search on YouTube, it's, um, it's a, uh, like a drawing or cartoon essentially while someone's explaining it. And there's someone standing on a stage and they're trying to hide their broken down house by, uh, showing a picture of a beautiful house. I don't know. Anyway, I couldn't find it, but I remember thinking, yeah, that's a pretty good explanation. You know, I've looked at hundreds of sources and the, and the sources are either super simplistic, which seemingly results in a lot of people completely misunderstanding the point of narcissistic personality disorder. And this is similar to any personality disorder. You know, borderline is massively misunderstood in our society. And I've talked about that before. Um, if it wasn't super simplistic, it was a journalist just talking out of their ass. It is amazing how many journalists think that they understand narcissistic personality disorder. It's laughable. You know, I mean, it's, it's laughable how, uh, lay people think they understand these sorts of things. Um, 
without any training. Um, it, and I'll get into some of the research in a second. And then if I did find a reputable source, the source was super confusing and jargony and to me still didn't really capture my experience with the disorder. Um, and I, I mean, it, so the, the other source that I liked in addition to that one video I can't remember and can't find, but can describe, um, is Otto Kernberg actually has some short YouTube videos that are great. Kern, Kernberg, Otto Kernberg has the uh, most, I think, uh, relevant explanation and conceptualization of narcissism. But his videos are short, naturally, because that's because he's being interviewed. And but if you want to find something, go to Otto Kernberg on YouTube. I mean, I, I've heard respectable podcasts talk about narcissism and narcissistic personality disorder. Uh, in a way that completely misses the point. There was one podcast that talked about how every, every young person suffers from narcissistic personality disorder, or like half of our society suffers from narcissistic personality disorder. Now, it'd be one thing if they said everyone's narcissistic. That's not a clinical claim, but they actually invoke the disorder. They actually invoke narcissistic personality disorder and, uh, there was this one episode of this one podcast. That was the whole point of the podcast. And I, the whole time I'm just throwing my phone against the wall. I'm just, and just like, how, what, you know, how many, how many lay people just stand up and start talking about some super technical, uh, cancer and, uh, or the inner workings of a cell as if they know, uh, or DNA is this or that, <laughs> you know, I can't even say the words cause I'm not an expert. Um, you know, I, I imagine actually this does happen and it probably does drive uh, experts nuts, nuts, but anyway, it's, it's ridiculous. And from what I understand, the vast majority of people who talk about narcissistic personality disorder on the internet do not understand it, which I get because in order to, in order to understand narcissistic personality disorder, you have to understand Personality disorders in general, which is extremely difficult. You have to understand personality in general, which is really hard. You have to understand psychological development and attachment and the history of psychology and psychotherapy and psychiatry. You have to understand the nature of diagnosing, which is extremely elusive. You have to understand what it feels like to be with someone who has narcissistic personality disorder and so on and so on and so on. There, there's just... It makes sense that no one gets it. What I don't get is that everyone doesn't realize they don't get it, and yet they talk about it anyway. You know, understanding personality disorders, understanding narcissistic personality disorder, uh, this, you know, these are not intuitive skills that you just acquire from life or from the internet. It takes years of study to understand personality disorders. And it takes years of working with people with narcissistic personality disorder. Uh, when I graduated with my degrees, I did not understand narcissistic personality disorder. Just because I had the education didn't mean I understood it. I, I had the criteria. I had been given some vignettes. I had written papers. I had uh, watched videos. I had heard lectures and passed my classes, you know, uh, but I did not, I still didn't understand narcissistic personality disorder. What, in order to understand the disorder, you have to work with clients for years. Uh, and, and, and some client, you know, individual clients, you have to work with them for at, at least six to 12 months just to get a vibe, an understanding of how their personality works and how they react to things and, and why, what, you know, where it comes from. 
um, you match that up with your experience and you match that up with consultation and, and reading and all that kind of stuff. And then you begin to kind of understand it. So it makes sense that, you know, people don't really get it again, but why people think they get it is beyond me. And actually, research has looked into this. Research has shown that lay people have trouble understanding narcissistic personality disorder and personality disorders in general. For example, Frim and colleagues had a study in 2011. Uh, in that study, they presented some case vignettes to, of of uh, personality disorders to lay people. And they found that lay people had a hard time understanding personality disorders in general. And they had the hardest time identifying narcissistic personality disorder in the vignettes. Something like 4% of people got it right or something. It was some kind of really low rate, um, which actually surprises me because uh, of all the personality disorders, I wouldn't think that narcissism would be the hardest one to understand. But apparently, according to this study, it was the hardest thing to understand. So again, not only were these people in the study, the lay people, uh, having given the criteria, it's not like they just threw them in, you know, they, they said, here's the criteria for this disorder, read this vignette and, you know, identify what, if, what or if this, you know, just what disorder is being displayed in this vignette. And the lay people had a really hard time with diagnosing personality disorders, which, you know, doesn't surprise me, and particularly had a hard time with narcissistic personality disorder. Also, most clinicians don't understand narcissistic personality disorder. So why would lay people understand it? You know, for example, one study found that 50% of patients with personality disorders who entered a hospital were misdiagnosed. Um, they're often misdiagnosed with bipolar or major depression. So I just want to emphasize, I just want to emphasize this. So these are clinicians who went through uh, graduate school of some level have been supervised, have have taken several classes on diagnosing, are considered to be experts and totally capable of diagnosing people, have resources, have consultants, have, you know, um, and, and people who diagnose people in hospitals aren't typically just right out of graduate school. So you know, these are presumably qualified individuals. And when someone comes in to their, uh, you know, office to be assessed who has a personality disorder, 50% of the time, those patients are misdiagnosed with something other than a personality disorder, often bipolar or major depression. Half of the time, qualified clinicians are misdiagnosing uh, personality disorders as something else. Half the time, half of the time. That's a, you know, so very few people on the planet understand narcissistic personality disorder and how to identify it, how to diagnose it. Uh, even among clinicians, ha, you know, uh, very, very few people get it. And I'm, I'm even guessing that this is just, I didn't, I, I don't, I can't remember the exact methodology, but the study of the clinicians, I'm guessing that among all the clinicians in our country, that these clinicians at the hospital are among some of the best diagnosticians around because that's their job. There are people who work in private practice or in, say, family centers who aren't exposed to a lot of different kinds of diagnosing activities, and so they their skills aren't as developed as someone who works in a hospital and in an intake uh, situation. So 
so that these people are, so if, if this was generalized or if the methodology included all clinicians in all settings, I'm guessing that percentage would go up much higher, you know, 80, 90% of clinicians wouldn't be able to identify someone with a personality disorder or misdiagnose them. Um, now this isn't to say that these clinicians are uh, incompetent or something that the thing is, is that narcissistic personality disorder is extremely difficult to understand, especially in the short term. Like I've been saying, you have to work with someone for weeks, months before you can really narrow down the possibilities. I've worked with people with narcissistic personality disorder, and in the beginning, I was like, "Huh, you know, I've an I've an hypothesis that this person suffers from narcissistic personality disorder, but I I can't be for sure yet because I don't know. I haven't seen them react to enough situations." I don't know uh, the transference, countertransference well enough yet. I, I I haven't seen enough data. Maybe this is just this day, or maybe they just have some traits and not the full-blown disorder. I really have to observe and assess this person for weeks. Uh, when when I have diagnosed people with narcissistic personality disorder, it is only after working with them for a minimum of, I'm going to guess, three months and that's weekly sessions. And I am an expert on it. I'm an expert on treating it and on assessing for it. And, and still it takes me three months to, to really be confident in that diagnosis. I, I could imagine it, but I'm not usually pressured in my private practice to diagnose. I could imagine if I was pressured to do it as fast as possible, I could probably do it in, I don't know, five hours, uh, depending on the situation. But, you know, People with this disorder are often elusive and evasive, and so it would really depend on how compliant the and how um, how trusting the client was to me. Because if they weren't, then it would be really hard to figure out. Um, so, so this is all to say that very few people on the planet understand narcissistic personality disorder and can diagnose it effectively and. Accurately, very few people on the planet, very few clinicians can do it. And therefore, of course, lay people have trouble with this disorder. But again, it's mind boggling that everyone is super confident on the Internet that they know what it is and that they know that they can diagnose it. Um, in this episode, I hope to actually um, uh, do my little part to eliminate that confusion. Um you know, we we see it on the internet all the time. There's a huge trend for uh, people to be labeled with narcissistic personality disorder. Of course, we know Trump is often identified, but Obama was identified. Uh, uh, you know, it, it, maybe it, depending on the echo chamber you existed in, you either might be surprised by that or completely um, know that if you're a Republican, you've probably read several psychologists diagnose Obama with narcissistic personality disorder. That was one of the main refrains of the right was that Obama was in love with himself and had a Jesus complex or something like that. Um, Hillary Clinton was diagnosed with NPD. Kanye West, Kim Kardashian. They all have, all you gotta do is type in like famous people with narcissistic personality disorder and you'll see these completely unfounded claims of several people. Now, what I'll say from from all that is I'm not saying they don't have narcissistic personality disorder. I'm just saying there's no way for you to know. You, you know, it'd be like saying uh, 
Trump does or does not have cancer right now? Well, there's no way to know. <laughs> you know, you would have to be his physician and and run tests and whatnot. Like you just you just don't know. Um, the other thing that I always talk about whenever we're talking about diagnosing in general is that uh, narcissistic personality disorder as um, the vast majority, if not all the labels and diagnoses in the DSM are not f- uh, measurable, hard science things. You know, when, when you have a broken bone, you take an x-ray, you can see the, you can see the fracture in the bone. When you have high blood pressure, you, you take a measurement from a, um, you know, whatever you call those things that measure your blood pressure. When you have too much, when you, when you're, when you're, vitamin D deficient in your blood. You, you take a reading and, and you have your answer. But when it comes to anxiety, depression, narcissistic personality disorder, there's not a numeric measure. It is based on self-report. It's based on observation and it's based on opinion. And there's a lot of gray areas. Now, You'll find consensus like, oh, you know, 10 out of 10 clinicians have identified this person as suffering from major depressive disorder. So, you know, you can find consensus, particularly when people present in these very quintessential ways. But when it comes to narcissistic personality disorder or any personality disorder, for that matter, you will find some clinicians uh, having wildly different points of view. And therefore, what's the truth? You know, if someone has a broken bone, they have their bone, their bone is either broken or not, right? There's this concrete proof and truth to it. But when it comes to these labels of, of diagnoses, it's, it's not a, it's, it's hard to demonstrate with hard science, um, what, you know, what your opinion is. But anyway, so yeah, lots of famous people on the internet being diagnosed this way. Um, basically the media seems to think that every celebrity is automatically a narcissist. <laughs> like they're, they're, you know, Madonna, basically anyone who is huge and famous and, um, you know, tr- basically makes their living from being famous is they're automatic. They automatically suffer from narcissistic personality disorder because look at them. All they want to do is be in the limelight. And it's like, well, um, uh, that's extremely simplistic that i mean that's that's like saying anyone who's crying suffers from major depressive disorder it, it's a sign but you know many people cry and don't suffer from major depressive disorder many people end up becoming a celebrity and don't suffer from narcissistic personality disorder many people are interested in having a job in which it involves celebrity status and Many of those people, if not most, if not the vast majority, do not suffer from narcissistic personality disorder. Some of them might, um, but unless you are able to assess them effectively over the span of, you know, a couple months, th- there's no way for you to know. And um, the the other thing that you see on the Internet that is just totally laughable is whenever, you know, you look at narcissistic personality disorder articles or narcissism, you'll see, uh, they always have, they're frequently will have some kind of picture of a young, attractive woman taking a selfie, right? They'll have some young woman taking a selfie and that is somehow equated with narcissistic personality disorder or even just generally narcissism in general, which is super cliche, uh, totally not accurate. Taking a selfie is not a sign that someone has narcissistic personality disorder. It's not even a sign that they have any narcissistic traits. It's just a sign of someone who wants to take a picture of themselves. And they're probably in a cultural group of people that like to do that sort of thing. And there's nothing wrong with that. And it's not indication of any sort of pathology. And just because 
um, you're old and cranky and you don't ever take selfies of yourself, um, which is redundant to say selfies of yourself, uh, doesn't give you the right to uh, diagnose other people or judge others because of their behavior. Uh, I'm Asian and a lot of Asians take selfies. So, you know, screw you if you think that that is some sort of indication of something wrong. Now, it can it be a sign? Can it be a yellow flag, so to speak, or a, a minor red flag of uh, narcissism? Yeah, absolutely could be. But t- uh, to again, it'd be like saying if someone's crying, uh, they suffer from major depressive disorder. Um, and it's just a gross misunderstanding of depression and of narcissism. Also in the media, it just seems like narcissistic personality disorder is used to label people that people just don't like, you know, a politician that they don't like, a a celebrity they they don't like. Kim Kardashian, you know, a lot of people like to bash on Kim Kardashian. And many articles claim that she had narcissistic personality disorder. Now, I'm not saying she doesn't, right? I I don't know. But you would have to get a uh, statement from a clinician who had properly assessed her over time. And I'm guessing that if Kim Kardashian ever did get assessed or did go to therapy, that she wouldn't consent to that person blabbing to the media. So we'll probably never know, really, if Kim Kardashian has the disorder. And, you know, we'll just have to live with that, with that terrible, uh, um, that terrible notion that we just don't know. How about that? How about we just don't know? You know, uh, and I find it funny who the media deci- or people on the internet decide to identify as a narcissist, right? Kim Kardashian is a narcissist, but Donald Glover, n- no one's claiming he's a narcissist. They're both celebrities who love fame, and they're both people who do who do a lot of things for fame. If you don't know who Donald Glover is, he's the guy who did had the video "This Is America." He was on Community. Um, he was a writer on some different shows. He's, you know, we've talked about him before. He's a singer, rapper, actor, comedian, all around great, funny guy. But because the media loves him and, and he's generally loved and Kim Kardashian is generally hated, Kim has narcissistic personality disorder. Donald does not. The truth is, there's no evidence that either of them have narcissism. They're both making a living by creating content that people consume. It's literally their job to be a celebrity, and that doesn't mean either one of them have narcissistic personality disorder. If you want to say that Kim is narcissistic, that's fine. That's not a clinical statement. You're just using an adjective to describe a human being. But narcissistic personality disorder or uh, being on the spectrum of narcissistic personality is completely different from just merely saying that someone appears arrogant to you. Um, so that is different. So there's a big difference. Be- be- so lay people and journalists out there, feel free to say that person is narcissistic in my opinion because of blah, 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 blah. Uh, fine. That's, 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 you know, it's a similar statement of saying like that person seems, um, that's not a good analogy. Um, anyway, it, when I see that, it doesn't bother me, but when people say narcissistic personality traits or narcissistic personality disorder in particular, then I'm like, whoa, 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 you really, one are talking out of your ass and two in, in a way it's unethical, um, particularly to you clinicians out there to be throwing around disorders like that, uh, which happens. There's plenty of people who are clinicians being interviewed on the media or just writing their own articles, blog posts, diagnosing people with various things, including narcissistic personality disorder, which is 
um, uncool. I, I've talked about diagnosing uh, fictional characters before, but um, I, if I ever do talk about it, I, I have several caveats around like, I have no idea. Um, you know, uh, so there are people just flat out diagnosing Donald Trump and Obama and Clinton and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, again, just to remind you, there's research that demonstrates the vast majority of lay people do not understand what narcissistic personality disorder is and they don't understand how to diagnose it. And in, and in another study, uh, people with narcissistic personality disorder and other personality disorders were, mis- were misdiagnosed by qualified clinic- clinicians 50% of the time. So it's really hard to identify. So in this episode, I'm going to try to alleviate that problem, and I'm really going to try to explain what narcissistic personality is and what narcissistic personality disorder is, what it really is, what it looks like exactly, how to recognize it, where it comes from, you know, what causes it. Again, this episode is likely to take five plus hours. I'm, I'm, I'm just in the intro and I'm already half an hour into this episode. So uh, I can't imagine how long this episode is going to be. Um, so again, I'm going to talk about the definition. I'm going to talk about the prevalence. What is it exactly? Um, and I'm, I'm going to really try to convey what the disorder is. I'm going to really try to explain it from a number of angles, really try to uh, get rid of the misconceptions and, and provide, cause it's a complex thing. Again, I, in this episode, I'm kind of explaining personality in general and personality development in general. So it's, it's going to take some time, but I think it's necessary to, uh, if you really want to understand narcissistic personality disorder, I, th- I think it's, it, you have to explain it from a lot of different angles because there's just a ton of misconceptions about personality and narcissism and because uh, we just we we have a hard time. Well, anyway, I'll get into it later. I'm also going to talk about what narcissistic personality disorder is not, because there's a lot of things that are associated with narcissistic personality that um, are not a part of it. Um, what celebrities have it? Does Trump have narcissistic personality disorder? Does Obama? Do I have narcissistic? I'm going to talk about myself in this episode because I I have some traits. Um, I'm a podcaster, for example. I, you know, I chose a job that involves me yammering into a microphone and uh, asking other people to listen to me. That's, you know, that's a narcissistic uh, uh, task. And along those lines, I'm going to talk about the spectrum of narcissism and how there are uh, much less problematic forms of narcissism, but there's still forms of narcissism and can bite people in the butt. Um, what is, you know, I'm going to talk about what the media are saying about narcissism. Uh, what does the research say? What's the history of the term and of the diagnosis going back to the 1800s? What does the DSM say? Um, how can, how can you detect narcissistic personality disorder in someone else? How, how do we treat it? That's very important, right? For you clinicians out there. Can, can we treat it, right? I'm going to talk about all that stuff. Um, movies. I've, again, I've got, 55 pages of notes and I'm on page four. So, um, so mathematically this episode is what eight hours long going to be welcome to the psychology in Seattle podcast. I am your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor and someone I would say about 5% on the spectrum of narcissistic personality, maybe 10 um, not to brag, just joking. Um, this episode is just for patrons of the podcast. So if you're listening to this and you're not a patron of the podcast, this episode will end before the content begins. 
If you want to hear the full episode, you have to become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. So go to patreon.com, become a patron, and when you become a patron, you'll get access to this entire episode along with hundreds of other deep dives that we've done that I, you know, borderline personality example, um, histrionic personality, passive aggressive personality. I've done deep dives on them. So, uh, and you know, dozens of others. So, uh, when you become a patron, just make sure you pay attention to the instructions on how to access, um, the various different patron only uh, episodes. And remember that a portion of your monthly pledge goes towards various charities that we support. All right. Welcome to the Patron Zone patrons. Thank you so much for becoming a patron. It's one of the best ways I know that you appreciate the podcast. So thanks a lot. Okay. So let's talk about the definitions of narcissism and narcissistic personality disorder. There are many definitions. Some people will say it's a person's sense of self. Other people might phrase it as a spectrum of how we feel about ourselves with healthy self-esteem on one end and destructive personality disorder on the other end. Some others define it as a developmental stage that we go through early in life. Some people define it as pathological self-esteem or vanity, etc. For me, it depends on the context. The word narcissism has a lot of different meanings, but I use it in four different ways, and let me explain. Number one, I use narcissism in the following manner. For example, I might say something like, oh my God, that guy is just full of himself. He's so narcissistic. In this context, it would be like a guy who, um, actually, Lita, the original co-host with Umberto of this podcast, uh, told me about this guy she dated, and this was years ago, so I'm sure uh, that person isn't listening to this, <laughs> particularly a patron of the podcast. But anyway, Lita was telling me about how she was dating this guy, and in his bedroom was a bunch of huge pictures of him. Just that's it. Just a bunch, like a triptych above his bed of just his face. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, that's vain. You could, you could, uh, label that as narcissistic or, you know, artistic, artistically questionable at the very least. So in this instance, the word narcissism is, uh, being used synonymously with vain. And it's an adjective that people can use to describe what I would consider to be a minor slice of that person's personality based on extremely limited knowledge and limited experience with that person. Um, it's okay to use it this way, but narcissistic personality disorder or narcissistic personality should not be mentioned since there is not enough information and we shouldn't equate this sort of thing, vanity, or this sort of observation, this sort of minor observation with clinical narcissistic personality disorder because it's it's rarely related or it it's not necessarily related. Um, it's just an adjective to describe someone that's similar to vain. And I wish we would use different words like like vain. I wish we just use that word instead or in love with themselves or egoistic or something because it would avoid the word narcissism as a sort of flippant adjective used to uh, describe someone as vain. It would um, it would avoid narcissism from being equated with narcissistic personality disorder 
because they're very different things. Um, uh, I'm not going to be talking about this aspect of narcissism today or this usage of the term, um, but it's worth mentioning. The second way in which I use the word narcissistic is um, in the statement that I might say something like, well, we're all narcissistic. You know, I might say that. I've probably said that on the podcast before. We're all, we're all narcissistic in some ways. In general, for example, you know, we, we all mostly like ourselves for the most part, regardless of your self-esteem. You can have low self-esteem and basically prefer yourself. And it's healthy to prefer yourself. And it's normal to be somewhat generally self-centered. Like, for example, it's hard for us to imagine that other people might misinterpret our communication. For example, many, if not most, fights that I see couples have, it's due to their inability to see things from the other person's point of view uh, and therefore derive some sort of weird narrative around what happened when um, they they think, well, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say something like, you know, why are you so angry about what I said? Because it's, that's not how I meant it, you know. And and the notion that uh, the way you see the world is not the way the world is, is hard for most of us, if not all of us, to really get. Um, so we're all narcissistic in that way. We all see things from our point of view. Um, we're also vain, you know, to some extent, in in some way. We all want people to see us as good or smart or attractive or, you know, good with tools or whatever it is that we consider to be important to our self-esteem and our self-image. And we spend a lot of time trying to make sure that other people see us in a good, see us this way or in a good light, the way we smell or the way we dress or the way our hair looks or the way we look in a picture on Facebook, or or how smart we appear to people. In my world, in academia, there's a lot of vanity and narcissism regarding uh, intelligence. Everyone wants to come across as smart and, and brilliant. Um, some people might be vain about how honorable they seem to other people, or how strong physically or emotionally they appear to others. Um, some others are vain about not appearing lazy, you know, they, they want to appear as if they are hardworking or how put together we are or how much money we have, but how modest we are about it and et cetera. Like there's just various different ways that everyone tries to appear good in other people's eyes. There's, you know, it's a whole social psychology, psychological phenomenon that's well understood. You know, we don't like looking bad in others' eyes. It's normal. It's probably evolved, right? We probably evolved this psychological mechanism, so to speak, from wanting acceptance from our tribe. We we don't want to be rejected by the tribe. We want to seem useful and good to our people because the consequence of the opposite is we might be rejected by the tribe and therefore unable to participate in the collective resource gathering and protection that the herd provides. So, you know, it seem it's probably normal and an evolved uh, behavioral trait that we want to look good in other people's eyes and we try to provide some kind of um, way of exhibiting that. We also are all narcissistic uh, and normally because we tend to prefer our, our ideas over other people's ideas. When we come up with an idea, we're like, you know, we like it more um, than if someone comes up with the idea. Research even shows that we're more likely to live in a town if it shares our initials, you know, like a, 
a Sharon is, um, so, you know, if the town's name starts with S, like Seattle, then, uh, and people have a choice between living, you know, in two different towns, um, one with their initial sharing and one without, we, there's a slight tendency to choose the city that has the same initial. Um, and, you know, that's an easy thing to uh, study. It's hard to know exactly why. But anyway, um, there's a lot of different phenomena in our, um, among our species that exhibits that we, we like ourselves a lot. Um, we also tend to think that we're smarter than we actually are. And there's all sorts of cognitive biases that can be demonstrated along these lines. For example, when we don't know something, we're often much more confident in our notions, even though they're likely to be false. You know, we all know the phrase, a little bit of knowledge can be dangerous. It's this cognitive process in which we, you know, it, we don't know what we don't know, and we tend to emotionally react to that by thinking that there is no information that you don't know, right? It's like we, if a little bit of knowledge, we're like, oh, okay, therefore now I understand this topic, and uh, and and since I don't have any awareness of any other knowledge, there, that that knowledge doesn't exist. It's kind of like the with an infant when you put the ball behind your your back the infant believes the ball no longer exists. Well, we tend to have that uh, sort of same problem when it comes to information. And uh, we uh, have this, and it's well demonstrated. I'm not explaining it very well, but the point is, it's like a little bit of information, people tend to be very confident in their conclusions. The more information you give to people, the more they realize how complex it is and the less confident they are in their conclusions. And then when you know a lot about something, and you're a super expert, then you're much more confident. So anyway, that's a, an example of we're all narcissistic. Um, and, and also in particular contexts, we're all prone to narcissistic behavior uh, when we're distressed. For example, when I have supervisees who are at the beginning of their career and they naturally feel very insecure and inadequate as a therapist, uh, and someone is giving them pointed feedback about their work with a client, they can become quite defensive at times, as if to say, your opinion is stupid and mine is smart, and I um, I deny your feedback. And this is a narcissistic reaction. It's, it's normal to, you know, when we, when our ego is being attacked, it's a natural reaction to cope with that by claiming or by having the fantasy that the other person is ridiculous and that your everything that you yourself do is brilliant, even though deep down you know that it isn't. In fact, that's where the whole defense comes from is because you're incredibly insecure and, and feel inadequate. So this is a reaction of narcissism that everyone is prone to do under particular circumstances, but this isn't necessarily indicative of narcissistic personality. Um, so that's what this one is. This is the second one. And this is the other usage, you know. So you have the, the the first usage that I described, which is basically synonymous with vain, and it's a a, a minor description of a very minor portion of observation of a person. And then we have the statement: "We're all narcissistic," which is a you know pretty complicated uh, observed f phenomenon among all of us that we retain narcissistic 
notions from childhood and we also have cognitive biases and, and when to stress, we will all invoke at times a narcissistic defense by claiming that everything we do is brilliant and then other people are stupid. Um, now this is kind of related to narcissistic personality disorder, but it's definitely not the same thing. Okay. So the third way that we use narcissism and the way I use it is the statement that children go through a narcissistic phase. This is a statement in reference to a developmental phase. It's a, um, if you've had children or hang around with children and you really think about it, you will observe that children are incredibly narcissistic. They will didn't demand they, there's a certain phase that all children will go through, whether it's, you know, short phase or a long phase in which they sort of demand that everyone look at them. They'll be at the park and they'll be about to go down the slide for the, you know, hundredth time. And they're like, look at me, I'm going to go down the slide. Look, look at me, I'm going to run. Look at me, I'm going to jump. Or they'll just claim that they're the fastest runner in the planet or that they're the best drawer in the world. And they might also take things for themselves. They'll be very narcissistic and the lack of, they'll exhibit lack of empathy for others when they take toys from other kids. And, you know, this is mine. Um, you know, I was just observing uh, a kid the other day and he's at this phase where he just walks around claiming everything is his, you know, he'll just pick up like the remote control to the TV and he'll, he'll just, he'll just declare to everyone in the room, mine, this is mine, <laughs> you know, uh, or kids will be playing on the playground and, um, they'll want to go down the slide and they, but they have to wait their turn, but they don't want to because they, it, they want to go down the slide and everyone else be damned because, um, you know, kids, the kids, every, every child goes through a narcissistic phase. Now, does this mean they have no empathy? No, it just means that they're incredibly self-centered and they don't see things from other people's point of view and they don't necessarily even care. And that's normal. And we all know that that's normal. We don't look, or hopefully we don't look at children doing that kind of thing as pathological. We just say it as not only just a phase, but also it's a healthy phase. It's a healthy phase for kids to go through in which they're experimenting with self-esteem and they're experimenting with what, who they are and what they deserve. And every kid needs to have some journey around that uh, idea of what they deserve and what they're entitled to. You know, there are kids who are treated in a way where they don't feel entitled to anything, which is a bad thing, which I'll get into later. But anyway, so, um, you know, we all know young children to be narcissistic. They have a fragile self-esteem. They can be crushed pretty easily with just the tiniest bit of disapproval, particularly some kids. And they lack a sense of who they are. They don't really know what they want. You know, if, if you ask them what they want to do with their career, they're like, uh, what, <laughs> you know, um, so it, you know, they don't, they don't know who they are yet. They don't know their emotions yet. Um, that's normal. Um, this can be exhibited also as a, a holdover into adolescence. Uh, in my work with adolescents, I would find that there would be this, um, resurgence during adolescence or a retention of that narcissism into adolescence. Like I would have kids who would, believe that everything they think and do and their age group do is brilliant and everything that adults do is stupid. Again, 
We all know that that's a normal phase that teens go through, but it is narcissistic to think that. Uh, other things like kids will think that they're going to be rich and famous. You know, oh, I'm going to be rich and famous. Or I'm going to, I'm going to be in the NBA. Can't tell you how many times I'd be talking with a kid and he's, and I'd be like, Oh, what do you want to do with your life? He's, well, I'm going to be in the NBA. I'm going to be a, I'm going to be like LeBron James. And, and every time I'd have that guy, I was just like, okay, you know, it's cool. You know, you're good at basketball and you like to play and you have aspirations. Great. Um, what if, you know, things don't work out? What if you get injured? <laughs> you know, like let's, let's not have that be the only plan. Because the likelihood is not necessarily there. And, you know, these aren't like 12-year-old kids. These were like 16, 17-year-old kids who were basically, uh, you know, they had no other, um, they had seemingly no other options available to them in, in their mind when, of course, they did have options available to them in actuality. Anyway, so so that's, you know, you could consider that to be a narcissistic phase of adolescence. Um, this is not to say, uh, this is not the same uh, usage of the term, we're all somewhat narcissistic, but it's related, right? The notion that I said before, which is we're all narcissistic is, is not a developmental phase. It's, it's sort of related. You know, you could, you could consider it the phase related to, um, um, so, so, okay. So let me back up. So you have the narcissistic use in terms of vanity, right? Then you have the narcissistic, uh, use of the term, you have the term narcissism, you, you know, you can use it for we're all narcissistic because there's all these cognitive biases and just a general self-preference. And then you have this third use, which is children go through a narcissistic phase. Um, but so they're all kind of related, but they're different. Uh, you know, vanity isn't necessarily the same as a child grabbing a, a, a remote control and saying mine. Right. Those are those are different things. We're using the same word for a lot of different things, but related. Um, and this is definitely not related, you know, the notion that children are narcissistic. This is definitely not related. It's, it's related to, but it's not the same as narcissistic personality disorder. And I'll get more into that later. Okay. So the fourth usage of the term narcissism is in what I'm going to talk about today, which is narcissistic personality. So that person has narcissistic personality or they have narcissistic personality traits or they have narcissistic personality disorder. Um, meaning that that person is somewhere on the spectrum of pathological narcissistic personality. That person suffered from chronic abuse, mistreatment, neglect, chaos as a child. And that person has, in a sense, you could say arrested development. And that person has terribly low self-esteem as a result of that chaos. And that person is defensively overcompensating by grasping for accolades as an adult. Um, this is a discussion of a spectrum of narcissistic personality disorder. And that's what I'm going to be talking about today. And the rest of this talk will be in, in reference to this usage of the term uh, and not the usages in terms of vanity or a phase or the, or our cognitive biases and our evolved mechanism to um, uh, try to impress other people with our, uh, with ourselves. So, Let's talk about the pre the prevalence here. The prevalence of narcissistic personality disorder is hard to pin down because, like I said before, there's not a blood test for it, and it depends on your definition and your thresholds of different criteria 
and the culture and the training and the opinion. I mean, I, I didn't talk about this before, but there are some people in my field, respectable, intelligent people who make pretty good arguments that the idea of personality disorders is problematic to begin with and that to diagnose someone with a personality disorder is not ethical or is um, wrong-headed in some way. Um, I don't uh, ascribe to that. I, I I mean, you can get into the whole problem of the DSM and of stigma and whatnot, but I have definitely observed, and it, it it's totally cogent and uh, consistent and coherent to me that um, some people suffer from what we commonly call narcissistic personality. Um, but anyway, so the prevalence rates are hard to uh, determine because, like I said, it's not a real thing. It's a construct. It's something that we decide upon and then we define ourselves and then everyone is sort of left to their own devices in terms of how to, def- how to, f- how to, um, see it based on that definition. And so there's been a lot of different rates that have found in studies. Some studies have found, uh, that it's as low as 0%, meaning that it's, you know, point, point, you know, less than 0.5%. Other studies find that 16% of Americans suffer from narcissistic personality disorder. So uh, you have anywhere from zero to 16. And that is, that might seem like a small amount depending on how you understand it, but that's anywhere from like, I don't know, like half a million people to what's 10%, 30, you know, 45 million. So it's, it's anywhere from half a million Americans to 50 million Americans, (laughs) you know? So you have this, um, huge, um, Variance in prevalence rates that studies have quote unquote demonstrated. The DSM five says that it's between zero and six, you know, somewhere between, you know, 0.3 and 6% of Americans or people on, on the planet suffer from narcissistic personality disorder. However, based on my understanding of the research of prevalence and my clinical experience and my personal experience, I would say that about 1% of people on the planet suffer from full-blown narcissistic personality disorder. So about 1%, maybe two. Um, but about three to five, maybe 7% have noticeable and bothersome traits of narcissistic personality disorder. Again, like I said earlier, I'm, you know, five, 10% on the spectrum. I would say that in order to qualify for narcissistic personality disorder, you would have to be, I don't know, based on my arbitrary scale here, you would have to be at the 80 to 90 percentile or something to qualify for the full blown disorder. So you could have, so this is just my trait. This is just my spectrum number system. <laughs> Uh, maybe I'll use this in the rest of the episode. So, so I'm gonna I'm gonna say I'm five percent. You know, um, again, not to brag, just joking. So, so in order to have the full disorder, you have to be at the at the eighty to ninety percentile. If you have a hundred percent, then you are very noticeable in terms of your narcissism. Um, anyway, so I would say that only about one or two percent are above that eighty ninety percentile threshold. But I would say 
anywhere between three to five percent are somewhere on the spectrum, five percent or higher. So it's I would say it's pretty common for people to be on the spectrum, um, but not that common, honestly. Um, there are many other conditions that uh, many people suffer from, <laughs> and narcissism is but one of them. So in other words, it's a very rare condition. Again, even the DSM-5 claims it's, you know, pretty rare. They're, they're saying between zero and 6%. So, you know, let's say they're, they're split the difference, say two to 3% of the population suffer from the disorder. It's pretty rare. Uh, contrary to what the media are saying, right? Um, the media wants us to believe that half, if not all of America suffer, suffers from the disorder, which is silly. Uh, another finding regarding prevalence is that about two thirds of those with narcissistic personality disorder are men. So this is similar to borderline personality disorder in which two thirds are women and one third are men. Um, so, uh, but some research, uh, looked at in a different, you know, looked at this question from a different angle and found that there is no difference in rates be- among men and women that they find that narcissistic personality disorder, uh, 50% are men and 50% identify as women. Um, I think it depends on the assessment method and whether or not the assessors attempt to avoid gender bias because narcissistic, I'll get into more of this later, but narcissistic personality disorder is extremely similar to borderline personality disorder. They're, they're distinct different conditions, but they can look, they can look very similar and you can have both or you can be on the spectrum between the two of them. So, uh, so when you consider that and then you add gender bias, you have a situation where people will say, Oh, well, this guy, you know, this guy is, he's in the cluster B personality disorder realm and I associate narcissism with men. So he's narcissistic. Um, the next one is a woman and it's like, well, she's in the cluster B area. And since I equate borderline with women, this woman is borderline. I'm going to label her with that. Another reason I think f- for the discrepancy in findings, uh, or the gender difference that some studies find is that men are socialized to be more narcissistic and women are uh, socialized to be more borderline. You know, women are, are socialized to be more focused on relationships and and having strong relationships to bolster their self-esteem. And when you have a a pathology of personality, you're going to have a pathology of that gender socialization. Whereas men are in general socialized to be independent and to be kind of stuck on themselves and to, you know, think that they're awesome and to kind of promote that idea. And so when they have a pathology of personality, they, they have an exaggerated sense of that. And so, so there's that. Um, my opinion about the gender difference is it's probably less than two thirds. It's probably more like, um, 60%, um, because of, I'm guessing it's a little inflated because of the, uh, bias of the assessor. But I would say that, um, definitely, uh, among people with narcissistic personality disorder, uh, most are men. But that is not to say that women don't suffer from it. There, are, you know, if it's forty percent of people with narcissistic personality disorder are women, to me, it it sort of doesn't really matter. That the gender difference is sort of irrelevant to me. It's like, oh, it's interesting, but uh, I, you know, that doesn't um, 
affect my clinical work. It's not like if I see a woman who is exhibiting narcissistic personality disorder, it's not like I'm going to be like, well, since, you know, since most people with narcissistic personality disorder are men, you know, is, does this woman really have it? It's like, no, you know, that's ridiculous. If, if, even if it's a third of people with narcissistic personality disorder are women, it, it's, it's kind of irrelevant. It's, it's just kind of an interesting detail. Um, and it bothers me when people take what I consider to be kind of a minor um, uh, difference between the genders to basically equate narcissistic personality disorder with men and borderline with women. Uh, and you'll hear people lecture in this way. They'll be like, well, since most most people with borderline are women, I'm just going to refer to everyone with borderline as female. You know, when she da 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 and they'll just gender every discussion of borderline as female and they'll, they'll gender every discussion of narcissism with, with, with men. I, I find that to uh, not be helpful because it um, subtly, even if you have the caveat that of the actual prevalent prevalence, it, you know, gives people this impression that um, the other gender never has that condition, uh, which is definitely not the case. Um, I have worked with, plenty of women with full-blown narcissistic personality disorder and it was undeniable and it was definitely not borderline so um uh, and the idea that the gender you know that gender would have that much of an effect on personality disorders is uh, silly so anyway all right well let's move on so that's the prevalence rate again in my opinion something about one or two percent of people suffer from the full-blown disorder um, and I consider the full-blown disorder to be, I kind of have a high threshold. So for me, probably in contrast to some people, I have a pretty high threshold for applying the label of the DSM disorder. But I'm very liberal with my uh, application of the, of the term borderline personality, or sorry, narcissistic personality or narcissistic personality traits. You know, uh, I... Um, because it's a spectrum, which I'll get into in a second. Okay, yeah, well, let's just do that now. Let's talk about the spectrum. This is my take on it. Other people would see it differently. But my take is that on one end of the spectrum of narcissism, you have what we call healthy narcissism or the absence of narcissistic personality. That's important. The, the way I'm terming this is there's a difference between narcissism, the normal narcissism that we all have and the narcissistic phase we go through as children and what I would term narcissistic personality and narcissistic personality disorder. These are different things and I'll get more to that uh, in later. But on one end of the spectrum, you have healthy narcissism, which is the notion which or which is the experience or the personality in which you have good self-esteem. You know who you are. Um, people in this category, which is most people, is you know, we mostly like ourselves and we mostly approve of our decisions that we've made. We mostly think that we're likable and lovable to other people. We mostly believe that we can accomplish things. We like the things that we think and we like the things that we've done. When people disapprove, criticize or reject us, we have enough self-esteem to weather that storm, to um, get through that difficult time without having to resort to uh, destructive defenses. We stick up for ourselves in a reasonable manner. 
Um, we uh, have the normal amount of self bias. You know, the cognitive. There's many self bias, cognitive biases that I've talked about. But uh, another cognitive bias, which is uh, within healthy narcissism or typical narcissism, which is that. When we make an, when we make a mistake, it's okay, but when others make a mistake, it's not okay. Like, a classic example is, you're on the road and you, uh, someone cuts you off on the freeway. And you go ballistic, right? You, you're just like, you know, that person cut me off, fuck you. I mean, depending on how you see things, but it's common, right? People freak out. They're just like, you're an asshole. How dare you do that to me? What's wrong with you? Are you, you know, take away your license. But I guarantee you, if you've been on the road long enough in other situations, you've accidentally cut someone off, you know, that, that, or you've accidentally almost cut someone off, right? I've done that. There's been plenty of times where I, uh, you know, signal and I start turning as I'm checking my blind spot and then suddenly realize someone's at the blind spot and I'm like, oh my God, you know, and I totally terrified that person in the car behind me because they thought I was going to run them over. And in those instances, I'm like, oh, well, it was an innocent mistake. I'm a good driver. Um, I'm tired or uh, that person, why were they in my blind spot? How dare they be in my blind spot? Which I find to be a really stupid criticism of people. It's like, if you can't check your blind spot, you shouldn't be on the road. Um, but anyway, so when I accidentally cut someone off or almost cut someone off, then I see myself as a good driver who made a mistake. Whereas when someone else cuts you off, we have a tendency to see other people as generally terrible, bad drivers or inconsiderate human beings, terrible, evil human beings. And that's a cognitive bias that is narcissistic, right? It's, it's at the healthy end of uh, narcissism. We're just, we're just, it's normal for us to be that way. At the under end of the spectrum, we have what I might term as unhealthy narcissism, which I'll describe in full uh, throughout this episode. But in general, it's the acquisition of low self-esteem that's usually hidden behind a constant need for what we call narcissistic supply, which is uh, people praising them um, and other kinds of uh, narcissistic supply elements which are all there to prop up their self-esteem with a fantasy that everything's okay and so that they can return to a state of denial of their low self-esteem and their lack of a sense of self. Um, again, I'll get more into that later. But um, yeah, so, so just to be clear, though, it's uh, low self-esteem does not equal narcissism. There are many, many people emerge from childhood with pathological low self-esteem, and there's lots of ways to cope with that psychologically and personality wise and behaviorally uh, and narcissistic personality is just one of those ways. So everyone with narcissistic personality has low self-esteem. That's important to understand. But if you have low self-esteem, you have many paths available to you in terms of expressing that low self-esteem, uh, substance abuse, histrionic personality, borderline personality, antisocial personality, anxiety, depression, um, you could just be completely conscious of your self-worth and really just feel like crap, psychosis, eating disorders, and the list goes on and on. So um, narcissistic personality is just one of the ways that children cope with mistreatment, and, and it's perhaps influenced by the circumstances of the mistreatment and of your biology and all this kind of stuff. So, so again, in general, you have a spectrum between healthy narcissism in which we mostly prefer ourselves we have a healthy sense of who we are. We have the normal cognitive biases, you know, that favor the self. 
And then at the other end, we have unhealthy narcissism that is uh, extremely low self-esteem and all that kind of stuff. Now, there are gradations within this spectrum, right, of um, un- of unhealthy narcissism. On uh, you have people at the low end, which are you just have traits. You know, this is that percentage thing I'm talking about, and so. You, you have some need to brag. You might have some need to be the center of attention. You might have some minor preoccupation with greatness, but it doesn't really bother you that much. You might have some feelings of superiority, some feelings of entitlement, um, somewhat of a compromised ability to empathize with others, somewhat arrogant. Um, t- people at this end are perhaps difficult to detect and their narcissistic traits might not bother people that much. They'll bother people, and that's the definition of having unhealthy narcissism, is that it will bother the self and others. It uh, it will get in the way. It's it's not something that is functional. It's a, it's a dysfunctional trait that will express itself dysfunctionally somehow. So it's bothersome to people, but other people might not think of it as narcissistic. They might just be like, oh, you know, she just really likes to say really long-winded stories or he is he just he's just really successful and he just he deserves to feel good about himself you know it, there's different ideas about what is happening for those people and and a lot of these people don't know that they have narcissistic traits they just think that that's just the way the world works and that's how they are and they're you know, slight feeling of superiority is justified or they don't consciously think about it very much. Um, at the middle of the spectrum regarding unhealthy narcissism is narcissistic personality disorder. So these people are very noticeable in terms of their narcissism. They are uh, extremely bothersome to people around them and to the self. They're, they're suffering quite a bit and you will, you will notice their narcissism, particularly if you get close to them. And, I'll get more into what the full-blown disorder is later, but um, but there's that. Then there's that the extreme high end, which is a very rare condition um, called in the literature. We, we'll call it malignant narcissism or psychopathic narcissism. Uh, this is basically it's at the extreme end of narcissistic personality. And you have all the traits of regular narcissistic personality disorder, but you also have psychopathic traits or antisocial personality traits. There's very little empathy expression, if at all. There's a lot of aggression, a lot of revenge-seeking, potentially uh, but seemingly a, a complete lack of conscious, you know, in terms of um, remorse or guilt. People at this end of the spectrum can be very paranoid about other people, thinking that other people are out to get them. They might even be sadistic. And they have extremely rigid, self-aggrandizing justifications for their aggression and sadism and exploitation of others. I'll get more into that later. Um, Okay, so some of you might be wondering, well, so therefore, are we all somewhere on the narcissistic spectrum? And... What I would say is, it again, it depends on your definition. Um, are we somewhere on the narcissistic spectrum? I would say yes. But are we somewhere on, on the narcissistic personality spectrum? I would say no. So maybe I'm going to revise my categorization here. Is that uh, we're all a little narcissistic, right? And we all have different degrees of that. So there's that's one spectrum. But there's this other spectrum of narcissistic personality that I think needs to be delineated from just general narcissism. Um, 
you know, uh, like I said, I'm like 5% on the spectrum of narcissistic personality. But most people, you know, something like 90%, 95% of people are not on the narcissistic personality spectrum. That's different. That's a different statement than saying everyone is narcissistic, right? So that's why these words get hard because we have one word to use to describe several different areas and they get confused by the media. And frankly, clinicians use it um, problematically as well. Um, but let me give an example from another disorder of autism spectrum. You know, only a small percentage of people are on the autism spectrum, right? Even though everyone has had an experience in which they had difficulty reading a social situation or reading social cues, right? We've, we've all had difficulty at times with reading social cues, but that doesn't mean we're all on the autism spectrum, does it? No, there's, there's very few people who are considered to be on the spectrum. Cause if we just apply the autism spectrum to everyone, then it kind of loses its, its meaning to some extent. Or with ADHD, you know, just because you've been distracted at some point or had difficulty uh, keeping track of tasks or something, that doesn't mean you're on the ADHD spectrum, right? Uh, now, does it mean that there's a spectrum of people with ADHD and that some people are on the spectrum that don't qualify for the diagnosis? Yeah, sure. But um, but to say that everyone is on the ADHD spectrum, it makes ADHD kind of lose its meaning similar to everyone is autistic, right? It's like, well, then we, the word autism kind of loses its meaning. So same with narcissistic personality. Um, and so I'm using narcissistic personality to delineate that when, when I, when I'm talking about narcissistic personality, I'm talking about pathological and problematic narcissism. Uh, I'm not talking about the spectrum with regards to everyone is narcissistic, quote unquote. So, uh, similarly with narcissistic personality, everyone has acted narcissistically, right? Everyone has narcissistic moments, but only a small percentage of people in my parlance are on the narcissistic personality spectrum. But, you know, others would disagree with how I'm using that term, but I, um, I find that that distinction has to be made because otherwise you have this confusion that, well, isn't everyone narcissistic? And it's like, um, in one sense, yes, but in a, in a more critical sense, no. Um, the other thing here that I want to talk, so that's the spectrum talk that I'm, I guess I'm still kind of working out in my mind. But something I'm not working out in my mind is that narcissistic personality is not the same as being spoiled or thinking highly of yourself without narcissistic personality or being vain, for example. That's a different problem. Most experts do not consider vanity or a kid who is spoiled, you know, like the affluenza kid, right? A kid who was raised in a very affluent, privileged lifestyle and given these, this idea that they're special and different and better or something. And as an adult, they sort of express those points of view. This is not narcissistic personality. This is you having learned something that is wrong. Um, you know, you feel entitled, but you're, but according to, you know, typical ways of seeing entitlement, you're not actually as entitled as you think you are, right? Um, these, these kids have been taught a bad lesson, similar to being taught that black, that black people are 
criminals, right? You know, just because you're taught that black people are criminals by your parents or society or something doesn't mean that it's inherent in your personality that you're racist, right? With enough information, you'll change your mind. You'll be like, oh, I guess black people aren't criminals. I guess I was taught something wrong when I was growing up. Similar to being spoiled. Oh, I guess I'm not entitled to everything in the world. I, I guess that lesson that I was taught growing up is false. So this is not narcissistic personality. And, and a lot of people will look at it and see it as narcissistic personality, but it's not, it's not a personality disorder at all, even though they might act in really destructive ways and they might have really odd beliefs about themselves and other people. But as long as they were raised in good enough parenting, even if they were spoiled, you, you know, good enough parenting, meaning that they were loved enough and given enough attention, they won't develop narcissistic personality. Um, and with a little reprogramming, like I said, they can actually uh, have a different point of view because they have a healthy sense of self and they're not, they're not grasping at a way of coping. The, the, the key to narcissistic personality is severe mistreatment of some sort growing up. And the way that the child coped with that is through a narcissistic delusion. And then they prop up this narcissistic notion of themselves. So for myself, growing up, I was not mistreated in any, you know, noticeable way. But, but every parent has difficulties, right? You know, they have limited time. Uh, they're a human being. Um, there's always going to be some deficits. And, and I would say that in general, everyone emerges from, from childhood, no matter how, I would say everyone incurs some chaos when they're growing up. The thing I like to tell my students, um, when I teach, uh, I teach a certain class in which they analyze themselves and, and some students really take to it. They're like, Oh, I, you know, I know myself, but forwards and backwards, I know how my parents did well and how they did badly and blah, blah, blah. Some, some, some students are really good with it, but some students really have a hard time with it. You know, they're just like, well, I don't know. I feel like my childhood was great. And although that's not wrong, what I will say is everyone, every child was left to cry during a nap time or something. And every child has been disappointed, right? So even if your parents are doing everything right, there's going to be moments where you are extremely upset and feel very upset just because of the nature of growing up. And I think that's what I went through. And the uh, way that I coped with it in my family, for whatever reason, was to develop uh, a slight amount of narcissistic personality, which I'll get into more later. Um, other, so another person might develop a different kind of spectrum personality disorder or something. And, and it's, so in this way, I would say that, um, and it's all related to attachment, uh, style as well, right? You have secure attachment and insecure attachment. Um, narcissistic personality tends to uh, be associated with dismissive or avoidant personality. Uh, borderline is more of a preoccupied. Anyway, my point is, is that, um, uh, what's my point here? <laughs> um, so it's not being spoiled is my point. Um, narcissistic personality disorder is a defense against cripplingly low self-esteem. So uh, if someone is just spoiled, but they're, but they have a good enough self-esteem, they just have bad ideas in their head and they, but they have a strong enough personality where they can uh, change the ideas in their head. So that's important because a lot of people in the media and even clinicians will equate um, sport being spoiled and, and a sense of entitlement with narcissistic personality disorder. And you really get a sense for it. Like 
I've worked with people who were spoiled. I've worked with kids and adults who were quote unquote spoiled in that their parents didn't make them do any chores. Their parents gave them everything they wanted. Their parents grew up in a nice neighborhood. Uh, their parents bought them very expensive things. They always had the coolest clothes. They always had the coolest cars and gadgets. And, you know, they felt special and entitled and they were spoiled. And when, you know, parents decided to take away their Xbox or their phone or something, these kids would freak out, right? And so you would be like, oh my God, that kid is spoiled. Well, um, that's not the same as narcissistic personality disorder. They're entitled and they might even have grandiose ideas of who they are and where they fit in the world and that they're special. But that's because they, that's the lesson they were taught. Um, now, some people will actually call this narcissistic personality disorder, even in the clinical field, but they're a minority. And I find it to be um, confusing to do so that way. I think you can absolutely call it some of something else. You could call it like privilege disorder or um, being taught a very bad lesson uh, about where you are in the world that and that absolutely, I mean, it can, it can be extremely destructive, right? For someone to believe that they're special, right? That, that could be, but it's not the same as a narcissistic personality disorder. Um, narcissistic personality, uh, again, has to have some element of a massive ongoing onslaught to their self-esteem to the point where they have to develop a grandiose delusion of, of the self in order to cope with that. And, and that's, that's important. Now, can you have narcissistic personality and be spoiled? Absolutely. But I would say most people with a narcissistic personality are not spoiled. They're, or it's not a major feature of their, of their, uh, growing up. Okay. So it is not being spoiled. I'll talk about other things it's not, but first let's talk about the key conceptualization. I've already sort of alluded to it, but let me kind of fully describe the key way of seeing narcissistic personality. Okay. So this is my key conceptualization or my, you know, this is my conceptualization of narcissistic personality disorder. This is not my conceptualization of, of uh, the spectrum of narcissistic personality, although it could be applied to narcissistic personality. But uh, in order for me to uh, more easily describe this, I'm going to describe full-blown narcissistic personality disorder and its more severe form of malignant narcissistic personality disorder. But as I'm describing this, uh, think about lesser forms of this would be just uh, um, lower on the spectrum of narcissistic personality. So narcissistic personality disorder is a defense against severe low self-esteem. That's, that's, in, that's the, in a nutshell. Narcissistic personality disorder is a defense against severe low self-esteem and its related uh, feelings of inferiority and of a lack of self and stuff due to a severe mistreatment as a child. Due, due to, you know, being severely mistreated as a child. Uh, the, as a child, they were made to feel worthless. They were made to feel that no one loved them and that no one wanted, even wanted them as their child. They were made to feel extremely afraid of people and what they can do to you, whether that's through abuse or abandonment or some other chaos. And in response to that mistreatment as a very young child, so, you know, this mistreatment typically, in my experience, is sustained throughout their childhood, meaning that from the time they're born until they're six or seven years old, they were mistreated consistently. And in response to that mistreatment and low self-esteem, they 
there are many available coping styles available to the child. You know, borderline eating disorders, anxiety, and narcissistic personality. It's unclear why some people happen to develop the particular coping style of narcissistic personality disorder, but that's what happens. There are theories as to why narcissism is is chosen by some people or developed in some people, but none of those theories are terribly compelling, and they're all really difficult to confirm empirically, so I'm not going to go into them. But, but anyway, so... I mean, I'm going to go into it later, but um, not here. Anyway, the point is, is that, you know, severe mistreatment throughout one's childhood and in response to that mistreatment and low self-esteem, some people develop what we call narcissistic personality disorder. Um, and um, and they develop this coping style, this narcissistic coping style, um, by constructing a grandiose self which is comprised of ideal aspects of the self and or ideal aspects of other people. Um, so that's, that's another thing I'm going to get into later, but you can develop a grandiose sense of yourself, but you can also develop a grandiose sense of people around you as if to absorb their greatness. And again, this is all in a defense against being mistreated, feeling inferior, feeling terrible about yourself, feeling unlovable, and even lacking a self altogether. People with narcissistic personality disorder believe that they have to create a false grandiose self in order to garner love and attention from others, and in order to even have a self to begin with, because they don't have a self, so they need to develop one, and they might as well develop one that what they believe garners attention and love from other people because they believe that they're inherently unlovable. And deep down, they they don't believe they'll ever really be loved. Um, that's the tragedy of this whole thing is um, even though they are spending a lot of time trying to quote-unquote trick other people into loving them and respecting them and looking up to them, uh, deep down they don't really believe that it'll work ever um, because they've never really been loved and they've never really been treated well. Uh, there's exceptions to that in some senses, but for the narcissistic personality disordered people that I've worked with, it's been their entire life of never having someone that they felt secure with, you know, particularly in childhood, their childhood, maybe their parents were drug addicts or um, abusive or severely depressed or something ongoing. And then they emerge into adulthood. They try to cope with it. They find a spouse. They uh, have a relationship that, you know, might look good from the outside, but is really not um, close. And then uh, fast forward to when they're 35, 45, 55, some bad happens and they end up in my office. And so they've just had a lifetime of never having a secure relationship. So they develop as this coping style, this uh, fantasy of the self. Um, and we can break the reasons down into three different categories. One is, is that they develop this fantasy of a grandiose self to trick others into giving them attention, you know, because they think that they need to, they need to, they feel like they need to trick people. And it, you know, if they're effective at it, it does work because people do respond to certain kinds of uh, personalities. You know, if you're powerful, people flock to you because you have power, that kind of thing. 
Second reason is they need to trick the self into believing that they're lovable. So it's not only just to trick others into loving them, but it's also they need to trick the self into believing that they are indeed lovable because that's a that's a fundamental need that we all have. We all need to feel like we're lovable, you know. And the third reason is we trick the self into believing that we have a self, that you know, that they have a self, that they're not empty on the inside. You know, it's a terrible notion to not have a self. I've talked about it in other episodes and I'll go into it more later, but it's a complicated thing. And if you, if you have a self, then you, in this sense, you might have a hard time understanding or empathizing what it, it's like to not have a self. But there are many people due to bad parenting who do not even have a sense of who they are. And it's not just an intellectual thing like, huh, that's interesting. I lack a personality or I lack a sense of who I am. It, it's incredibly anxiety provoking. It's very disorienting and very unnerving to people. And, and I have seen people crumble when they are faced with that reality. So people with narcissistic personality disorder, um, they're desperate for this fantasy, this fantasy of the grandiose self to be true. They, and they spend tremendous amounts of energy propping up this false sense of who they are, not only, again, for other people to love them, but also just for their own sanity. And all of this energy gets in the way of them being able to really notice other people's feelings. So they come across to other people as, as quote-unquote, lacking empathy or being mean or even flat-out abusive. I mean, people. there are some people with narcissistic personality disorder I would say most who uh, will become abusive emotionally or physically toward the people that are close to them. Um, now, this isn't because they actually lack the capacity for love and empathy. They they actually do have the capacity for empathy. They don't lack empathy, but they lack the ability to express it or even to know that it exists inside of them. Because they're so over, overburdened with the constant need to uphold this fantasy of the self and this coping style that they developed as a child that they can't, they don't have time or F or energy in their brain to even notice empathy or pay attention to other people. Plus, since they've been preoccupied with the fantasy of the self since they were young, and never developed a mature sense of empathy, their their sense of empathy is that of a child. So even when they do have moments when they are less burdened by their coping style and have some space to actually care for other people, the way that they do it can come across as insufficient because it's that of a child. And, you know, children in general uh, have a, a immature sense of empathy in that um, they don't, they have a harder time really putting themselves in other people's shoes. But it isn't because, you know, a seven-year-old, for example, um, might have a difficult time really empathizing with you and your difficulties as an adult as you go through your day. But that doesn't mean the seven-year-old lacks empathy, right? It just means that they have a seven-year-old version of empathy. Well, it's the same for people with narcissistic personality disorder. They've had their development arrested in, in a lot of ways because of the mistreatment and their sense of empathy has been arrested as well. But it doesn't mean they lack it. People with antisocial personality disorder, psychopaths, these are people who legitimately lack empathy. They just they just uh, don't have the capacity. Now, the more I look into people with antisocial 
the more I wonder if that is also false and that they also might have empathy, but because of a coping style of um, distancing themselves from other people or even flat out sadism, they, they have a hard time accessing that empathy. But anyway, so they can come across as extremely lacking in empathy and extremely mean and uncaring and abusive and um, they hurt a lot of people around them. And these hurt and bothered people tend to reject and withdraw from the person with narcissistic personality disorder, right? Which causes the person with narcissistic personality disorder to believe that they're unlovable and they start to panic because once again, uh, everyone's pulling away from them. Everyone's abandoning them and they feel themselves following, falling into the abyss of loneliness and meaninglessness and they will feel destabilized and deeply, deeply uh, depressed in a sense. It's not really true depression, but it's, it's, um, or similar to the usage of depression. It's just a, it's a very desperate, distressed, destabilized place because they don't have a self to fall back on. Like people who are raised well enough, you know, when, when people have a sense of self, you can turn, you know, and someone rejects you, you can be like, well, you know, I know that I'm still a good person and I know that I'm still here on the planet and I'm still, I'm, I'm, you know, it's going to be hard, but I'm, but I'm still here and I'll, I'll bounce back from that. People with narcissistic personality disorder have not developed a sense of self. And therefore, when someone rejects them, uh, even in the slightest way, they lose their grip on, on the world. They, um, they define themselves. Everyone needs to feel secure in the world. And when, and when we're raised well enough, one of our foundations is a sense of who we are and that we're good people. And if you don't have that, then you rely on other people to give that to you. And when those people aren't around to give it to you, you, you feel very destabilized. So the person with narcissistic personality disorder returns to their learned coping mechanism, which is their narcissistic fantasy that they're superior and that they don't need other people. Or they defensively suppress their compassion uh, for other people and try to control the other person with aggression. And do they try to dominate the other person or intimidate the other person into doing what they want, which is to keep them close. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they need people to be close. They need people to believe that they're special. You know, they need people to ad admire them because they that's their coping style. And so... When they're desperate, they'll turn to aggression and dominance and intimidation. Um, and this cycle starts all over again with them bothering other people and hurting other people's feelings with their narcissistic uh, ways um, because they believe it's the only way to get people to like them and because it's they believe it's the only way that they're going to like themselves or even have a self. And they... Um, and so other people start to get bothered by that and withdraw from them, which furthers their deep sense uh, that no one cares for them and that they're, they truly are inferior and alone and worthless, which makes them panic. And so they engage in more narcissism to cope with the loneliness. So, so this is the key conceptualization. And I, I really hope you understand what I'm saying because this is from this, everything will make sense when I talk about narcissistic personality disorder. Similar to borderline personality disorder, you know, you'll, you'll see these really simplistic explanations. Oh, people with borderline, it's like you're, you know, you're either all good or you're all bad. And they're impulsive and they engage in cutting and they have a lot of fake suicidal gestures and, um, you know, these, these 
the ways of very, very, very typical ways of describing people with borderline. But it's all kind of crap because unless you under, if, unless you understand where it all comes from, you don't really understand why. Cause it's like, well, why would, why would cutting be associated with impulsiveness? Which, and why would that be associated with, uh, sometimes highly sexualized behavior. Why would that be associated with seeing people as either all good or all bad? It doesn't make any sense. And the same way with narcissistic personality disorder. When you just read the symptoms, it's like, well, why do all these things, why do these things exist together? Well, when you understand the development, as I've described it, in terms of severe mistreatment leading to um, the development of a coping style, which involves propping up a false self that is grandiose, um, and a need to control other people's view of you because it's a fantasy that you need in order to cope with living throughout, you know, your day. Um, then everything starts to make sense. The dominance, the, the quote unquote lack of empathy. It's not that you lack empathy. It's that you're very much preoccupied with the false self and you're very much preoccupied with making sure other people see you in a certain way. And, and since that's really hard to engineer, you, start to engage in dominant behaviors because um, you're so desperate to prop up this false self. You know, because uh, when you list the symptoms of narcissistic personality, you'll see a lack of empathy and you'll see aggression or dominance in this. It's like, well, why would those two things go together, right? But when you understand where it comes from, it makes total sense. And it also provides, I think, empathy. And it also provides treatment directions. Um, without this key conceptualization, uh, it's very hard to understand. And on the internet, there's almost no talk about this. Like I said, Otto Kernberg has this, um, has a conceptualization that's very similar to this, as far as I can tell. And that one video that I can't seem to find again also had a conceptualization like this. But most people on the internet are describing it, even among clinicians, even at, you know, psychology websites are describing it in terms of, you know, this is a person who's really stuck on themselves and they think that they're so great and they can be very exploitative of other people. It, it, it's basically described in a way of a, a lack of moral character, essentially. And that is not what it is. It's not a lack of morals. It's not a, it's not a lack of moral character. It is a desperate coping style that develops out of a desperate situation for this person and their personality, uh, just like borderline is. Borderline is a is a desperate, rational reaction to a irrational, difficult situation of growing up. Okay, so that's the key conceptualization. Now let me just describe all the different symptoms and presentations that people with narcissistic personality will exhibit. Okay, so presentations and symptoms. This is the bulk of my talk here. It's the place where I am going to comprehensively talk about all the different uh, presentations, possible presentations, and symptoms of narcissistic personality. As a caveat, I want um, everyone to know that people with narcissistic traits present differently just like people with ADHD are different or people with borderline or depression. Uh, there's no universal, uniform presentation of narcissistic personality disorder. I feel like people tend to think of it that way, 
But everyone that I've met with narcissistic personality disorder is extremely different overall. You know, you have to look at people holistically. The, the narcissistic personality disordered part of their personality is, is but one part of their personality. They have other parts. You know, they have other interests. They have different ways of talking. They have different ways of behaving. Uh, they have uh, other kinds of conditions like anxiety or depression, or they don't, or, you know, uh, some people are aggressive, some people are not, some people are extroverted, some people are introverted. So it, understand that uh, as I describe this, uh, I'm talking about a wide, very wide variety of, of people. Um, and also everyone has a different background, different upbringing, different culture, and so they're all going to look differently. Also, um, each person with narcissistic personality disorder has a different set of symptoms, different combination, um, and the symptoms express themselves differently. For example, some people with narcissistic personality disorder are super vain, and they're really into the way they look. And some people with narcissistic personality disorder don't think about that at all. Uh, as another example, some people with narcissistic personality disorder are abusive and some are not. But the underlying coping mechanism is the same. They all have a need to create a grandiose sense of self to cope with extreme low self, with extremely low self-esteem, to cope with extreme um, sense of inferiority, uh, an extreme loneliness and extreme emptiness. So keep that in mind. If you're ever trying to diagnose someone clinically or you know, trying to assess a friend or family member, um, some of the presentations that I provide will not apply, um, and and really many will probably not. Um, but that underlying reason is there, and um, of all the possible ways it can express itself, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about um, all of them really. Um, also, it should be mentioned that narcissistic personality disorder has been demonstrated to uh, be a distinct category of personality. Um, it's not just some arbitrary label that clinicians have um, or psychoanalysts uh, um, have decided upon. Uh, these um, these characteristics hang together and tend to express themselves in a cohesive, together way. Okay, so um, I ha probably have, I don't know, 15 different... Uh, symptom clusters. And the first, the first one is the main one, which is comp compensatory, compensatory grandiosity. <laughs> um, so number one is con compensatory grandiosity. So notice I didn't just say grandiose self or grandiosity. I talked, I'm saying it's compensatory. It's an important element of the grandiosity. And I think that uh, I, I include that word because I want everyone to be reminded over and over again that the narcissism is not something that people just have for no reason, just because they want to be a dick. They're, they're doing it because of they're, they're, they're compensating for something that is deeply disturbing to them and they are deeply suffering. Another word for com compensatory grandiosity is upholding the fantasy of a grandiose self. That's the way I've been describing it, right? They, they uphold a fantasy of a self that is grandiose, a self that is awesome and superior and accomplished and interesting and lovable and attractive and all these kinds of things. Um, 
So uh, this is a, a broad one that I'm going to probably the longest of all the different presentations. This is, this is probably the longest. So there's a, there's a lot of elements to this that I'm going to go into because it's perhaps the central feature of narcissistic personality. Um, so, uh, the first one, the first element of this first element I'm going to call, I'm just going to do by letters now. So, um, so uh, this is, it'd be better if I had a PowerPoint, I guess. But anyway, so uh, among compensatory grandiosity, we have the letter A, which I'm using to designate for an over-dependency on admiration. So among the most important element of narcissistic personality, which is compensatory grandiosity, the most important element of compensatory grandiosity is over-dependency on admiration. We all need admiration, right? Like at work from our family members, we want people to respect us um, and like us and think that we're good people. But people with narcissistic personality disorder have an over-dependency on it, and they need it often. They, they have a need for uncritical admiration and continuous admiration. Without a lot of it all the time, they are faced with their loneliness and inferiority and their lack of self. Other ways of Putting this are that they seek attention, that they have, an, uh, that they engage in excessive attempts to attract and be the focus of attention of others, um, and they frequently feel and express the need for people to admire them. Um, they're also very sensitive to criticism. They're very sensitive to criticism because that's the opposite of admiration and respect, right? Or at least that's how they see it. And criticism is equated with deeply with rejection and of unlovability. And since this would confirm their deeply um, suppressed narrative that they are unlovable and rejectable, when they are criticized, they react very strongly against it. They're, they're very, they can become very upset, either internally or externally, and will reject it. They won't just, it's not, it's not just hurting their feelings, right? They're not just, oh man, that sucks that that person thinks that. What, what ends up happening is they deeply reject it. They think that person's an idiot for saying that, or they will actually attack the human being who criticized them to make them stop. You know, if a, if a spouse says something bad about them, they, they might actually beat their spouse to get them to stop criticizing them. And it can be, extremely uh, minor criticisms, you know, like, um, like say you have a red car and you're at work and someone says something like, um, you know what? I never really liked the color red. So most people would not connect that statement with a criticism of the self, right? You, you have a red car and someone says, I don't really like the color red. My favorite color is blue. Well, someone with narcissistic personality disorder might actually be extremely threatened by that person not liking red because they actually chose a red car. Now, this is an irrational connection, or at the very least, it's a, a massive exaggeration to connect those two and to, and to be threatened by that. And so the person with narcissistic personality disorder might argue with the person in this weird way. It might be like, well, that's weird that you don't like red. I mean, red is like an exciting color. Everyone loves red. Why don't you like red? That's, that, I don't know, that's kind of silly. And you'll see people do this. And 
it's it's one of the weird things about personality disorders is it creates a lot of very strange behavior in people. Now, they're not acting crazy. They're just sort of arguing with you. But the vibe you'll get from them is like, why am I in an argument with this person about my preference for blue over red? Like, why is this person – I'm getting this vibe that this person is attacking me because I don't like the color red. Like what is going on? Like you, you'll just, you'll feel really icky as you talk to them and you won't know why because they don't know why. They just, they just get the sense of like, I don't like it when this person said that and I need to attack it and I need them to agree with me that red is good. I just, I just feel that compulsion that I must, I must attack that, that thing that that person is saying. Um, and obviously more direct criticism, like if the person came to them and said, you know what, your red car is kind of dumb looking. <laughs> like that would be attacked as well. Also, it should be noted that people with narcissistic personality can um, attack on the inside as well. There's lots, there's lots of different ways to pathologically protect yourself from criticism, one of which is to attack it and control it. And the other one is, is to attack it internally and just decide that you're superior and that other people are idiots, right? Like the person in the meeting would be like, well, that person is an idiot for not liking red. Just They just sort of say that in their head. So there's lots of different ways that you can uh, be sensitive to criticism and attack it. Um, also, their primary mode of getting love from their spouse often is through admiration. People who are married to people with narcissistic personality will often report that their, their narcissistic spouse will almost every day need, need them to say something good about them. And it'll come across as dependent and childish in a lot of ways. Like, um, you know, They'll, they'll come home, the narcissistic person will come home from work and report to their, uh, wife. You know, this, this husband, this narcissistic husband comes home from work and he's like, starts talking to his wife and he's like, so this happened and I did this and this other person said this thing, but I shot them down because they're stupid and uh, I gained this thing and I'm on my way and, um, you know, 150 people report to me and, there's this very obvious solicitation of admiration. And um, so it could be for work accomplishments, which, which can be very common, actually. Uh, there's, there's Narcissistic people get a lot of their narcissistic supply at work. They, there's a lot of opportunity for admiration and accomplishments when you're at work. You know, in families, it's like there's not a lot of markers of accomplishments, right? But at work, you could get literally awards. You get pay, you work your way, quote unquote, up the ladder, you can get bonuses, you can get, you know, different kinds of accolades that are tangible, right? So, uh, so at people's occupations, they will often, narcissistic people often use that as a way of getting it. And then they come home and the way they relate to their spouse is to get more admiration from their spouse. And this can be very aggravating to the spouse because they're like, why do I need to constantly tell you what a great job you're doing? Can't you just enjoy yourself at your work? Uh, another is they might relate to their spouse in terms of attraction. They might need their spouse to frequently praise the way that they look, that they are thin or attractive or muscly or they have good skin or their hair looks good or they dress well or something or that they treat them well is another thing that um, narcissistic people might need to be reminded of, depending on their personality. They they might need their spouse to um, 
give them accolades around how what a good husband they are, or what a good wife they are, how how good they are, um, how good they are in bed. They're, that's another narcissistic supply element is potentially some people get a lot of their narcissistic supply from how good they are in bed and how how much um, uh, feedback they get on that. Um, other things too, like how, you know, tell me I'm a good singer or tell me I'm a good construction worker or tell me I'm a good jumper or whatever. Um, other ways that this need for admiration and, um, this over dependency on, on admiration, um, is mitigated through social media. P- some people with narcissism are very adept at gaining approval through social media without looking thirsty for it because when you look thirsty for admiration on social media, you get rejected. And so uh, people with narcissistic personality are some of the best, are, are some of the most um, un-narcissistic looking people on the internet because they know that if they, if they look narcissistic, they won't get attention. Right. Um, so they, so they, they often, so some of them, depending on their personality and their age, I suppose, have this really like perfect balance between uh, garnering a lot of attention and a lot of accolades on social media without seeming like they need it. On the other hand, there's plenty of people who are, uh, they come across as very thirsty for um, their narcissistic supply on social media. And, uh, and, and it's very obvious that that's what's happening. And consequently, they'll get less admiration or they'll get admiration from a particular group of people who don't, care about thirstiness in that way or something. Um, you know, uh, an example of this is someone on Facebook who takes a lot of selfies in opportune poses and places, and they don't post much about other people, and they post a lot of humble brags, like, um, I don't know, or even just brags, like, um, you know, uh, finished first at the marathon <laughs> or whatever. Um, or, uh, I'm in Hawaii. Look at me. You know, like, um, now having said all that, uh, I just want to, every once in a while, I'm going to chime in and say, any one of these things is not evidence of narcissistic personality disorder. You have to have, again, the key conceptualization where you were mistreated a lot as a child, or at least you perceived a lot of mistreatment as a child, and you were, um, you developed a coping strategy of propping up a false self. And there's a lot of different ways to do that. And I'm, I'm listing all the ways that you can do that, or at least all the ways I can think of in the past few months and all the ways I've observed. Um, any one of these things alone, or even a number of these, um, without that compensatory need to prop up a, a fantasy self, is not evidence of narcissistic personality disorder. It's just a personality quirk. You know, for example, you could have someone on Facebook who only posts selfies, never posts pictures of other people, and actively brags on Facebook. And they once they enter therapy with me and I assess them over a few months, I could determine that they don't have narcissistic personality disorder. They just really like bragging on Facebook. <laughs> and uh, that's just something particular to their personality. Um, and when they are denied that opportunity, like, um, you know, they go 
some or someone challenges them to not go on social media for a few months, they're they're fine because they're, they're they have a sense of self. They just they just like to post pictures of themselves traveling, and they they like to post pictures of themselves looking attractive and cute or whatever. And there there's nothing. It's not inherently narcissistic to do that, right? Um, plus, again, as I've been saying before, there's certain cultural pockets where that's the norm. That's what you do. That's what their idols do. That's what they do. You know, there's certain uh, cultural pockets where you, it's totally normal. It's not considered bragging. It's considered, um, uh, helpful reporting. You know, like uh, on the other end of the spectrum, I've heard people say things about the sort of stuff that I do on Facebook and they'll call that narcissistic. Now, I'm not saying it's not narcissistic what I do because there's definitely elements to my Facebook activity that are um, trying to prop up a false self on some level. But there are other things that, that I'm like, like they'll say something like, posting a picture of your food is terribly narcissistic and evidence of narcissistic personality disorder because no one cares about your fucking food. You know, no one cares what you're eating. I've, I've heard people say that. And as an Asian person um, with other Asians, we love food. We love Asians love food. Japanese, Chinese, Vietnamese people, Korean people love food. It's 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 not just sustenance. It's art. It's family. It's bonding. It's culture. And and we also love taking pictures and posting them of our food. And so when we when I take a picture of my food, which I actually just did yesterday, I took a picture of a filet mignon that I had. That was that was wonderful. And uh, when I posted it, I'm not saying look at me. I'm saying, I'm saying to a, a group of friends on Facebook who can relate to that. And I invite them to share with me what they had for dinner because <laughs> I love to look at pictures of food myself. You know, I'm like, ooh, wow, that hamburger looks delicious. You know, and I might comment like, oh man, that looks amazing. Where is that? Thing? You know, like, that's the that's the cultural pocket I live in. Now, I understand that if you're not in my cultural pocket or a cultural pocket that appreciates that sort of thing, that you're going to look at that and go like, that is bizarre. Who takes pictures of their food? That's fucking weird. You know what I mean? Like, it's bizarre. I get that. You don't get it. It's weird. It doesn't mean it's narcissistic. Okay. So, again, um, I'm going to chime in every once in a while and just remind everybody that the things I'm listing do not mean someone has narcissistic personality disorder. You have to sit down with them, get a sense of their personality, get a sense of the desperation. Maybe that's the key point. It's like if someone said, Kirk, um, I will pay you $1,000 to never post on Facebook ever again, I'd be like, I'd, I'd think, huh, 1000 bucks. Mm, you know, yeah, that might be worth it to me. Like, okay, fine. And I, I wouldn't, I'd be a little bummed about that, but I wouldn't, it wouldn't destroy me. For people who, depend on their narcissistic supply to prop up this uh, defensive grandiose self, they, they will suffer and they will react to it and they won't be able to do it. You'll say like, you know, refrain from any social media for the next month. They will crumble because their self, there is no self. And without that activity, they will suffer they will crumble. They will decompensate. They might even contemplate suicide in that instance. So it's not the activity. It's the dependence on the activity, right? Um, so another aspect of this need for admiration that can be met 
through social media is for some people, they actually avoid social media altogether. Um, so some narcissistic people have very normal, quote unquote, social media activity. Some people use it a lot to get their narcissistic supply. But others I have found will completely avoid social media altogether because it's too much to handle. They will not, they, some of them, uh, some people with narcissistic personality, even younger people, I'm talking like, you know, 20s, won't have a Facebook account. They won't have an Instagram account. They won't have a Twitter account because as they have contemplated it or dipped into it periodically or for brief periods, the, their, their sensitivity to criticism and their sensitivity to not looking perfect is challenged so greatly that they find it overwhelming and they avoid it completely. Um, so, so there's that presentation. Um, and some are in between where they vacillate between a ton of Facebook activity to bolster their narcissistic supply. Um, so they'll, they'll, they'll be full on into Facebook and, and Twitter and everything and, and they'll be good at it, you know, because they've, they've studied their entire life starting at the age of like two, how to gain attention from other people. And then something will happen and they'll, and they'll completely go dark on all social media. Um, again, this isn't necessarily narcissism, but it's, I have seen people with a narcissistic personality do this where, um, they'll, they'll be completely black or white with Facebook. They're, they're, they're on and then all of a sudden, you know, a few weeks will go by and I'll be like, huh, I haven't seen anything from that person. I wonder, you know, I wonder what that's about. And then I check their account and it's deleted, you know, and then like a couple of years later, boom, it's back. So they vacillate because, um, they both really rely on social media to give them the narcissistic supply. But then something will happen where it will overwhelm them or there will be some kind of criticism or they won't get enough likes in one day and it will destroy them. And they um, will strike back at social media and say, fuck this. Facebook and Twitter is stupid. You know, I, I've heard, um, again, not a sign of narcissism, but I've heard people talk about social media in this really contemptuous way. And they seem to almost resent social media in a way for not, um, they won't say this, right? They won't say like, I hate Facebook because I don't get enough likes. They won't say that. But what they'll say is like, oh, Facebook, you know, it's like the suburbs of the, of the internet or, um, or, you know, Facebook, it's, it's so out of fashion, you know, this kind of thing. Now, again, if someone hates Facebook or they want to vacillate on Facebook or Twitter or whatever, there's nothing wrong with that. It's not. Um, everyone wants, everyone gets to live the life they want and, um, and life without Facebook is, is totally fine, obviously. But, uh, I have seen people with the disorder exhibit their sensitivity to this need for admiration through these behaviors. Um, also people will grasp for awards in order to get admiration, right? They will solicit others to give them awards at work or professional organizations or something, um, and other accolades at work. Like one behavior I've seen narcissistic people do is they will, they will use emails to garner love and attention from people. They, uh, again, doing this isn't a necessarily a sign of narcissism, but narcissistic people can do this because they're sitting at their desk and they're, and they're having 
a low point in terms of their narcissistic supply. And that, that's another aspect of this I, I need people to understand is that they're, it's like, um, it's like an addiction, but it's not an addiction. Um, I don't want to say addiction. Uh, let's say it's like, um, going to the bathroom, right? You go to the bathroom. I don't know. How many times do people go to the bathroom? Like five or 10 times a day or something? Well, there's a, you know, you'll be sitting at your desk and you'll be like, Oh, crap. I got a crap or, Oh man, I got a pee. Um, and you, and you could deny yourself for a while. You'd be like, well, I better get this task done. I can't, I don't have time to go to the bathroom, but eventually that urge will mount and you'll start to get distracted and you'll get uncomfortable and you'll get distressed. And it, you know, if you wait like five hours, you'll be like in pain, right? Well, that's what it's like for the narcissistic person in terms of getting their narcissistic supply, getting something that props up this grandiose self uh, is they they need a constant uh, supply they need they need constant reminders uh, that will uphold this false sense of self and without it for a, a period of time they'll start to feel the pain of it and so um, so they're they're at work and um, you know, they didn't, they haven't got any good praise lately or they haven't, nothing's happening online or, and that's the other thing to know is that people, in order to prop up this grandiose self, they'll often have several different methods of propping up this, this false self. They, um, might be really great at work. They might, uh, do some kind of performance. They might have a podcast, for example. They might like to go out dancing and show off how good of a dancer they are. So they'll have lots of different ways. But anyway, they're at work. And they're not getting any accolades. And so this, this distress is starting to mount. They, they can start to feel the suffering and it doesn't feel good. It feels horrible to them. And unless you have a personality, unless you have like borderline or, or histrionic or narcissistic personality disorder, it's hard to know what that feels like, but it can, it can be a physical pain. It can be like a very physical sense of distress. And so, They'll be at work and they'll be like, okay, uh, you know, what, what can I do? And, and it'll be a sort of create, the, the mind is very creative. It could come up with lots of different options, right? On the, on the spot. And it's like, well, one time I got a lot of accolades for, for, for emails. I sent out an email and I got a bunch of responses from people saying like, oh, you go girl or something along those lines. So, so I'm, I gotta do something. And then, so they'll think of something. They'll find a, an article or, They'll, um, some kind of accomplishment that they've made or, or I don't know, it, it could be anything. Um, and they'll, they'll send out an email, blast email to everyone and in hopes of getting some kind of admiration from people. So, um, you can do that. Or another way of getting accolades at work is to talk a lot in meetings about everything that you do, that kind of thing. Also, another way that, uh, narcissistic people express their need for admiration is to surround themselves with adoring fans. If possible, there are some people who uh, find it possible to actually surround themselves with people who adore them or to hire people who worship you or to fire people who don't worship you. People with narcissism uh, know that if they become the boss and the people who hire, then they have a, they have greater control over their environment and therefore greater ability to, um, modulate their narcissistic supply. Um, and, you know, because this is a coping mechanism that one adopts as, at a very early age, like the age of two or three or four, 
people have a lifetime to learn and to observe how to gain adoring fans. You know, um, you know, take two people, two, two boys. One boy is, doesn't need to resort to narcissism to cope with his childhood life. He's, you know, he's raised relatively well. But another boy is raised in a way where he develops narcissism to cope. And both of these boys are good singers. Both of them have talent when it comes to singing. Well, which one do you think is going to cultivate that talent? Well, the, the boy who really needs to garner attention from other people and learns that by singing well, he'll, he'll garner attention. And so, uh, so it's a self-selecting group of people that the sort of people who, um, you know, are good at things and, and can get legitimate, uh, accolades. You know, it's another thing to know is that narcissistic personality disorder people, um, when you look at them, they could be quite disordered and quite disturbed, but none of the accolades they've got, uh, are, Unjustified. They might actually get a lot of accolades in a very ju- in a, in a way that we would deem justified. Like they give millions to charity, for example, um, and they get a ton of attention and love because of that. Well, none. Most of us would be cool with that, right? We're like, wow, that's good. You know, they sh- they deserve to get accolades for that. That's great. You know, but at the same time. Underneath that is a desperation for those accolades. So it's not just being a dick or being flashy or being gross with your narcissism. People can get their narcissistic supply through culturally um, acceptable ways. Um, now, this isn't to say that all singers are narcissistic. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just always keep that in mind. It's just a way for narcissists, narcissistic personality people to um, gain their narcissistic supply. Um, also, another way that people will people with narcissism will express their need for admiration is to associate themselves with very important people and to meet important people because they want to name drop, you know, when they, uh, with, you know, it's like, um, you know, I met president Clinton and we talked for a long time and, um, and, and you can just drop that like, Oh yeah, me and Bill Clinton, we're friends. Um, and so name dropping is a sign um, also just being associated with them, right? Just being seen next to an important person can provide some narcissistic supply. Um, people with narcissism will express their need for admiration also by avoiding tasks that are not likely to result in success for them, or at least not uh, a big success. For example, if uh, you might have someone who doesn't run for an office unless they really know they're going to win or not playing a sport unless they know they're going to be like the top player or they don't want to play a game just like a casual card game or something unless they know that they're going to win um, because they can't, they know they can't handle being mediocre or even a loser because it will threaten their, you know, grandiose false self and it will uh, to themselves and also to uh, in other people's eyes. And also, uh, if they can only do things in which they do really well at, then that props up this narrative that they're really good at everything that they do. Um, they also might earn lots of money and flaunt it, again, to get admiration for it. They might brag about themselves. Obviously, yeah, this is a pretty obvious one, right? It's like, um, you know, I was at the top of my class or, um, you know, my inauguration was the largest in history. These kinds of brags are 
evidence of possible narcissistic personality in somebody. Um, people will brag about other people is another narcissistic supply element, which um, like my friend, he, oh my God, he is the funniest person on the planet. Now, this is deceptive because they're they're talking about someone else and they're praising someone else. But if someone needs a narcissistic supply, they might engage in this sort of thing because it elevates them by proxy. Because it's like, I know, you know, oh my God, my friend is the funniest guy on the planet. And by proxy, what you're saying is, my, I know the funniest guy on the planet. <laughs> and the funniest guy on the planet likes me. And therefore... I'm a special person, you know, or, oh my God, you know, this girl I had sex with last night, she was amazing in bed. Oh my God. She was just the best. Again, you're bragging about someone else. You're saying they're great, but you're also saying that you're special enough that they, you know, they associated themselves with you and it makes you seem elevated. It also makes you seem more interesting. And it's also a way of, getting attention right because if you're just like oh my god my friend you know he's kind of funny <laughs> you're not going to get a lot of attention for that but if you say oh my god my friend is the funniest guy on the planet like people turn their head like oh like i want to know the funniest guy on the planet also people with narcissistic personality might frequently talk about their connections and accomplishments um in a way that they want you to feel special for knowing them you know they'll they'll they know that a, a large amount of people, large percentage of people, they, whether they're narcissistic or not, they want to associate themselves with important people, right? With high class, interesting people. And if you uh, talk about your connections a lot and you talk about your accomplishments a lot, then people will want to uh, feed off of your energy, if that makes any sense. Um, also, and people with narcissistic personality might get their narcissistic supply by looking attractive, by dressing well, the way that they walk, the way that they talk, everything like that. Um, they'll also exaggerate things about the self sometimes. Everything is bigger and better when they tell it. Their, their stories get more and more elaborate. Uh, Brian Williams, uh, if you're familiar with the story, exhibited this. I'm not saying he has narcissistic personality disorder, but he definitely expressed narcissism in what happened. If if you don't know, Brian Williams was a TV anchor person, TV news person who would would report on various different things. And and one of the things he reported on was the Iraq war. And uh, he was in Iraq and he was in a helicopter. So the, so what happened in the real story was, there, it was right at the beginning of the Iraq, I believe it was the Iraq war, and he, he was on location as a, as a news guy. And he was in a helicopter, and the, uh, there were a group of helicopters. And one of the helicopters got shot at, and actually, um, I think an RPG might have even hit it. Everyone survived, but the helicopter, it was this big story. And in the real story, it was a helicopter that was like a half an hour ahead of him. So he couldn't even see the helicopter, but it was in their group. And when he landed later on, he heard the story. You know, they're like, oh, my God, our helicopter was shot at. And for Brian Williams, he's like, man, that's quite a story that I was in a helicopter in what was considered to be a group of helicopters in which one of the one of the helicopters in the group got shot at. You know, that 
that makes for a good story. And so he told that story. He's like, yeah, one of the helicopters in my group got shot at and da, 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 da. Well, then fast forward a couple years later, he tells uh, the story again. And this time uh, he he said he witnessed. I can't remember the exact progression, but every time he told the story, it got more and more. Uh, ex- he more he changed the story to and eventually at the end of this process, after like 10 years or so, I don't know, eight years, or something. He goes on, I think, Letterman, and he he claims that he was in the helicopter that got shot at. He says, my helicopter got shot at by an RPG and bullets were blah, blah, blah. And so this is what people with narcissism will do. They will slowly, uh, you know, slippery slope. They'll just slowly alter stories to make themselves look more interesting and, and more exciting. So for Brian Williams, the first story he wanted to tell, which which made him look interesting, was not only was I uh, yeah, a news guy in the Iraq war, at the very beginning of the Iraq war, but one of the helicopters in my group got shot at. You know, that and people are like, whoa, tell me more. You know, that's that's an interesting story. And he's like, he really ooh, you know, people are giving me attention for this. You know, people want to interview me about it, blah, blah. blah. Um, the next time he tells a story, it's like just a just a little shade and shade different. You know, it's like, well, I saw it. Well, I was inside. Yeah, I, I was the one. You know, if if left to his own devices, by the time he was done telling the story, he would have been the pilot. You know, <laughs> and, and and he would have been, you know, like Arnold Schwarzenegger, like coming down from the helicopter and and shooting at all the enemies and stuff. You know, that that's what happens. Now, if you hook him up to a lie detector test, it's probable that Brian Williams would have thought that that was what really happened, you know? So it's not that the exaggeration is conscious. It's a, it's a slow, um, unconscious process of the self sort of tricking the self into believing something that isn't true because it props up the, uh, made up version of the self, uh, because the self needs that to be true. If that makes any sense. Um, uh, now, again, I don't know if Brian Williams is narcissistic, but it certainly was a narcissistic um, thing to do, you know, because he altered the story to make him look more interesting. Right. Um, there's a lot of ways he could have altered the story. Right. He could have been like, actually, I never was in Iraq. I, I don't remember that. You know, like, wh- why did he why was the exaggeration of the story making him seem more interesting you know it, that's an that's a narcissistic thing to do self-aggrandizing thing to do um okay uh, another way that people with narcissism will express their need for admiration is to pursue jobs with power and prestige right they'll be they'll want to be the boss they'll want to be the ceo research shows that there's higher rates of narcissism among politicians and clergy and strangely librarians um, which I don't understand. I'm guessing that podcasters were not included in this uh, because I'm I'm quite positive we would find that podcasters have higher rates of narcissism. Absolutely, um, but it's really hard to measure this because um, it's expensive and it requires assessments of everyone. If you really want to know, usually the way that they research rates of narcissism is by asking for self-report, which I'll get into later in terms of the measures and. It's pretty dubious because you have to ask people to be honest about themselves and to be self-aware enough, and that's that's a tall order for a lot of people. Um, so, so there seems to be some jobs that 
um, are better to satisfy a narcissistic supply than other jobs, right? Um, jobs that are in the limelight, jobs that people respect a lot, jobs that give you power over other people. Um, but really, there's a lot of jobs that can satisfy narcissistic supply that you wouldn't think would be uh, intuitive. Like, you could be a janitor and work your way up the ladder and become like the best janitor or the nicest janitor or the most, um, the cleanest janitor or whatever. And that can satisfy your narcissistic supply. Um, or by being a janitor, you feel superior because you get to ridicule everyone for their terrible practices regarding the garbage or something. I don't know. There's, there's lots of different ways through work one can satisfy their narcissistic supply. Okay. So just to review where I am in my notes right now, which I'm on page, what, 14 out of... I, I've added to the notes, by the way, so now my notes are like 59 pages. Um, and what am I? Two plus hours, two and a half hours in this podcast. My God, it's going to be... According to this rate, this is going to be like a seven-hour episode. Okay? All right. Well, so I am now in the part of my talk in which I talk about the presentation of narcissistic personality disorder. And the first symptom cluster that I'm talking about is compensatory grandiosity or upholding the fantasy of a grandiose self, right? And in that category, I'm talking about a number of different elements of that and the first one I talked about was overdependency on admiration. So these are all the ways in which people garner admiration and reject criticism. They brag about themselves. They meet important people. They surround themselves with adoring fans. They grasp at awards. They use social media sometimes. They um, seek attention. They um, demand attention. You know, all those, you know, they, they get good at things, so people pay attention to them. Um, uh, the second part of compensatory grandiosity, I'll, I'll say, is the letter B, and that's excessive self-reference. Um, so they, uh, people with narcissistic personality can uh, engage in excessive self-reference often, meaning that everything is referenced back to them. It's hard for them to see anything uh, outside of themselves. For example, if someone tells a story, they might respond by telling a story about themselves. You know, uh, you might tell them a story, an interesting story about work that's very important to you. You're just like, okay, this happened and this happened. And a, an, em, an em, empathetic response or a typical normal response might be something like, oh, my God, tell me more. Or why did that happen? Or, you know, questions about what happened to you. Or how'd that make you feel? Or, man, you know, that sounds rough. Or just something something that um, honors the person's story. But people with narcissism will have a tendency to uh, only see the story in how it can, uh, you know, aggrandize themselves. So you're telling this long story about work and blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, they're looking at you and they're nodding their head. And then as soon as you stop, stop talking, they're like, Oh my God, that happened to me too. I was at work. And then they proceed to just tell this long story about themselves. Now, this isn't necessarily by any means a sign of narcissistic personality. There's a lot of people that do that. In fact, I've found that there's basically two different ways that people communicate about stories, interesting stories. You have, you have the, um, the self-referential people and the, and the non-self-referential people. And, 
when they get together, they sometimes misinterpret each other. I, I have a friend who does this all the time, and he's not narcissistic, but the way that he relates to other people is by telling stories about himself. It's his way of um, empathizing with other people. You know, like someone's like, oh my God, I was at the hospital. It was so scary. And he'll be like, oh my God, that happened to me too. I was at the hospital. So it's his way of saying, I know how you feel, you know, and, and I get it and I hear you. Um, but it can come across as narcissistic. So I'm not saying that this is necessarily a narcissistic trait, but for narcissistic people, it's really hard for them to really understand other people's experience and to really hear other people talk about their experience. Especially if you talk about yourself for a long time, they are experiencing distress because the focus is not on them. And so as time goes on, they're getting more and more upset that the focus is not on them. And so as soon as you're done talking, they take that opportunity to focus the attention on themselves. Okay. So another part of com compensatory grandiosity, letter C, is exhibitionism. So this is the aspect of look at me, you know. Um, for example, singing, loving to sing karaoke, you know, every night, for example. Look at me. I'm on stage. Um, they might respond very quickly to questions and, and at length, you know, like you ask them a question like, um, how was work? And they're like, oh, well, let me tell you. And then they just, blah, 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 just talk, 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 you know, because um, they're because they're they're like, look at me. I'm talking. I'm, I'm saying things. Please look at me. Um, they might dress in a very noticeable, noticeable manner or they might act in a very noticeable manner. They might be very flamboyant with their gestures, lots of hand movements. They might have a very sing-songy way of talking because th that garners more attention. They might sexualize their movements and their body and their dress to garner attention. They might speak really loudly, for example. That's a, that's a sometimes a sign of narcissistic personality is is just screaming everything. <laughs> you know, you'll hear them from from the other side of the room, and it's not by mistake. You know, it's because early in life they realized that they were much more likely to get more attention um, and eyes on them. And, and they, they also realized that they would squash any attention on anyone else if they just spoke with a very, very loud, loud, loud voice, you know, because it's, it's just hard to uh, get away from someone that is talking so loudly, right? Um, the other thing I should say is that uh, uh, when people get drunk, um, you'll see all these things become even more so, you know, like a narcissistic person when they get drunk will talk even louder and will, depending on their presentation, you know, maybe they're not a loud talker, but, but if they are a loud narcissistic talker, when they get drunk, they'll be even louder. Um, when, if they are the sort of person who loves to talk about stories about their lives, when they're drunk, they'll do that even more. You know, if they get a lot of, narcissistic supply through sexualized behaviors when they're drunk they'll do that even more uh, because their brain isn't functioning well and they have lost certain inhibitions you know cer certain super ego functions okay uh, letter d in the compensatory grandiosity area is a sense of superiority so again just to go over a b and c here so we got we have a over dependency on admiration we have B, excessive self-reference. We have C, exhibitionism. And we have D, superiority or pathological self-love. 
um, they just feel superior to other people and they will, they will devalue others either to their face or in their head and or in their head. They feel unique and special compared to others. Now, underneath that is a deep sense of inferiority and a deep sense that they're not special. So they are propping up this defensive pseudo self in an attempt to uh, counterbalance their deep sense of inferiority and loneliness. But they will come across other other people as feeling as though they are superior. And they might even, again, build their life so that they are superior, right? So they are a boss of 200 people. And by definition, they're superior to their employees because they can fire them, they can uh, make them do things. And so they um, might have, quote-unquote, legitimate superiority in certain contexts. But also, uh, just in their heads, they're just like, I'm smarter, I'm better looking, I'm, uh, I have more money, um, I'm thinner. There's just a lot of reference to other people in terms of where they are superior to others. Okay, another part of compensatory grandiosity, letter E, we have exaggeration of talents. For example, feeling overqualified for their job or um, when they're cut from the team or they're fired from a job, they will they will have a really hard time accepting that it's because of something they did. And they'll they'll think that it was from discrimination or something else. They'll just have a really hard time with that. But they they want to exaggerate their talents. Um, They might get upset when they're not chosen for a promotion because they're like because in their head, they're like. I'm the most talented person here. Why am I not getting promoted? Um, we've seen evidence of this maybe during American Idol with different contestants. Um, some of them are not great singers, but seemingly think they're awesome. Um, now, this isn't necessarily a sign of narcissistic personality, but someone with narcissistic personality can exhibit their narcissism and prop up their false self by uh believing delusionally that they're extremely talented when they actually are not. Um, and another way that this is expressed is having a discrepancy between capability and ambition. So some people with narcissism will have these huge ambitions, you know, like I'm going to be president of the United States or I'm going to, um, I don't know, uh, you know, I'm going to be a billionaire or something. But, most evidence indicates that they're not likely to achieve those ambitions. Uh, for example, I knew someone with narcissistic personality who could not work for a corporation. Um, he, you know, he was like, um, uh, you know, he's working at a corporation and things are going pretty well, but it's not giving him the narcissistic supply that he that he needed in order to survive, in order to not suffer, and what he thought to himself was like, man, you know, I'm going to like this, this corporation is, is holding me back. I, I need to break out on my own. And then man guaranteed, I'm going to win. I'm going to get a billion dollars. And he broke free and things didn't go well. And, um, you know, not because, um, he's stupid, but because being an entrepreneur is hard and there's a lot of risks and sometimes things go well and sometimes no, but he, um, was sure positive, 100%, 110% sure that um, the, his corporate job was ridiculous, his corporation was ridiculous, and he was awesome, and he was going to make it, and, and he didn't make it. And when he didn't make it, he made up a lot of excuses for that, you know, blamed it on other people and that kind of thing. 
Okay. Um, now, again, this isn't to say that all failed entrepreneurs have narcissistic personality, right? Um, but people with narcissistic, some people with narcissistic personality, I have seen have this kind of profile. Okay. Letter F in compensatory grandiosity is recklessness among risks to gain accolades. So they, uh, because they're, sometimes they're, they're just so desperate for love and attention and, and admiration that they'll resort to things that are not wise for them to do. Like they might engage in base jumping, you know, without much training or running for office, even though there's not much chance of them winning. Right. Because they're, they're just so desperate for, for something they're, they're willing to roll the dice because they, they just need that accolade because they're not getting it in other ways. Uh, letter G is to that. Sometimes, uh, uh, people with narcissistic personality in order to, uh, you know, compensate for their low self-esteem by building up a grandiose sense of self is they'll fantasize or daydream about grandiose situations. You know, they'll be driving in their car, they'll be in traffic and their mind will daydream and they'll think about being famous or being rich or being interviewed on TV or having superpowers or, um, what I heard from one person who had narcissistic personality, they would frequently just randomly daydream about um, being able to see the future and know how to do things from the, from the future. Was that it? It was like, it was like, you know, witness me. I know the future and I, I don't Anyway, it's just grandiose daydreams, right? Because this is a, an attempt to, uh, make the self feel better, right? It, like in a, in another realm, you have someone who is grieving the loss of their mother. Their mother, their mother has died and they're daydreaming and they're, and they start daydreaming about being with their mother and maybe even seeing their mother again in heaven or something. This daydream helps the self to feel better, right? Well, when you're in a constant feeling of distress for, lack of narcissistic supply or, you know, um, not enough narcissistic supply, you will turn to visualizations and daydreams and fantasies that, uh, you know, are, are grandiose, you know, um, uh, you know, let's see, Jimmy Kimmel invites me on his show and interviews me and thinks that I'm the funniest, most interesting person on the planet. Or, um, I, you know, I, Someone interviews me about the most interesting tweet that's ever been constructed or something. Yeah. Um, it's just a, it's just a daydream, you know, makes you feel better. Another compensatory grandiosity element, letter H is through sexual conquests. You know, if, if I can get her to have sex with me, then, um, I can prove that I'm a man or something, um, to get admiration, um, and also inner admiration, you know, this, this sense of like, I'm a, I, I can I can have sex with anyone I want to, or I did have sex with those people who didn't really want to have sex, and this can get quite ugly. Uh, that's something I, I'll get into later, but I'm talking so far a lot about um, some of the less malignant parts of narcissism. I'm talking about bragging and having jobs where you're the boss, um, but narcissistic personality can get real ugly, can get very abusive, can get um, very harmful to other human beings. And along those lines, in the sexual conquest realm, 
um, some people with narcissistic personality who get their narcissistic supply by having sex with people or getting people to have sex with people can resort to rape and sexual assault. You know, um, I'm just going to grab her in the privates and, or I'm just going to grab her and kiss her because I am the boss and I can kiss whoever I want to. And ha ha ha, I just kissed her. You know, it's a, it, it can in a very sick way make someone feel like they're very special and unique and superior. You know, it's a, it's a sense of superiority and power and control to be able to do that. And, and, uh, if you are suffering and in distress and need some narcissistic bump, some people will resort to that. And the last one here um, um, uh, of elements of compensatory grandiosity is letter I can't let go of being humiliated. Um, this is similar to sensitivity to criticism, but it's deeper um, when you ask. So not everyone, not every narcissistic person has this, but, but some do. And when you ask them uh, to talk about their most difficult moments in their life, they will often talk about moments of humiliation, like the time they didn't get that job or the time they were fired from a job or the time they were cheated on and everyone knew about it and how humiliating it was or the time that they lost a physical fight in public or the time they were called out in front of other people or a moment in which they looked like a complete fool in front of other people. They will ruminate on these moments for years and years and years in the same way that someone with borderline will ruminate on moments of being rejected, you know, uh, being dumped, for example, to, to a borderline person is uh, um, so distressing and so in line with the abyss that they feel that they're going to fall into every day that it, it's, it just dominates their, their memory and their, their time in their brain. And the same goes for um, people with narcissistic personality because humiliation is the direct opposite of a grandiose self, right? Being humiliated is the direct opposite and moments of, of humiliation are so distressing to people with narcissism that it will stick with them and they'll remember those stories and they'll have a very difficult time with those stories. And again, they'll ruminate on it. It'll just pop into their head because it's, it's, tra it's traumatic. It's, it's not just like, you know, this intellectual thing, like, oh, I was, I was humiliated. That sucked. It's a, it's a deep destabilizing experience to be humiliated in this way. And so, you know, it, their brain says, you better focus on this because you need to avoid this in the future. Okay. So those, that's A through I of the elements of the first element of compensatory grandiosity or upholding a fantasy of grandiose self. Um, so that that's the biggest um, symptom cluster within narcissistic personality. Um, next, I'm going to talk about another one. Uh, so let's go on to the next one. Okay, the next one here is a lack of self, which is a similar problem with people with borderline and histrionic. It's difficult to explain unless you suffer from it, and it took me a long time to understand it. Because it's a difficult thing to understand, and I don't think it was ever described to me very well. People often say a lack of identity, they'll say. But when they said that, I, I didn't really know what they meant by it, or I confused it with something else. Um, so let me try to explain it. Um, it's a feeling of being empty on the inside. People will often say that. They will say, 
well, when I really look at myself, I feel empty. I feel like there's nothing there. And they, as a result, will have a compromised sense of what they really want and what they are even feeling. They, they, when you lack an identity, when you lack a sense of self, it's hard to know what you want and it's hard to know what you feel. They, in essence, missed a critical developmental phase of their childhood in which children will develop a sense of self. Their parents essentially weren't there enough or didn't help them develop their sense of self when they were two, three, four years old. And they consequently grew into adulthood and and had never been able to develop that. And uh, you can develop a sense of self through corrective experiences, but um, it takes a long time. As a kid, as an infant, as a toddler, as a as a child, you only need a few years, really, of that critical time to build the basic foundation of a self. If you don't have it as an adult, it takes years or decades of therapy to develop that sense of self, and it never really is fully mature and f- fully realized. You can you can get like sort of a half um, sense of self, and the. Uh, uh, symptoms of a lack of self are excessive reference to others for self-definition. In other words, you uh, people who have who don't have a sense of self, they they don't really know who they are or what they are or what they want or how they feel unless other people define it for them. Now, at first, you might think, "Well, isn't that just dependency?" And yeah, it can manifest as dependency, but it can also manifest as narcissism in that for the narcissistic personality person, they can't look inward for a source of self-esteem. They can't look inward for a source of reassurance. They have to look to other people for self-definition and for reassurance. They don't even know who they are unless other people define that for them. That's why people with narcissistic personality disorder sometimes can be like a chameleon because they don't really have a stable personality from context to context that has, you know, a set of characteristics. Um, sometimes again, not all the time, but, um, but the one thing that is true for, I'm guessing all people who suffer from narcissistic personality is that they do have a compromised identity, a compromised self. They reference other people for self-esteem regulation in other words, they need other people to pump them up. They have um, an extreme sensitivity to the to appraisal from other people. So they swing from feeling great about themselves when they're getting praise, and they swing to the other end of feeling just awful and dysregulated when they're not getting praise or not getting their narcissistic supply. Their goals are often based on the approval of others rather than on personal wishes and and a personal um, credo. And they're often unaware of their own motivations as to why they even do things Uh, that, you know, they might do a lot of things, but when you ask them uh, why they might have a a very superficial answer. Uh, For example, I, I have a good sense of self. My parents were wonderful to me when I was a young person and uh, I definitely have a, a good sense of self, as do most people. Uh, most people have a good sense of self. Um, 
So I have a good sense of self, and therefore, when people ask me why I make this podcast, I know exactly why. I I, I don't hesitate to answer. I don't need people to define it for me. And when I answer the question, it feels real to me. And that's the thing, that if you do have a sense of self, it's hard to imagine unless you really experience people with a lack of self. Because what they'll exhibit or tell you is that when they answer questions as to their motivations, it will, if they're being truthful with you, they'll say like, well, this is what I'm saying, but honestly, I I don't really know the answer to that question. You know, when, when you ask a narcissistic personality person why they chose the career they did, even if they're really passionate about it, even if they're really good at it and, and seem to, you know, get a lot of meaning out of it. When you ask them, they'll just be like, um, you know what? I, I don't know. I, I just, I just sort of do it. And, um, you know, I don't know. Or they'll have this really simple answer to it. They'll just be like, well, you know, you got to do something. <laughs> um, you know, for me, and when people ask me why I do the podcast, uh, it's my little attempt to make the world a better place. Whether or not I succeed at making the world a better place or not, um, I, I don't know, but I, I at least I can go to sleep at night knowing that I tried. And that provides a lot of meaning to me, and I know that about myself. I can feel it in my bones. I I endure, um, you know, a lot of cons. I, I endure a lot to make this podcast. Um, it's not like digging a ditch somewhere, but, you know, there's a lot of things I have to do to make this happen. It's, it's, it's a sacrifice of time. It's a sacrifice of um, sometimes my ego because I you know, can get attacked. It's a sacrifice of brain power. <laughs> um, you know, there's a lot of things that I have to do, and it all is completely worth it to me, 100 billion percent, because of the meaning that I get from it. And no one else uh, has given that to me. In fact, most people, particularly in the beginning when I was making this podcast 10 years ago, uh, did not understand why I was making this podcast. So I had to derive this myself. And in the beginning, for the first five to seven years, very few people were, were listening to this thing. And so I wasn't even getting any recognition. I wasn't getting any f- very, f- I was getting very little feedback, particularly in the first few years, like very little feedback. You know, I'd get a, an email like once every few months. And, and sometimes those emails would be kind of bizarre, you know, like, uh. so I had to have been, I had to have had a purpose and I had to have known this is why I'm doing it, you know, and I did. I knew it from the very beginning. I said, you know, I said, this is, this is worth the time that I'm putting into it. I might not do it forever, but I'm glad that I'm doing this. And that's what carried me through. That's a symptom that I have an identity. That's a, that's a symptom or a, an, an, you know, an, that's, that exhibits the fact that I have a sense of self. And again, if you are suffering from narcissistic personality, you have a compromised sense of self. And therefore, when you're asked why you do things, you, you have a difficult time knowing. Now, some people with narcissistic personality will be very convincing as to coming up with an answer because they feel like they have to. But but when they really look at it, they'll admit, I, I don't know. In fact, when I look inside, I don't really see anything. And it's not pleasant. You know, the lack of self isn't just a curiosity for people with narcissism. It's terrifying to them. And it's very distressing. I mean, just imagine that. Imagine you look inside of yourself and you see nothing. You just see a black abyss. 
that's what it feels like, that emptiness. You're just empty on the inside. You're just a shell of a person. There's nothing there. It is terrifying to people with narcissistic personality. It is very distressing. It is not pleasant. Um, uh, so I'm going back to my notes here. Um, when their defenses are stripped away, um, they will be faced with their emptiness and their lack of self and they will crumble. They will decompensate. So off, m- most of the time, someone with borderline, histrionic, narcissistic, they w- are completely unaware of the fact that th- they lack a self and that they're they're quote unquote empty on the inside because they have very elaborate justifiable defenses against acknowledging that they don't have a self and that they lack an identity. But every once in a while they're pushed into a corner and they actually have to face it. Um, and they become, they, they immediately de- decompensate it. I've seen it before and it is, it's frightening to see it. It is a, a very, it's so frightening to them that if you're with them when they're going through that, it is frightening to witness. It's like witnessing a seizure or something. It doesn't look like a seizure, but it's, um, it's watching someone just completely lose their grasp on, on life. Um, and, uh, some will immediately turn to alcohol or opioids or sex or something else or, or aggression, I suppose. Um, but if they have no way to to immediately alleviate their despair, they will become extremely emotional and upset, seemingly for little reason, if, as far as you can tell. Um, even and in extreme cases, pe- people with narcissistic personality disorder, when they become unglued in this way, might even become actually psychotic, delusional, um, or extremely paranoid or something. Um, but not always. This is sometimes why people with extreme cases of narcissistic personality disorder, when they're decompensating like this, they're mistaken for people with bipolar or psychosis. And like I said, I've observed episodes of this sort of decompensation in people with narcissistic personality. It's really sad and upsetting to witness their panic and their, their just utter despair. It's this mixture of panic and despair and just extreme hopelessness. And they have absolutely no way of soothing themselves because the the terror is derived from within there there's nothing on the it's it's them it's the in it's the inner darkness it's the inner emptiness and it, don't confuse it with major depression where you have a delusion that you're the devil or something it's really a quite different experience it's it's this um people will feel like they have stepped in you know, off a cliff and they're falling into, into darkness. They have this deep sense of emptiness and, and shame and they have nowhere to run. So they just sit there and cry inconsolably sometimes or, or, or they'll do something else to just, you know, in their panic. Um, and incidentally, they rarely self injure, which seems like they would, but they don't for whatever reason. Okay. So that's a lack of self. So again, the very first feature and presentation of someone with narcissistic personality disorder is that they have grandiosity, which is a compensation for their deep sense of shame and worthlessness. And the second feature, which is probably universally uh, common to people with um, all the cluster B uh, personality disorders, borderline histrionic, narcissistic, is a lack of self. And the third that I want to talk about is anger and hostility. 
Sometimes this is called narcissistic rage. I don't like the term narcissistic rage because people, in my experience, tend to equate that with, I don't know, some kind of like like someone's being a spoiled brat or something. And again, that doesn't um, explain it. To, to equate someone with narcissistic personality as a spoiled brat, again, completely misses the point of narcissistic personality. The narcissist is deeply ashamed and deeply insecure and feels deeply inferior in a way that other people would never comprehend how inferior and how how worthless they they feel on the inside again how empty they feel on the inside how nothing they feel you know they don't feel like there's anything to them but to cover that up they have this this false self of narcissism that they prop up that they've learned to prop up from a very early age and so um, the, the notion that they're a spoiled brat is really just the opposite of what the truth is. The truth is they're panicking and they are, res- they're resorting to rage as a, um, as a way to save themselves, to save their soul. Um, but yeah, we can call that narcissistic rage. As long as you understand that it, it basically has a, a logic to it. Now, I also want to say that before moving forward that I'm not justifying any particular abusive behavior that narcissistic people will engage in. Just because I understand the logic behind it, just because I understand where it comes from, and just because I have compassion for people with narcissism, doesn't mean that everything they do is okay. And doesn't mean that any, everything they do is justified. You know, there's, in this category, this third, uh, symptom of anger and hostility, there's a lot of really horrible, just horrible abusive, violent, aggressive, even murderous things that people with narcissism will engage in, and it's wrong, and there's no excuse for that. Uh, But it is a, when you understand narcissism, you understand why they engage in it, and there is a logic to it. It doesn't come from a place of evil. It comes from a place of uh, deep suffering. So this category includes people with narcissism who are highly reactive. They make mountains out of mohills. Again, not every person with narcissistic personality is like this, but they often are like this. When something bothers them, even slightly, they'll make a, just a huge deal out of it, and, and you'll really know it, right? They'll really make sure everyone knows that they're upset about it. They can become irritable, aggressive, and highly critical in, in this state. They um, are sometimes describing as having a bad temper overall because of this reactivity, or they're described as being moody. It's a, a common descriptor of narcissistic people is that they're very moody. And the reason why they're moody is because they are frequently um, swinging between having their narcissistic supply, which they feel really elated and good about, to having spikes of despair and anger as a result of not getting their narcissistic supply. And so people will call them moody. They might also engage in punitive mood states in, in, in a way to control other people. Giving people the silent treatment is a way that people with narcissistic personality may control people so that they can garner approval and discourage criticism against them. And remember that their anger and hostility feels justified to them. It doesn't feel incongruent. This is a very important point that is often understood. 
they, they don't just wake up and say, ha ha, I'm going to be mean and anger and angry and hostile to people. What they do is they, it feels justified to them. It feels right. Be, not because they have a lack of morals. They actually do have morality and they actually do have compassion for other people. But because their condition and their, uh, their personality as a result of their mistreatment makes them often feel extremely hurt and extremely dysregulated as the, at, at the hands of other people. You know, someone will barely criticize them or even just criticize something that they're associated with. And this, their mood will plummet. They will feel so terrible that it makes sense that they should strike back, right? If, you know, this is similar to borderline. Uh, people will talk about how borderline people are, are just so mean and hostile all the time. But it, it's because the, their condition makes them feel like crap. And their condition also makes it so that it's hard for them to understand that it's not the other person's fault that they feel like crap. And their condition tells them that it's ac- it actually is the fault of the other person that, th- that they feel so terrible. And so therefore, like anyone else, they feel justified to, um, you know, take action. For example, if, you know, you take someone who doesn't have narcissistic personality or borderline and, you know, for me, for example, you know, I'm only, you know, like I said, 5% narcissistic. So uh, I'm mostly not. So I'm walking down the street and um, let's say that somebody walks up to me on the street and they start yelling at me and they uh, slap me across the face and they try to grab my, um, my wallet or something. And I'm trying to defend myself. And then, you know, let's say we kind of get separated. Um, they don't get my wallet and then they start running at me again. Well, I'm going to feel completely justified. Let's, and then let's say in this scenario, for whatever reason, I, I have like, um, like a rock in my hand, you know, or, or something heavy, like a book. Let's say I have a book that makes more sense. So I'm walking down the street, I have a book. And when the person comes at me, um, I just take my book and I just smack it across the head and they go down hard and they're knocked out. Am I going to feel bad about the fact that I knocked this person out? Absolutely not. I'm going to be like, fuck that person. They attacked me. They were trying to mug me and they deserve what they got. You know, I hit him in the head. I don't feel bad for that. You know, they, they should know better. Well, that's what it feels like to be narcissistic and to attack people. You've, but the difference is, when if people were watching that altercation between me and the person who's trying to mug me, most people I would imagine would say, well, Kirk was justified in hitting that guy in the head with the book because it just tit for tat. You know, it makes sense. He was defending himself. But in a, if for people with narcissism and borderline, when, you know, specifically with narcissism, um, you, you know, like the, the example of the car, for example, you know, the red car, but let me see if I can come up with another example. Let's say that um, you're in a work meeting and the narcissistic person says, has, has some idea, just is like, well, I think we should go with option B because blah, blah, blah. And then you say something like, yeah, I don't know. I think option C is better because blah, 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 blah. Well, in this instance, the narcissistic person m- might, uh, because you are basically saying that their opinion is is wrong, and that your opinion is better, 
and it's a public forum, they might interpret this as um, an extreme humil- humiliation. Now, this isn't a choice that the narcissistic person has. This is this is mandated by their condition. They can't help it. They feel completely upset. It it is very distressing to them. You know, this is they don't wake up in the morning and say, "I'm going to assert my power over everybody." That that's not what they're doing. What they're trying to survive, and so. Because you said option C is better after they said option B was better, they might feel humiliated. They might feel like you, they might even feel like you attacked them on purpose, even though you didn't attack them. You're just in a meeting, but they might, because of their condition and because of their mistreatment and because of their lack of self and their, um, their lack of any kind of self esteem, you know, what your, your minor little criticism of this, of him could make him just feel utterly, utterly disrespected. And therefore, you know, if, Hey, if, if, if you're going to disrespect me like that, motherfucker, I'm going to get back at you somehow. And so that's that narcissistic rage. It feels, it feels justified. It, 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 you know, it feels emotionally coherent and cogent and, and, um, balanced to them. But of course, um, so, so the narcissistic person, uh, stands up and says, I can't believe you just said that, you asshole, and walks out the room. Now, everyone in the room is going to be like, what in the world? <laughs> like, why would you do that? But to the narcissistic person, it feels totally justified. You know, th- this is, as an adult particularly, um, this is after years and years and years of feeling terrible. People with narcissistic personality disorder are in a pretty much a constant state of feeling like shit. They are suffering. And this is an important thing to remember about narcissism because the, the, you know, the common understanding of people with narcissism is that, oh, they're so spoiled and stuck up and their narrative is they're awesome. You know, it must be so great to feel that way. No, deep down they are suffering. They are miserable human beings and they are in a constant state of interpreting the world as a withholding horrible place. And they uh, are irritable as a result, and they are motivated to get revenge. It feels justified to them. And they are rewarded uh, for certain kinds of aggression, certain kinds of dom- domineering of other people, certain kinds of controlling behaviors, because they uh, these behaviors can make other people stay close to them and compliant and provide them with narcissistic supply. So over time, they just develop this cycle of, uh, attacking people and, um, you know, to make sure that their narcissistic supply is sustained and also snuff out any kind of criticism around them. I mean, it's one thing you'll know, you'll feel when you're around a narcissistic person is that you do not have the ability to criticize them. You'll feel it. You'll, you'll, if, if you're trying to diagnose a friend or a family member or a client at this point, just try to imagine just sort of casually criticizing them. You know, how would that feel to you? Are you, does it make you afraid? (laughs) Then that's, that's a, that's a red flag for narcissism because they have taught you through their actions or their vibe that they will punish you. They will get back at you if you criticize them. So they're, they're more prone to overt hostility, um, more so than borderline and histrionic because their defenses, um, involve believing that they can be independent and that they are superior to others and they don't need others. Borderline people can be very aggressive, but they have a harder time with it because they're so desperate for um, attachment and so desperate to, to not push people away. People with um, 
people with narcissism are much more flippant about their aggression to other people because in their conscious mind, they think, well, fuck everybody. I don't care. I can do this on my own. Um, <clears throat> uh, but some people with narcissistic personality are not hostile overtly. I would venture to say everyone, if, everyone with narcissistic personality has some amount of hostility in them. And I would say many of them express it overtly in the way that other people would, would be afraid of them and, and feel it. But I, but there are many other kinds of narcissistic people who just keep it internal. They, um, <clears throat> they express it through their own thoughts and they express their superiority just to themselves. Um, <clears throat> again, because they believe they're independent and they don't need other people. So they don't really need to express it to other people. Again, not everyone with narcissistic personality is the same. So let's go over some examples that I could think of regarding narcissistic rage. Uh, one is, is road rage. Again, not everyone with road rage is narcissistic, but many people are. Uh, the idea goes is that if you have narcissistic personality and you're cut off, you know, someone cuts you off on the, on the freeway, it feels like a direct attack and a, you know, a humiliation against you. And so, or, or let's say someone flips you off on the freeway or something. And there's, to the narcissistic person, this is, this cannot be tolerated. You know, it's, um, you cannot allow someone to humiliate you in that way. And so someone is prone to road, road rage in that situation. Uh, other forms in, uh, real life are domestic violence, um, intimate partner violence and control, um, gaslighting. You know, the idea goes like an example would be, uh, an abusive partner would, would be physically assaultive when their spouse criticizes them or doesn't respect them or doesn't give them enough um, praise. Um, you know, you will never criticize me. You will always praise me. What, you know, this, this, this very much of an, you know, angry response. Also, because the narcissistic person went through a lot of really horrible things as a child and will see their spouse as um, their parents and will transfer onto them, will um, transfer all of their feelings that all the resentment and all the anger that they had towards their parents, they will transfer those, those feelings onto their spouse because everyone does that, even non-narcissistic people. Um, emotional abuse is very common for people suffering from narcissistic personality. Not only did they likely endure it, but they will dole it out as well. Name calling, extreme criticism, um, insulting, breaking down others, other people's self-esteem. You know, if you're involved with them over time, they will just slowly try to beat you down. Again, not everyone with narcissistic personality, of course, but many. Um, this is projective identification. Listen to my episodes on projective identification for more information. But basically, the narcissistic person is making other people feel the way that they did when they were a child because they internalize that feeling. And they, they as a child, felt worthless, stupid, and unlovable. And so they're going to make damn sure that other people feel that way around them. Um, so uh, they will often try to make other people feel inferior to them you know, dumber than them, weaker than them. And because this is a, a very important part of their defensive structure from an early age, 
they learn a lot of skills through trial and error and through observation how to do this. Uh, intelligent, even average intelligence among people with narcissistic personality means that they, uh, because they're so, because they need this defensive structure so much, they become extremely adept at getting under other people's skin. Uh, borderline people are, are generally the same way. Um, narcissistic personality individuals will engage in a lot of power struggles or, um, it's, it's one of the manifestations. Again, I just want to say, um, remind everyone that there's no way that, that someone with narcissistic personality would have all of these symptoms. I'm just throwing out all the possible symptoms, right? Um, so they might involve themselves in power struggles because they need to be in control. For example, a mother who won't let her son go to prom just because she wants to exert her power over him and she doesn't want other people to have influence over him. And she is worried that if he's allowed to go to prom that, you know, other people infect his mind and uh, will turn him against her or something. And, and she needs to retain this power. And uh, she retains the power not because she is power hungry, but she needs the power to to, to give her the ability to prop up this fantasy that she's superior and better than other people because she's so desperate to mask the fact that she feels terribly inferior and worthless on the inside. Another manifestation of narcissistic personality, narcissistic rage is bullying in the classic sense, like at school. Um, uh, many bullies at, at school, high school, elementary school are actually suffering from narcissistic personality. Some people will say, well, you can't diagnose children with narcissistic personality. And yeah, sure. But the only reason why you can't diagnose a child with narcissistic personality is because the, you'll get, you'll get a lot of false positives in that you, uh, if you just use the general criteria for adults, you're going to find that a lot of people qualify for narcissistic personality who actually don't have narcissistic personality. But the notion that it could, because Unless you know that in the the common practice for personality disorders is you have to wait until they're until they're an adult before you can really diagnose them, or maybe sixteen years old before you can really diagnose them. But what people misinterpret that to mean is that personality disorders don't develop until you're sixteen or eighteen. But that's just not true. The personality has been developed since day one, you know, or at least you know year two or something. That that that. There, it, there are four-year-old people suffering from narcissistic personality disorder. The only problem is it's very difficult to, to detect it because most four-year-olds present with a good amount of narcissism, right? So uh, it's just hard to tell. Plus, in order to really assess someone, you have to ask them a lot of questions and they have to tell you their experience. And younger people have a really hard time doing that. Younger people tend to just act out their difficulties and they have a really hard time expressing themselves and describing to you what is going on for them on the inside. Older people presumably have a better time with that. So that assists in the diagnostic process anyway. So there are plenty of young people with narcissistic personality and they will obviously, you know, they're, it's tempting for them to bully other people because that makes them feel superior and that makes them feel better and stronger. You know, they're, they're acting out through physical action, the, the notion that they are superior and better and stronger and smarter, or, you know, funnier or something like this. But 
as an adult, the, this bullying can also happen, like at work. Like, um, I'm going to tell you a real story about someone at work. Um, I uh, worked with this person a long time ago. They, they've quit. They quit a long time ago, thank God. But uh, she suffered from narcissistic personality, as far as I can tell. I never assessed her, obviously, but I worked close enough with her to see many, many different manifestations of it. And I can tell you that... Um, um, <laughs> I can tell you that I'm fairly sure that if I did have the chance to assess her, that I would say she had narcissistic personality. Um, and she bullied people all the time. Uh, and this one time she didn't like it, but I didn't know it at the time because I didn't really understand narcissistic personality. And I also, I don't know, at the time I, I just had this general trust of other people in a way that, um, I, I mean, I still trust people, but I also have a more realistic idea of the, the variety of personality problems that people can have that aren't obvious, if that makes any sense. But anyway, she, she didn't like a decision that I made a long time ago. So, um, now I didn't know this at the time, but like after the dust settled, after this whole bullying episode ended, I, walked back through all the steps and figured out what had happened to me. Cause it was such a, it was such, it, it felt like a train had just run me over. Um, which is what it often feels like. If, if you're around someone with narcissistic personality, it can often feel like you just got ran over by a train and then it's up to you to kind of figure out like, wait, how did this, how did I get here? Um, but anyway, so looking back, it became apparent to me that I made this decision at work and she didn't like it. So, from what I gather, she decided that she went on a campaign to destroy me, essentially. And, and I didn't even know that she didn't like the decision. I, 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 I mean, I could tell you the details, but I can't. But if I told you the details, you'd be like, that seems like a weird thing to get upset about. But again, to her, it was, I'm guessing, this massive affront to her uh, propped up facade that she is very, um, important and special or something. I don't know. So she didn't like this decision I made. So she proceeded to talk to all of my coworkers and talk shit about me, about the decision that I had made. And this is all completely outside of my awareness. Again, very adept at like, uh, gathering a, a kind of consensus, a consensus narrative that something I did was terribly wrong. Now I'll tell you, because uh, I thought about this a lot afterwards because it was, it was traumatic for me, this experience, was if, if she had just come to me and told me, I don't like your decision, I would have been like, oh, no problem. I'll change it. No big deal. Like, I, I didn't care. But because she doesn't trust people because of the way she was raised and also because it wasn't just about the decision, she had to destroy me in the process. She had to humiliate me. She had to exert power over me. It wasn't just about the decision. It was what the decision represented. Um, and she was a smart person, I, or I'm guessing still is a smart person. And she, 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 you know, knew that she could have just come to me and said, Oh, Kirk, I don't like this decision you made. Can you, can you make a different one? And I, I would have been like, Oh yeah, totally. I don't, I don't care what, you know, what's it to me? <laughs> um, so, but instead, you know, again, that's not the motivation. The motivation is not to, um, you know, get the decision made. She also had to publicly humiliate me because she felt that I had humiliated her, uh, which is not true. <laughs> it, 
I don't think anyone would have considered my decision somehow a, a representation of like my thoughts about her or if, if, if again, if I explained the details, you, you would understand, but that's how she interpreted it is my guess. And so she proceeded to go on this campaign of talking shit about me to everyone without totally outside my awareness. And then, um, and then she, uh, uh, calmly confronted me about the decision and, and, and then like in the converse. So at the beginning of the conversation, I'm like, so, okay. So it sounds like she wants me to change my mind. And I'm, I'm in my mind. I'm like, okay, yeah, it sounds, I don't care. But, um, before I knew it, she had, uh, laid out this argument that I was this terrible human being. And I, my, and I'm like, wait, what's happening? And my heart is pounding. I felt she was so calm, you know, cause, so this is another example of narcissistic rage is like they can exhibit their rage in a extremely calm and calculated manner. It's eerie. They can do it with, you know, with a, with a low heart rate, they are on a mission because they've been, you know, this isn't just a spike in anger. They've been, they've been angry at me for weeks, months, you know, it's like, and now is the time that I get back at him. And, and she's telling me this, this whole narrative and how everyone else thinks I'm an idiot and how I'm a terrible person for this decision. I make. I'm like, wait, what, what is happening? Like I, it, it was, it was very upsetting, very traumatic for me. And, um, it was scary. You know, it's scary when you are faced with this sort of thing, this sort of personality. Cause you, cause I'm looking at her and I'm like, so wait a second. Like you didn't like a decision I made like months ago and you've been like secretly campaigning against me by talking shit about me and, and poisoning other people's minds about me. Um, what else have you done about, what else have you done to me? Have you, have you like been stalking my house? You know, um, what else are you capable of? I mean, you're capable of like a, a several month long campaign against me. And I thought, I thought we were friends. You know, I thought we liked each other. We, we had goodwill. Like, are we enemies? Like, is that like, how did this happen? It's, it's all, it's this whirlwind. Okay. And, um, so, uh, so yeah, so I panicked and I gave in to her. I was like, um, yeah, yeah, sure. Whatever you want. Like, um, but, uh, but it, that wasn't justice, right? Um, the decision I made was uh, looking back, I think the right decision, but, but, um, it wasn't that big of a deal to change the decision. But all I know is like, that it wasn't fair what she did to me. And it also wasn't fair for me to give in. I, sh you know, like the fair thing would have been like, I should have said like, well, I respect your campaign against me. It's interesting that you didn't feel like you couldn't just come to me and ask me nicely. And honestly, the fact that you didn't just come to me and ask me nicely, um, just makes me, uh, feel even less goodwill towards you. And therefore I, I don't want to, I don't want to, reward this bad behavior. Like, uh, so the answer is no, I'm not going to give you what you want. That's what I should have said, but I was so terrified and, and just talking about it right now, like raises my heart rate. It's, it's just, it's so scary to be around someone that has so much pointed rage at you. You just don't know what else they're capable of. You know, it's, it's, it's very unnerving. Um, so, um, 
and you know, and I just wanted out of the situation. So I, looking back, I made the right choice because um, sometimes you just have to survive, right? So that's an example of someone with narcissistic personality disorder who decides to bully someone and go on a campaign of destroying someone so that they can write the ship, write their narcissistic ship. Um, she got to retain her position of power. She got other people to question my decision-making. Um, she got others to think that she was better than me in some ways. And she bullied me and terrified me into complying with her once. And she walked away from that situation feeling powerful. And she walked away from that situation feeling like she had won. And she, I'm guessing. And she walked away from that situation knowing that she could manipulate me again in the future. You know, she's like, well, you know, well, he gave in that way. So if I ever need to again, I can make him, I can bully him again because it worked this time, right? So, you know, next time it'll work as well. Um, now I, I'm injecting a lot of thoughts into her head. I don't know, but, um, but that is consistent with a narcissistic profile. Again, it, it's not out of evil. This, this woman I know has compassion and has empathy towards other people. I had seen it, but, uh, it can become very easily compromised and very quickly compromised when their narcissistic supply is threatened. Um, that's the important thing. Um, again, so we're in the third category of symptoms of narcissistic personality, and um, we can now talk about violence in extreme cases, um, even murder. Again, this is all done to prop up their sense of su superiority, even murder-suicide. Like, for example, Josh Powell. He was a fame, you know, you can Google him, Josh Powell, um, internet person, um, or not an internet person, but someone who's on the internet a lot, uh, from this, uh, crime that he, he, he committed, he killed, uh, from what we understand his wife, uh, and then was being investigated for killing his wife. And, um, then it's a long story. I, I did a whole episode on this actually. Number 99 came out May 30th, 2012. I interviewed my friend and colleague, Dr. Jim Manley, who was a psychologist working with Josh Powell. And um, in this episode, uh, Jim t talks about the full situation. And um, so Josh killed his wife and then months later killed his two sons and killed himself. Um, and Josh or uh, Jim Manley assessed uh, Josh Powell as having narcissistic personality disorder, and that's why he did these things. Um, so again, that's how dark this can get. Narcissistic personality can get real dark. Um, uh, but this is a very rare behavior for anyone, let alone people with narcissistic personality disorder. So narcissistic personality should not be equated with murder, right? Um, but with Josh Powell, essentially for him, he was on the brink of being humiliated by the courts and by the press. And instead of facing that humiliation, he seemingly, this is seemingly what was going through his head. He decided that he was going to kill his children and kill himself, not out of a, not out of despair or depression, but out of a, um, what he felt to be the only way he could get out of being humiliated. You know, he's like, I, I'd rather kill myself and deny everyone the opportunity to, to humiliate me. Um, and I'd 
and I, and I'm going to kill my kids in the process too, because I know that society wants these children to live. Um, cause that's what Dr. Jim Manley was assessing. He was assessing for, um, his parenting abilities and trying to make sure that, um, the kids were okay. And so Josh Powell said, fuck you. I'm going to kill my kids. I'm going to kill myself. And that's what happened. Again, we should not equate narcissistic personality with murder and suicide. Um, you know, the vast, vast majority of people with mid, uh, with, um, narcissistic personality do not do this sort of thing in the same way that we shouldn't equate depression or major depression with suicide, with, uh, with suicide, right? You know, Many people who complete suicide are depressed, but the vast, vast majority of people who suffer from depression do not complete suicide. So in in the same way, we shouldn't um, equate narcissistic personality with uh, murder and, and, and suicide. Um, okay. So other aspects of narcissistic rage are when they're made to look bad, they will adeptly find someone else to blame. Um, Sometimes this can become abusive and feel traumatic to the blamed individual and they will not let up is the thing. Um, they, uh, will, their narcissistic rage will be quite consistent and persistent and they, um, they won't give up is the thing. Um, not, not all people with narcissism, but, but many people, um, as I said before, they can react, uh, with cool rage. So sometimes it can be very calm rage, very well-spoken rage, but rage nonetheless. They don't raise their voice. They're very calm as they talk, but they are rageful. Make no mistake about it. Um, so uh, they, and in those situations, they might try to mess with your mind. They, because again, from an early age, they figured out how to mess with people's heads. Um, they might also attack you when you're not loyal. Um, in addition to criticism, they, they don't like disloyalty. Um, again, not every person with narcissistic personality, but, but some. Uh, like at work or in a marriage or in a friendship, they, they might even explicitly talk about people being in their inner circle or people and people who they reject. You know, it's like they might have a very clear line about who's in their inner circle and who's outside. Um, and when you dare to oppose them, they often know how to tear you down. They either in the group, they'll know how to tear you down by humiliating you and making fun of you and getting the group against you, or they know how to break you down to keep you loyal to them. Um, to these types of people with narcissistic personality, they basically equate security and loyalty with their grandiose self. And without it, they panic and go on the offensive. And they're, and they're really good at making people uh, loyal to them, uh, particularly susceptible people. Like Charles Manson is a good example of this. He, from what I understand, it's hard to tell. He was, uh, he was a narcissist. And he, you know, he would say things like, I'm the king. And when you study his story, you see that he started out as a, a, a hippie musician guy. And he got attention for that, but, but he wanted more proof of his specialness. So he kept ramping up his requirements for loyalty because, you know, once he had the loyalty that made him feel good, 
that that good feeling doesn't last very long. That's that's the thing about narcissistic supply is that um, it, it constantly needs to be revised and and ramped up. You know, uh, for for people without narcissistic personality, you know, a steady you know a steady trickle of admiration is enough for us. But for people with narcissistic personality disorder, it it it's an ever increasing uh, s- speed and. It needs to constantly evolve to, it's like an addict, right? It's like a, at first a little bit of alcohol works and you need more alcohol. It's like you, you get a tolerance to it. So he started out as a hippie and a musician and, you know, very, um, charismatic guy and he got a lot of attention. And he really liked that. So he kept, uh, but eventually he became tolerant to that. So he had to ramp it up. So he got people to listen to him pontificate. He started to preach to people and he had all these ideas about, you know, the world and how to live and how you need to um, live this way. And, and people were really listening. They're really, you know, susceptible people were really um, loyal to him and followed him around like he was a prophet. Um, but that wasn't enough after a while. So he got people to give up their possessions and join his group or what we might call a cult. And this satisfied him. It was good at first, but eventually that wasn't enough. Eventually it led to him uh, getting people to prove their loyalty by killing, actually murdering innocent people. Um, and, uh, and they did, and they murdered innocent people. And this was good at first, and he was like, he felt good. He felt this was uh, satisfying his narcissistic supply, but eventually that wasn't good enough, and on and on and on until, you know, uh, he was caught by the authorities. I haven't studied David Koresh, but I'm guessing that he had a similar condition. Um, they can; these sorts of narcissists can be extremely adept at, at ga- gaining and keeping followers loyal, because again, from an early age, they really needed that. And if they're also psychopathic, then that's a dangerous combination. But again, just to remind people, the vast, vast majority of people who suffer from narcissistic personality disorder are not psychopathic and therefore would never harm anybody, uh, especially to that degree. Um, again, I just want to remind people that most people with narcissistic personality do indeed have empathy. It's just difficult for them to express it because they're so preoccupied with their defenses. Um, but everyone with narcissistic personality disorder I've known has at least occasional unfounded hostility towards other people. So uh, I'm not saying that people with narcissism aren't hostile. Uh, they, uh, everyone that I know who is, who is narcissistic will emotionally abuse other people. Um, uh, but, you know, uh, none of the narcissistic people I know uh, have killed anybody <laughs> or have created a cult of killing. Um, also, um, they... Another marker of narcissistic personality in the narcissistic rage category is that they will make you feel like you have to protect yourself, like you're walking on eggshells. This is really common to all cluster Bs, uh, borderline, histrionic, antisocial. This is the primary way I actually detect cluster B personality disorders is that if I consistently feel terrified around them, then that's a big red flag that they're cluster B. They, they suffer from a cluster B personality disorder. I, I, I know exactly what it feels like. It's, it's this fluttering in my upper chest and my adrenaline starts to pump. It's a very distinctive feeling. And when I first started out as a clinician or as a human being, I would equate this feeling with 
just a weakness of myself or I don't know, just some other kind of thing. But over time, I've realized that um, that's a cue for me to wonder, wait, is the person I'm interacting with, do they suffer from a personality disorder? Because in the past, when I felt this way, a good amount of time, it was because I was being, I was being subtly, uh, emotionally abused by someone with a personality disorder. And, uh, and often that's a good indication. Plus, it helps me to manage my countertransference of, of fear because I can, I can conceptualize. I can be like, oh, it's not about, I'm not actually in danger. This is just their projective identification at work. And, um, you know, I can relax. There's, there's nothing really, uh, to be afraid of. Um, another feature among many people with narcissistic personality is that they never apologize or they rarely apologize. Um, or if they do apologize, it's not really sincere. They will make excuses or they'll, or they'll find some other way to blame someone. Often they will blame you for it, especially if you're the one that is attached to them or close to them. Or if you're the one who was the source of their, of their problems or something. So it's, it's, it's almost impossible for someone with full blown narcissistic personality disorder to apologize because again, deep down they have an extreme, horrible, raw sense of inferiority and they prop up this overcompensation of a grandiose self, right? And of a perfect self and to apologize Sincerely, you have to admit that you have a flaw. Now, to the rest of us who have intact personalities, we know that we all make mistakes, no big deal. And when we apologize, it doesn't mean that we're horrible people. It just means that we made a mistake. And, and it means that we're mostly good, and sometimes we make mistakes, and we apologize for that because it's, it's the right thing to do. But for people with narcissistic personality, they have a black and white point of view about themselves. They are either in a state where they think they're a they're perfect or they're in a state where they think they are the embodiment of imperfection. And so the idea of having a little bit of a flaw or being a little bit remorseful or being a little bit to blame pushes them very close to the edge of the cliff of realizing that, that not only do they have, you know, a minor flaw, but they are like the epitomization of flaw. (laughs) They are, they are inferior. They're a horrible person. And so they will, def- they will adamantly defend against that. And therefore they will refuse to apologize because they have to refuse. Now this isn't conscious. It's all unconscious. Remember, um, the last manif- manifestation of narcissistic rage I want to point out is mass shooters. Um, some, some of these mass shooters could be considered as suffering from narcissistic personality. They feel underappreciated they feel they deserve to be respected and they're super angry for not getting what they feel like they deserve. For example, Elliot Roger, um, he, if he, he left us a lot of information to understand him. He, he had a, this YouTube channel, I think, and he had this manifesto. And so you, you get to know the way that, that he thought and he, his main uh, reason f- that he stated for because he planned this mass shooting in advance. And the main reason was because he felt like he wasn't getting the the sex or the attention from attractive women that he deserved. He felt like he deserved their um, 
their attention and he wasn't getting it. And he felt like it was owed to him and this, and he wasn't getting it. This made him extremely rageful and revengeful. He felt entitled. He felt completely justified in having this aggression and having this, you know, several, several months long plan to kill women in sororities that he thought had, you know, rejected him. And also you very much see that Elliot Roger was deeply suffering, deeply suffering. So the notion of dying in the act of murdering these people was a, was a viable way out of his situation. And he planned his, uh, his mass shooting and his mass killing because he used a knife and some of the murders, um, in a way that he wanted to be immortalized. You know, he wanted to be remembered. And this is another narcissistic thing to do, right? Um, a lot of the, these mass shooters will exhibit this, not all, but, but many will. They'll, they, they seemingly want to be immortalized and they, and they, they frankly will be immortalized. I mean, I'm talking about this guy and, um, you know, only because of what he did now, you know, uh, what do they say about attention? They'll say, well, if he can't get any attention, like negative attention will do right. And, and this guy and many other mass shooters have just gotten a ton of attention. It's negative attention, but it at least is attention. And, and that's what they want. And, you know, if they, if they know that if they get enough of a kill count and if they get enough of a interesting story, uh, the internet will never forget them. And this is just truly just truly evil, just awful. Again, the vast, vast majority of people suffering from narcissistic personality disorder would never even think about doing that sort of thing, but severe narcissistic personality can result in that sort of thing for sure. All right, let's go on to the fourth presentation of narcissistic personality. Okay, so I have reviewed the first three features of narcissistic personality a compensatory grandiosity, you know, building yourself up, trying to make yourself look great, trying to uphold this false sense that you're an awesome person. Number two is a lack of self. Number three is anger and hostility because they feel terrible and they feel slighted. Number four is a difficulty with empathy. Notice that I didn't say lack of empathy. It's not a, they don't lack empathy. Recent research has actually found that people with narcissistic personality disorder do indeed have empathy, but things get in the way, similar to borderline personality. They have difficulty expressing empathy or accessing their empathy for a number of reasons. One, um, again, as I described earlier, they're, they're often in a panic, so they're too preoccupied with their panic and their defenses and their fear to empathize with other people. Another reason, number two, is they're... Uh, they're immature and they see others in the way that young children see others. They lack a self other differentiation and therefore don't really understand fully that other people have feelings too because of that immaturity. Um, uh, but that doesn't mean they lack empathy. It just means it's hard for them to notice a reason to engage in their empathy. Number three is, they were often mistreated as children and have a skewed sense of morality and what is acceptable behavior. Another name for this is a super ego deficit. 
They were often abused and or neglected and mistreated. So they think it's normal to treat others badly because that's what was modeled for them. Number four, when their attachment figures did exhibit their feelings, it would be, it was extremely traumatic for them. Um, for example, there's a man with narcissistic personality disorder. His, his wife comes home from work and she, ex- she expresses her anger about her boss. Um, well, so let me back up. So basically, uh, this, this factor is that when their attachment figures exhibit feelings because of their narcissistic personality disorder as a, as an adult, uh, when, when their attachment figures exhibit feelings, it's incredibly threatening to them. So over time, they, when loved ones express feelings, it's, it actually triggers a traumatic response. And so let me explain why they're traumatized by their, by their people's feelings. Um, so again, there's a man, a husband with narcissistic personality. His wife comes home from work and she expresses her anger about her boss. So she's like, oh my God, my boss, he's such a jerk and he makes me so angry. So people with a, a intact personality will empathize with that. You know, they'll be like, oh my God, you know, tell me more. Well, because the husband has narcissistic personality, his immediate reaction is actually to go into a panic because her emotions increase chaos for him. He is worried about what her emotions will mean uh, down the road. It's like, you know, in his head, he becomes paranoid about her feelings. It's like, okay, well, if she has this feeling, um, she, you know, that feeling might grow and she, she might want to quit her job, which will mean that she'll want to change her whole life. And God knows what she would want to do. Maybe she would want to divorce me and, and she would want to leave me or she wants, she would want to humiliate me in front of other people with a divorce or she want to cheat on me. And uh, I can't have her having this feeling. And if she, you know, it'll lead to this catastrophic uh, result of me being alone and um, me having to face my inner emptiness. And then I'll have no way of distracting myself from this deep self, self, self hatred that I have. And all this happens in a flash and it's out of his conscious awareness. Um, all he perceives uh, consciously is, Oh, my wife is complaining about her husband. I need her to stop. And so I'm going to tell her to calm down or I'm going to ignore her, or I'm going to yell at her to get her to be quiet, or I'm going to tell her that it's all her fault and she needs to stop that. So that can come across as a lack of empathy, but really it's uh, some other feeling that is clouding their perception that would help them to have empathy. Um, so, so those are the four reasons why they have difficulty with empathy. They, um, they're in a panic, they're, uh, immature, they lack self other differentiation. They were given bad models and they actually do have kind of a traumatic, uh, response out over time to other people's feelings, particularly people close to them. But when they're not being triggered, they can absolutely empathize with others. Um, albeit often from an immature perspective. And people with narcissistic personality vary in their ability to empathize, so remember that. But it's a common feature for people with narcissistic personality to at least have marked features of difficulty with empathy. All right, let's go on to the next feature. 
Okay, so the fifth feature of narcissistic personality is difficulty with emotions. They often have difficulty with emotional awareness, emotional expression, emotional tolerance, and emotional regulation. Um, they often give off a, a vibe contrary to this that they don't have any emotion, as if they don't care about anything. This is part of their defensive structure in which they try to trick themselves and other people into thinking that they aren't affected by anybody, like they're too cool for school. But deep down, they're suffering from unbridled emotionality. But they have little means of dealing with these emotions, and due to their defensive superiority, <clears throat> they don't reach out for help, because that would be an admission of vulnerability, which would completely dismantle their defensive structure, and they would be faced with facing their inner emptiness and their inner inferiority. This is all due to childhood mistreatment, um, a lack of their parents caring about their feelings when they were young and helping them with their emotions, uh, modeling how to deal with emotions, reflecting emotions, uh, containing their emotions, mirroring their emotions. Um, they also um, have difficulty admitting their feeling associated with weakness and imperfection um, and, and um, you know, all those reasons. In particular, they have an incapacity to experience depression, sadness, and guilt. Depression, sadness, and guilt are actually mature feelings. They're feelings that we graduate to after narcissism. Uh, children actually have a hard time uh, with these uh, emotions, too, and until they develop a sense of self, because it's too threatening to... It's sort of weird to think of... Um, I mean, guilt, we can understand how that would be threatening, right? It's like, oh, I'm guilty of this. That would, you have to have an intact personality to, um, admit that you've done something wrong to someone else. Um, but depression is interesting because uh, you, you have to be mature to be depressed. Um, you have to, uh, have enough of a self to withstand the sadness of, um, accepting reality because when you there are some things that you face in life that are just they're just depressing you know like um, the acknowledgement that um, sometimes people don't love us right sometimes we uh, want to date somebody and they don't want to date us and that's depressing you know there's just no way around that other than be like man that's kind of depressing that I asked that boy out for a date and he didn't want to go on a date with me. That's depressing. Well, you have to be mature enough and have a good enough sense of self to actually become depressed. If you don't have a sense of self, what ends up happening is you deny that reality and you blame the other person. You're just like, well, that person's an asshole. That's why he didn't want to go on a date with me. Or it's because my father fucked it up for me. That's why he didn't want to go on a date with me. Uh, and uh, and therefore depression doesn't kick in. What kicks in is anger and rage, right? Um, so in this way, people with narcissism have a hard time with their emotions because uh, they, their, their defensive structure denies them the ability to accept reality and therefore have normal emotional responses to things. You know, they, they tend to get angry at almost everything. You know, it's sort of like, when you have a, an infant and it's time to take a nap, they they don't uh, 
when they're upset about it and they don't want to take a nap. They're not like, oh, well, that's a bummer. I, I really wish that I could stay up and watch the TV with you guys. So, but okay, I guess I'll go to bed. I mean, certainly some kids will do that. But no, what, what happens to, you know, kids because they're immature is they'll just get angry. They'll, they'll just get pissed off. They're like, no, I don't want to go to bed. This is awful. Well, if, if you have arrested development in that way, as an adult, you essentially throw tantrums when you don't get what you want, but you don't, you don't throw a tantrum in the way a three-year-old throws a tantrum. You throw a tantrum in the way a 45-year-old throws a tantrum, which can be uh, rage or even very cold rage, can, can be very calculated rage. Also, uh, another aspect of difficulty with emotions that people with narcissism have is mood swings. I've talked about this before. Um, they swing from good narcissistic supply to bad narcissistic supply, and their mood uh, follows how much supply of their narcissism they're getting. All right, let's go on to another feature. Okay, so the next feature of narcissistic personality disorder is relationship problems. I don't know if I really like this feature uh, as a category. Um, it's one that I, I – all these features are uh, – I basically took all the different literature and categorizations of symptoms and – uh, thought about my own experience and tried to make categories that made sense to me. And I kept uh, coming back to this one category of relationship problems. And I, I felt like that's not th the best um, way of categorizing a symptom of narcissistic personality, but um, I couldn't really figure out any other way to present these different presentations. So, um, you know, let's stick with it, I suppose for now. Um, again, just to review, we had number one, uh, propping up a fake grandiosity. We had a lack of self. We have anger and hostility. We have difficulty with empathy, difficulty with emotions. And now we're at relationship problems. Uh, people with narcissistic personality are prone to not having very close relationships or, they have very few uh, relationships and they're not very close. Uh, there are some people with narcissistic personality who have no friends. They're not married. Um, they just avoid relationships altogether um, because they uh, are trying to avoid triggers sometimes because when they're around people, they can uh, be triggered by criticism or rejection or something. And also they avoid relationships sometimes because they feel superior and they feel like they don't need relationships. Also, they have an immature sense of attachment and relationships. And, um, as an adult, that often doesn't, uh, you know, go over very well with other people. Their relationships, if they do have them, can often be, uh, mostly selfish, uh, meaning that their relationship is they see their relationship as a way to meet their needs and not a way of reciprocal need meeting. Uh, again, they are uh, selfish because they are desperate for narcissistic supply and they're in a frequent state of panic and don't have a lot of time for other people's needs. Um, they also, in all likelihood, were raised in a way in which no one cared about their needs and so it's not a part of their schema of relationships. Um, 
They also tend to have trouble listening to others as they talk about their experience. One of the most, I don't know, I would say common initial red flags of someone with narcissistic personality is that when you talk to them, you know, you're at a dinner party or at work or something, and you feel like whenever you start talking about, you know, you're like, oh, I saw a movie last night. You just feel like they're not really listening or they don't really care. Um, and you start to feel like you're stupid or boring or uh, uninteresting. And the other person, uh, just they just seemingly just don't really care. Now, this could be due to... A, a lot of different things like ADHD or some, or you are literally just boring. <laughs> but, um, but in my experience, when I think about all the narcissistic people I know, uh, a very common experience I have when I'm with them is, uh, or especially over time, I realize that I should avoid saying anything that takes too long to describe because in my experience with this goes for ADHD people as well in my life is that, um, with both groups of people, I know that I have about three seconds of their attention. And so if anything takes longer than three seconds, I just don't, um, I just don't talk about it. <laughs> I'll just be like, um, you know, if, if in my head, I'm like, Oh, this is probably going to take 10 seconds. So I just try to reduce it to three seconds. Um, Again, not because they lack empathy, but because they're so preoccupied with fulfilling their narcissistic supply as a defense against their deep suffering that they don't have time to listen to you. And they also, again, because of the way they were raised, uh, didn't have that given to them. And so they don't, and by uh, extension of that, they don't really have capacity for uh, truly listening to other people. Um, another relationship problem or cause of relationship problems that, uh, that they might have is that they might feel underappreciated by everyone around them. They go to work, they work hard, they come home and they just feel like no one really cares. Um, or they, you know, cleaned up the house and they frequently feel like no one really cares. Um, this is a result of immaturity and a lack of, you know, for people with, uh, intact personalities, when you uh, clean the house, you just feel good about it yourself. Now, you definitely would like appreciation, but you don't need to be appreciated a lot. You know, you're just like, you're just like, well, uh, I like to clean my house and it just feels good. I'd like to be appreciated for it, but, um, but, you know, there's probably chores that other people do in my house that I don't notice and don't, don't vocally appreciate. Um, and uh, so you can just sort of depend on your own ego to give you some appreciation or some satisfaction. Well, when you have narcissistic personality, you don't have that inner voice that that reassures you. You don't have that inner self that says, good job. You know, you just clean the house. Nice work. They don't have that. That, that requires a self. That requires having been taken care of when you were in those critical years and, you know, two to five years old where you're developing a self. And so they don't have that. So they're just walking or so they don't have any inner resource to reassure them. And so they need other people to reassure them. And so there's a lot of um, burden on other people to reassure them frequently. And it's just not possible to, to appreciate them as much as they need to be appreciated. And so they consequently feel underappreciated, even though you're giving them a lot of appreciation. And, 
or, you know, or maybe you're fed up with them and you're not giving them any appreciation and they are, um, upset about that. They can often be very conflictual with other people. I would say that everyone with narcissistic personality is above average conflictual with other people. Um, because they, again, are immature in general. They have a hard time listening to other people. They feel underappreciated. They're easily hurt. They're easily angry. Um, they're prone to holding grudges. They can sometimes be prone to remembering every single slight that's ever happened to them by somebody. Um, and they can sometimes focus on really minor slights that happen to them, you know, instead of recognizing the bigger picture, they, they might really nitpick on uh, seemingly minor issues that um, deny the bigger picture. You know, you're married to a narcissistic woman and she, uh, you know, for the most part, 99% of the time, you're a good, you're a good spouse to her. You're nice to her. You're polite. You give, you notice, um, you know, you listen, all those kinds of things. But, Every once in a while, you're tired or you're um, in a bad mood or whatever, and you just don't have the patience as you do normally or you, or you don't have the energy to give in the way that you do normally. And the person was with narcissistic personality uh, is likely to focus on those moments and not see the bigger picture. And this can lead to conflict, obviously. Uh, people with narcissistic personality often appear to be very cold and distant to other people, um, as if they don't care about other people. And, uh, but often when this is something that I've seen actually in my practice is you'll, there's a certain kind of narcissistic person that I've treated where they, uh, you know, they suffer in their childhood. A great deal. They manage to find someone who fits well with them for one reason or another. Some healthy, some unhealthy. They get married. They, uh, you know, twenty years go by, and the marriage is not close. You know, the marriage has a lot of issues, but the narcissistic person um, kind of uh, figures out how to uh, protect themselves from other people, and they they just sort of. They might work really hard. Uh, they might work in the garage a lot or whatever. They just, they just kind of keep their distance. And then at a certain point, the spouse will have some sort of crisis and want to leave the, the marriage. They'll just be like, eh, you know, it's been 10 years of, of being in a terrible marriage. I think, I think I want to end this right now. And they, uh, so the spouse, you know, says, I think I want a divorce. Well, at this point, the narcissistic person you would think would just be like, okay, fine. You know, uh, you know, I never loved you anyway. Get out of my hair. But what sometimes happens, what, what I've seen happen is the narcissistic person, um, reacts in the opposite way that, that the spouse thinks they would. They, they panic and they seem to really care about the marriage and will, um, even change and, and do, you know, they'll go to therapy suddenly and they will recognize their narcissistic personality and they will recognize the fact that they can get angry too easily. And, um, in these instances, this is, this is one of those crises for narcissistic people where 
they actually are given an opportunity to, to really set their life on a new course. And that's where therapy comes in. And that's where I've come into some narcissistic people's lives. And, and, um, you know, they're, they're highly motivated because they, they really, they know deep down that they really do need their spouse and that they really do want that relationship and they depend on it. Um, and the prospect of being alone wakes them up to, uh, looking at things more critically and more, um, in a more mature way. And in these, in, in these moments, they have uh, high, high motivation to take responsibility for things. Now, depending on their pathology, the level of their pathology, um, uh, they might have an easier or more difficult time with it. You know, uh, malignant narcissists, High-level narcissists are are probably not going to have an easy time with that, but the average person with narcissistic personality, I would imagine, would uh, have the capacity to um, take some responsibility and to have some maturity and some health in that situation. Um, people with narcissistic personality, some often they have trouble internalizing love from other people. It's it's really a tragedy for narcissistic people in that. When they were growing up, they were denied love and denied stability and denied secure attachment. And then as an adult, uh, because of that, they have a very difficult time internalizing love and care and compassion from other people. So even though as an adult, they might, they might have a lot of love and caring in their life, it, it, it doesn't get inside of them because they have a hard time um, noticing other people, one, and two, trusting other people, and three, not being so preoccupied with their narcissistic supply, um, and therefore they, they don't really um, value it or notice it very much. Um, they can often push people away from them um, with their arrogance or their need to be superior or their need to be distant from other people. Um, and they might have difficulty opening up to others and they have, they have difficulty depending on other people. Um, another feature that, you know, in, in terms of red flags, when you first meet someone is the lack of eye contact. Um, some people with narcissism will know that they're supposed to have eye contact. And so they'll exert energy to sort of force themselves to look at people in the eyes. But, in general, for narcissistic people, eye contact is, is difficult for them because for a number of reasons. One, it's intolerable because, um, when you're looking into someone else's eyes, um, it's a, it's, it opens the door to seeing that the other person disapproves of you. Um, and the narcissistic person would rather just not look at you altogether than to risk seeing some kind of grimace on your face as you're talking. Um, also, they're they're not really that concerned with your reaction. They're they're more concerned with you just listening to them as they talk. You know, they talk at you instead of with you, and so they um, uh, have difficulty with eye contact for for, for those reasons. Uh, plus, there's sort of a social uh, convention where. If I'm not looking at you as I'm talking, then you will have a tendency to not chime in, right? Because, um, there's a, it has a, a vibe that I am now talking and I am on a roll and I'm on stage and you are the audience and you are, you will listen quietly 
and not chime in. And so eye contact is a, is a way of signaling like, look, I'm still talking, you know, I'm, and then when I'm done talking, I'll look at you. Um, people without narcissism, uh, just have a, a greater amount of eye contact. Um, as I was saying earlier, I have, shall we say, a 5% case of narcissistic personality spectrum. And I, this is something that is bad about me. I, when I talk, uh, to people, even to clients, I have, I know I have this, I've known this for, I don't know, probably since I ever became a therapist because eye contact is a, is a important thing to pay attention to as a therapist. And what I noticed was, um, that when I am talking, that I tend to not look at people <laughs> or, or I look at people, um, um, like half the time, you know, like I'll, I'll look at them in the eye for, for a few seconds and then I'll, I'll look up to the right and I'll talk and I'll look up and look at them in the eye and then I'll, you know, I sort of alternate back and forth and I, it's a, it's a bit of a mystery as to, you know, like what it, I, I, I know I just gave the explanations as to why. Um, so I, I guess if I was to apply this to myself, I guess it's, that I um, really want to explain something. I'm probably explaining something, and I really want them to listen, and and I don't want them to interrupt me. It just sounds awful, <laughs> and and I know sometimes it's really annoying to people. In fact, um, occasionally I'll be doing it so much to somebody that they will actually look over their shoulder and wonder what I'm looking at. <laughs> You know, like I'll be like, there's a window behind them. And as I'm talking to them, I'm sort of looking out the window as I'm talking and they get this feeling like, are, are they, are they, do they see something outside that's more interesting than me? You know, like, so they'll look over their shoulder and I'll be like, Oh God, like I'm doing it again. I'm, I'm like pontificating as I'm looking over their shoulder. And so, um, so yeah, that's me, uh, and my narcissistic personality. It, it must be, um, you know, slightly intolerable for me to actually look people in the eye as I talk to them. Um, now, again, um, if people do that, that doesn't necessarily mean they have narcissistic personality. It's just a, it's just a sign. But for me, it, it's definitely a, a part of that. Um, and I also just, you know, other things adjacent to this is, um, you know, I just, to a certain extent, love to hear myself talk. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a podcaster, for God's sakes. And, I mean, this episode is, what, um, four hours long now. And, uh, you know, I could talk for another four hours and, you know, and feel like that's normal. You know, there people that aren't on the narcissistic spectrum don't have that capacity <laughs> to... Um, pontificate for so long or to care to pontificate for so long. Um, so there's that. Another thing is that, um, if I don't watch it and maybe particularly when I was younger, as I mature, I get more and more able to, um, I account for these problems. But, but when I was younger, but you know, still as, as, as an adult, as a 47 year old man, I, um, if I don't watch it, I will end up talking at people instead of with them. Uh, I'll just, I'll just be like, you know, on a soapbox or, um, I don't know. I, I give a vibe to other people that I'm not really interested in, 
hearing from them, even though I feel like I am, you know, it's like, it's not a conscious thing that I'm going through. I'm not consciously thinking I don't want to have a conversation. In fact, I really love having back and forth debates with people. That's why I love having Umberto on the podcast. But, uh, but there's a part of me that, um, it's, it, that's, that's what's so insidious about personality disorders and being on the spectrum is that even though your heart wants something and really values something, you will still unconsciously give off a vibe the opposite of that. For, for example, uh, with, I, I guess I might as well just talk about my narcissism for a second. Um, I, some people will react to me and think that I'm arrogant. They'll say that. I've heard that from people. They will say, um, oh, he's arrogant or, you know, it hasn't been very often, but you got to figure how many times have people thought it, um, versus how many people have said it versus how many times I've actually heard them say it. Right. So if I'm hearing it, say five times in my life, then you got to times that by, I don't know, a hundred in terms of how many times people have said it. And then you got to times that by another hundred in terms of how many times people have thought it. So you have, it, it's probably been thousands of times where someone was like, man, that guy's arrogant. <laughs> um, and so, uh, but my God, I do. N I've never wanted to come across as arrogant. It really does not fit with how I see myself or how I want to be or what I value or anything. It's just like, mortifying to think that people would think I was arrogant. You know, there's a lot of things I don't mind people thinking about me like, Oh, that guy, it, you know, is dumb or doesn't know what he's talking about. Or that guy, um, speaks too slowly or stumbles over his words or that guy, um, is kind of a bro or, you know, there's a lot of things that, or that guy dresses dumpy or something like there's a lot of things where I'm like, yeah, you know, uh, it doesn't feel great, but it's not a big deal. But man, you know, to, to be, to be, to be thought of as arrogant is just so mortifying. It's just awful, you know? And, um, you know, consciously I, 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 I really do care about other people and really want to listen and, and do listen, but there's this streak in me. Um, developed by a coping style early in life of distance and arrogance and superiority to protect myself from um, deep insecurity, I guess, and deep inferi inferiority. Um, and so, or deep loneliness is probably the um, central feature. Again, my parents did a wonderful job. They, they had, they're still together. It's been 55 years. Um, uh, but my family was large, so maybe that's it. It's like growing up in a larger family with four kids in the seventies. Um, you know, um, uh, I, I could go on and on about that whole thing. But anyway, my point is, is that, um, I, it's abhorrent to me to, to, to think that I come across as arrogant to people and yet I still do. And, and so that's the part of narcissistic personality that, um, I want to convey to, to, to you. If you have a narcissistic person in your life, um, people will often be quite upset at them. They'll speak, you know, why is this person so arrogant? Why is this person talking at me? Why don't they listen to me? Um, I'm here to tell you as a 5% spectrum person that 
it's, I'm not doing it on purpose. You know, it's not something that I, I'm trying to do. You know, arrogance is often equated with, with a, with a choice or, um, a personality style that is based on privilege or something like that. Uh, and certainly that's a conversation we can have, but every narcissistic person I've ever met, uh, they have deeply regretted the way that they come across to other people and have never wanted to come across to people that way. Now I talked about people like Charles Manson, um, and Josh Powell. Uh, I'm guessing these guys are so malignantly narcissistic that it, that they can't even admit to themselves that they regret coming across to other people like that. Maybe they can't, I don't know. But, um, but I know that if, if, if you took Charles Manson, if he was, cause he's dead now, right? If you took Charles Manson and, um, made him feel safe enough, I would suspect that he would have a billion regrets about the way that he's treated other people. Because again, narcissistic people tend to care. Now, having just said that, uh, Manson in all likelihood was a psychopath as well in that he didn't have empathy for other people. And he also seemed sadistic. So he liked, he took pleasure in other people's suffering. So he might not have had the capacity to care. So that's a bad example. <laughs> but, uh, but again, uh, for me, clinically speaking, um, every narcissistic person I've ever met, um, although they have very, you know, robust defenses and, and they're narcissistic, no, no doubt about it. And they annoy people and they have difficulty with empathy. But when, <clears throat> when they're given the space to explore and they're in therapy and the therapist provides a stable place for them to stand on while they, um, delve into their personality a little bit, universally they feel terrible. Um, in fact, they probably feel too ashamed about it. They, um, beat themselves up in such a way that is not healthy. And that's, part of the problem, right? Because deep down they feel terribly inferior and ter terribly inadequate and they don't, they, and when they're propping up their ego by uh, adopting a narcissistic coping style, they think they're actually acting normal because to them it feels normal because it's um, balancing out their deep inferiority. But um, what they don't realize is that they're swinging way too far, but they need to swing way too far because they need to counterbalance that deep inferiority and that deep insecurity that they have. <clears throat> um, again, uh, but I don't want people to worry about me. <laughs> I have a therapist and I've been in therapy and I, you know, one of the most, um, uh, our difficult times, I'll say, I'll say of my therapeutic journey was, um, I had a therapist in the mid nineties and he, um, was very good at confronting me on my narcissistic traits and, and my histrionic traits. And I had never considered that I was on those spectrums. And when he, you know, he would do that. I, at first was defensive. I was like, no, it's, what do you No, That doesn't apply. I'm not that way. That's silly. But he was good at good of a therapist enough that he, um, you know, he broke that down and I didn't want to go to therapy <laughs> because I didn't want to talk about it, but I knew I needed to. And, and, and ultimately I, I just, I said, this is good for me. I, this is, you know, this is, this is exactly why I need to be in therapy. And, 
I would, I would break out into cold sweats as I was heading to therapy. It's like, Oh God, Oh God, I'm going to have to look at something that I, that I'm ashamed of. I don't want to look at, but, but over time I became, um, accustomed to those ideas. I was like, Oh, okay. You know, cause so, so the narcissistic, um, paradox is that in order to get better, you have to admit that you're narcissistic. But in order to admit you're narcissistic, you have to uh, risk falling into the abyss of emptiness and deep despair and inferiority. And again, as I've been talking about, it's deep. It's deep. It's not, it's not just a minor bummer. It is like, it is like annihilation. And, um, <clears throat> so in order to get better, you have to, uh, risk or even fall into that, into that hole, that hole that you've been, um, desperately trying to avoid falling into. And so, um, but with good therapy, they can provide that foundation to catch you and to reassure you that, you know, look, yeah, you have some flaws, but you, you also have some great qualities too. You're a good person and yeah, you have some, you have some problems. Everyone has problems. And, and that keeping that perspective and that space and that, that reparenting that needs to happen in the same way that when you are parenting your four year old, uh, daughter and she has done something terribly wrong and she feels terribly ashamed. Um, and she, or, or she feels that you're very disappointed in her is probably a better way of putting it. And she feels very, um, worried about how disappointed you are in her. You know, she, she stole something from her brother or she um, pushed her sister down the stairs or something. And you are, you know, noticeably, visibly upset and she crumbles and she, and she is in despair. And you notice that as a parent and you think, well, I don't need her to feel that bad. <laughs> I need her to feel bad, but I don't need her to feel that bad. So I'm going to, I'm going to hold her and I'm going to say, I love her. And I'm going to say that she's a good person. And, but she, you know, she made a mistake and, and you know that she can work on this so that it won't happen again and, and everything will be okay. You know, it, people make mistakes. It's okay. Um, doesn't mean you're off the hook, but it means that mistakes are normal. Um, everyone makes mistakes. So yes, they do. I, I used to have this record when I was young, the Sesame street record in the seventies. And I think it's Grover who sings that song or is it big bird? Anyway, um, that's why we teach that those messages to kids is because they are narcissistic and believe that they're perfect human beings. And when they're faced with disappointment, their personality crumbles and they need parents to be there for them. Well, if they didn't have that, then they need a therapist to be there for them in that way. It's like, yes, you have made some mistakes and I know you feel very terrible about that right now, but you are still a good person and it's okay that you've made mistakes and it makes sense that you've made those mistakes because look at the way you were raised. Um, but you're still on the hook for those problems, but everyone's on the hook for some problem, <laughs> you know, just that whole vibe and to have it be congruent and loving and caring from the therapist. Um, that's what my therapist did for me. And that's what I do for my narcissistic clients as well. Um, okay. So, um, other relationship problems that narcissistic people might have are 
they might have extremely adamant political views that are often self-serving. For example, uh, a narcissistic man might hate feminism because his, because feminism somehow threatens his superiority or something. You know, it's one of the things that I, I think about whenever I see a YouTube comment or um, a politician who um, has a lot of self-serving notions is, uh, or a white supremacist, for example, is because uh, for a white person, given certain cultural notions, to accept the idea that in a hundred years, white people will be a minority. Uh, even, well, just in the next, I don't know, 10 or 20 years, they're going to not be the dominant group. But, you know, in a, if you just project out in three, 400 years or, you know, it's even a hundred years, the United States probably will be comprised of like, I don't know, 20% white people. I don't know the exact projection, but the point is, is that, um, you know, that's the way things are headed. And, if you have, if you're narcissistic and you are in a community where that is a big deal to you, then this is going to be an affront um, to you and to your integrity and to your ability to uphold your narcissistic notions that you're superior to other people, that your that your race is superior to other races, that your gender is superior to other genders, and so you're going to get very uh, upset and you're going to have very adamant political views about this. Um, this can apply to women as well. Uh, a female feminist might, who, who is narcissistic might be unfairly harmful to people who oppose feminism, quote unquote, or you can have a narcissistic African American person who is, you know, suffers from narcissistic personality disorder and is in a, um, shall we say, uh, they, and they have an, an excessive and rigid take on racism in America. Yeah. I hesitate to say this because of course, um, anger and, um, action and, and activism is a good thing. And our country is based on that, but, um, it, it, it's, I've seen it before is the, my, my point is that just because someone is, um, standing up for the good guys doesn't mean that they're not narcissistic, right? I mean, all you have to do is look at Harvey Weinstein. He, his politics were um, definitely often standing up for the good guys, in my opinion. And he was a, he was a monster, just a, he is a hideous monster of a sadistic, psychopathic, serial rapist human being. He is a, he is a just, he's one of the most terrible human beings that I've ever read about. You know, he's up there with Manson and, um, you know, Hitler, you know, like just people who, um, probably woke up in the, in the morning and said, I am going to harm someone today. I want to harm people. And, you know, so just because you stand up for the good guys doesn't mean that you can't ha be motivated by, um, pathology. Anyway, um, people with narcissistic personality will, sometimes see people as all good and all bad, similar to borderline. When the person is providing for their narcissistic supply, they will consider them all good. And when they're disappointed by that human being, then they become all bad. Um, and sometimes you'll see people with narcissism will be in, they'll sort of have borderline type relationships where they're, they can be very close to someone as that person is giving them narcissistic supply. And then as soon as that person 
um, provides any kind of nuance to the relationship. You know, the, the other person is starting to ask to be reciprocated, you know, or the other person has some slight criticism, then the narcissistic person will just cut them out of their life. They're just like, okay, I'm done with you. Again, because they are terrified of criticism and they have a developed coping mechanism of superiority and a developed coping mechanism that they don't care and they don't need other people. Um, another profile that I've seen quite a bit is that narcissistic personality people will be loved at work and hated at home. This isn't all narcissistic people, but I've seen it before, um, where the their work provides them with a lot of narcissistic supply, and so they're able to really feel great when they're at work because because you can if you're smart enough and you're and you have narcissistic personality, you can build a life in which you get frequent narcissistic supply, where um, you you know, there, there's rules at work, right? It's like, well, if you earn money, you're successful. If you stay in business, you're successful. If you win awards, you're successful. If you uh, work your way up the ladder, you're successful. When you're at home, there's, there's not those markers. And so, um, so at work, you can get a ton of narcissistic supply and therefore just be really happy there. Plus, you also know as a narcissistic person that you can't yell at people at work or else, um, you know, they'll start talking to each other and, and, no one will like you and you'll get fired and you won't get your narcissistic supply anymore. Whereas at home, not only are there not markers of, of success necessarily, but, um, when you, ha when you yell at your spouse, they actually have an incentive to not tell anybody because they're ashamed of, of talking or they might be cut off from other people. You might have cut them off from other people. So, uh, so as a consequence for some narcissistic people, they will go to work. Everyone will love them at work. They'll just be like, oh man, she's just the best. She is just the best. You know, she, she works hard she, and she's so successful and she knows so many people and, um, she's so good at her job and she gives to charity and, you know, she's just so great. And then you talk to her husband and her husband's like, oh my God, she is a, a monster at home. She's a, she, she beats me. She, she emotionally abuses me. I, you know, I feel terrible all the time. And, and there's, so there's this huge contrast. And uh, for spouses in situations like this, it can be very distressing to them because they've been beaten down to the point where they feel like they've, they're crazy, you know, and they talk with people at their uh, spouse's work and they're like, well, man, is it just me? Am I just being sensitive? Like everyone else loves this person, you know? So, um, so that's one profile that I've seen. Um, along these lines, people with narcissistic personality, given their deep inferiority, they will often engage in conflict and um, emotional abuse that will produce a belittling feeling to other people. Uh, if you're around someone with narcissistic personality long enough, you will start to feel belittled. You'll start to feel inadequate. You'll, you'll start to feel smaller. You'll feel um, dumber and incompetent and um, just littler. You'll just feel little and, and powerless and afraid. And this is, um, you know, for a number of reasons, as I've been talking about before, control, 
you know, abuse, but mainly it's a projective identification. The narcissistic person has a denied part of themselves that is inferior and belittled and therefore they need to get rid of it. And so they will make you feel that feeling for them. Uh, another part of relationship problems for people with narcissistic personality is they can be invasive with their questions. Um, they can, um, uh, they, they try to gain control of the relationship or of the conversation by, by asking very personal questions. Plus they feel superior. So they feel like, well, I can ask anybody anything. Um, and it's one of the things that I've noticed in people with narcissism is that, uh, when they, when they enter my office, they have, they often have a different demeanor. So they, they are, so for the average client that walks into my office, they don't ask me any questions about my personal life. They don't ask me any questions about my office. They, they just sit down and, you know, we proceed to have a session. But if I see someone walk into my office and they start asking me a lot of questions about, um, my personal life or, you know, right away or, you know, ongoing, or they start kind of commenting on things in my office. Um, it doesn't bother me at all. I don't, I don't, I, you know, it's like I have an office with things in it. I, I'm not trying to hide things. So it's, it's fine that people talk about it. Um, uh, but that's a, that's a minor yellow flag for narcissism. It, there's other reasons why people would do that, but, um, but among the people who I've later discovered have had narcissistic personality, um, one of the, you know, features that's probably around half the time is that, um, they'll ask, they'll ask me more personal questions than the average client and they'll, they'll pay much more attention to what's going on in my office and other kinds of things. Um, I think they're doing this for a number of reasons. One is, is that they're trying to relate to me as a peer because they feel because of their deep fear of feeling inferior and their deep fear of being dependent. They, they need to knock me down um, from the pedestal, which is fine. I don't, I don't mind that. Um, I don't need to be on a pedestal. I don't actually I don't want to be on a pedestal. I can, I can help people much more easily in most contexts if I'm not, but but anyway, so they're trying to knock me down a little bit by relating to me as a, as a peer, you know. Uh, also, I think they are, um, they're terrified, you know, and so they're, they're resorting to a, a mode that has helped them in the past, which is to, um, be charming, you know, to, to ask people about themselves, right? Um, that's, so that's another thing that narcissistic people will sometimes resort to is that, when they are afraid and they feel um, destabilized, that they will resort to charm and to getting people to like them and um, to um, uh, appealing to other people by being appealing. And, and they know that one of the ways, and it's true, that you can be charming to other people is to ask ask them questions about themselves, you know. Uh, oh, you have an interesting little knickknack on your desk. Where'd you get that from? Or, oh, you know, what's going on over here? Or, oh, you know, what's going on in your personal life? And that um, kicks in when they're in therapy, even though they kind of know that it's not the common scenario between therapist and client. But, but again, they're, um, they're scared uh, and they have reasons for doing things like that. Um, 
And then also, as I've been talking about before, in terms of relationship problems, they can engage in controlling dominant behavior for sure. Uh, depending on the narcissistic person, they can become, um, uh, domestically violent. They can, um, break people down, make people feel so little that they, um, uh, submit essentially to, to the abusive person, which can be, you know, quite awful. Um, they can resort to other kinds of control that are less violent or noticeable. Like they might, um, sort of break ethical codes by uh, dating their employee or something. You know, they, it's like they, they're attracted to dating an employee because they, they, they think that they'll have more control over both relationships, you know, not only of the employee relationship, but also of the dating relationship. If, if they do that, um, narcissistic people are prone to that kind of thing, or they'll date someone much younger than them is another, um, thing that they might do. Um, if you're dating someone a lot younger than you, that's, that is not a sign that you're narcissistic, but if you're narcissistic, that is something that you might resort to in order to, um, reduce your anxiety and, and reduce the likelihood of you falling into the abyss. Okay. So that was number six relationship problems. Let's go on to another feature. All right. This next symptom of narcissistic personality is perfectionism. Number seven, perfectionism. This one surprises a lot of people because we don't necessarily associate perfectionism with narcissism, but it can be associated. Not, not everyone with narcissistic personality uh, also has perfectionism, but many do because they're terrified of being rejected and alone and, and unnoticed. So they strive to be perfect in everything that they do so they can garner the attention of others, which again distracts them from their inner emptiness and suffering and their inner self-criticism and shame. And it also protects them from being criticized by other people and it upholds their superior sense of self. This perfectionism can be applied to the self, obviously, in terms of having a perfect house or having a perfect haircut or something. But the perfectionism can also be applied to other people, requiring other people to be perfect. Again, because of their immature lack of differentiation between self and other, they will, uh, they can protect themselves against their own inner emptiness by having someone close to them be perfect because they don't necessarily differentiate between themselves and other people. And, it, and having another person be perfect is good enough for their defenses against their inner emptiness. Um, spouses, coworkers, children. Um, for example, when um, I, I knew someone when uh, he, this, this fella had a mentor and when his mentor let him down and sort of revealed that, uh, he, he, that the mentor wasn't perfect. Um, this narcissistic person fell into a deep despair and felt untethered to life. And when I observed it, this was years ago, I remember being quite confused by it because I didn't, I didn't consider this person to be narcissistic. And I, I, I was like, well, why would it matter so much to this person? You know, I really tried to figure that out. It's like, why would this person, um, need their mentor to be perfect? Why did, why did this person need their mentor to be so flawless? Cause it wasn't just disappointment. It was like they needed their mentor to be flawless, you know? And 
um, I, I originally just thought it was due to transference and some sort of protective identification, but later on I figured out, oh, that the the broader picture here is a narcissistic personality and the way that this person uh, staves off their um, difficult feelings is by having perfect others. That's another thing is like you can have grandiosity in others. You can you can say my mentor is the best, is perfect, it, you know, and and therefore because I lack differentiation between me and my mentor, therefore I'm perfect and good. And so if that's the style of coping, then when mentors or people that you've decided to be perfect are revealed not to be perfect, then it can be very unsettling to the person. Now, this perfectionism is different from what we normally consider to be perfectionism, like general perfectionism, which is more of an anxiety-related issue. Um, so just take note of that. Um so just examples of perfectionism with narcissistic personality are looking perfect, a house that is perfect, having a perfect spouse, being perfect at work. That's a frequent one being, you know, the perfect worker, hiding or lying about one's imperfections, avoiding seeking help like therapy because this requires admitting that you're, you're not perfect. Um, some people with narcissistic personality are so perfectionistic that they're unable to do anything for fear of not being perfect. Another interesting element of perfectionism is that it can manifest in being quiet. So, um, as I said, you know, throughout this presentation that people with narcissistic personality present in lots of different ways. And just because someone is quiet and quote unquote reserved in conversations doesn't mean that they're not narcissistic. People can be, people with narcissistic personality can decide early in life that it's best to just not talk at all because when you talk, you risk making a fool out of yourself and you risk, um, and therefore risk acknowledging to yourself that you're not perfect and that you're not superior to other people. So it's best to just not say anything at all. So, um, that's another perfectionistic thing that narcissistic people will do. Um, some perfectionistic people will be in school and, and, uh, with their narcissism, they can't tolerate a bad grade or they, with their social media accounts, they might frequently edit their online, um, information, you know, like they'll scour, uh, Facebook and make sure that everything on Facebook makes them look good. They, or they, as I said earlier, they might avoid social media altogether because social media is so chaotic that it's hard to present a perfect self and therefore it should be avoided altogether. Uh, people in this, with narcissism might be perfectionistic about their bodies, which might actually result in an eating disorder. Okay. So that's perfectionism. Number eight is a lack of insight. Um, I've already talked about this, but I feel like it deserves its own category. People with narcissism uh, tend to lack insight. It, it, insight is an interesting thing, and um, therapists really love it when their clients have insight. And this is one of the reasons why a lot of therapists don't like working with narcissistic people is because they will present these sort of obvious problems in their life that they're contributing to, and they won't have any acknowledgement of their own part in it. Um so 
So there's that. Um, yeah, so narcissistic people have a hard time recognizing their own narcissism. They have a hard time recognizing that they're to blame for some of their problems. Again, because um, it's too terrifying for them. Um, their, their narcissistic personality is what we call egocentonic, or it's consistent with their self-image. When people come to me with depression or anxiety, they typically will see the depression as something that isn't really them. You know, they'll be like, I wish I wasn't depressed. Um, I'm not myself. If I could only be not depressed, then I would be, you know, truly me. And when people come in with narcissism, they don't say that. They don't say like, I wish I wasn't narcissistic. And if I, if I was just not narcissistic, then I could be my true self. They, their narcissism is, that's why they call them personality disorders is because the uh, pathology is throughout their personality. When, when people are depressed, the typical way people see the self is not depressed. They'll say, like, my real self is not depressed, but there's this depression thing that's on top of me. Not everybody, but it's uh, it, uh, it, it. even if someone isn't like that when they come in with depression, it doesn't take long for therapy to help them see it that way. It's like, oh, you're a good person. You're a happy person on the inside, but there's this depression that's on top of it. So the metaphor of separateness from the depression is... Um, not difficult for depressed people, um, usually. But people with narcissism, it's, um, it's everyone else, it's not them, right? It's like, well, um, there's nothing wrong with me. It's just, there's just wrong with it. There's just everyone else is to blame for all these problems, you know? Yeah, I've been divorced five times, but that's because everyone else is an idiot. That's not, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with me. And you put them up to a lie detector test, and that's what they believe they're telling the truth. Uh, deep down, they know they're not, but. So this lack of insight can lead to a lot of really difficult things, like they won't apologize, like I talked about earlier. They won't admit when they're wrong. Uh, they have difficulty admitting that they have an issue with their personality in general. And again, it's difficult for them to go to therapy. Um, and as a result, therapists will reject clients like this because the therapists don't recognize that it's even a personality disorder, let alone narcissism, and they um, will uh, not realize that it takes years for someone with narcissism to feel safe enough and feel mature enough in order to uh, talk about their own problems and to take responsibility and to self-reflect. Um, now, having said that, people lower on the spectrum will not need years of therapy before they feel safe. So it just depends on the degree. All right. So the ninth feature of narcissistic personality that isn't always present, but sometimes is, is hypochondriasis or, you know, being a hypochondriac, someone who worries a lot about medical conditions and worries a lot about um, getting sick and this kind of thing. Um, not all people with narcissistic personality have this, but, but many do. And it's an, it, it's another kind of weird one. It's like perfectionism isn't normally associated with narcissism and, and being a hypochondriac doesn't, uh, isn't normally associated with narcissism, but they off, it often, uh, does, it often is correlated. There's many theories as to why people with narcissism would worry about getting sick. Um, uh, but for me, the the theory that I have about it is that when they were young, they were mistreated. They were neglected. They were made to feel alone. And as they grow up, they once they realize that they're going to die and they and they 
have to deal with that. They um, consider sickness and death with being alone, with being rejected. You know, being being dead is like the ultimate aloneness, right? You're you're completely uh, pulled away, depending on your belief system from from reality. Being sick, you can be rejected and alone in a hospital, um, and that's what they fear the most, right? They fear being alone, or they feel acknowledging the fact that they're alone. Um, plus, they don't really feel like anyone would take care of them, um, so they, so because they're so pathologically independent, they worry like, well, boy, if I get sick, then I'll really be out on a lurch because no one will take care of me, and and I've built my life of independence, blah blah blah. And being sick uh, means that you have to be dependent on other people. Yeah, you, you have to listen to other people. You have to follow the directions of other people. You have to go to the doctor. And this can be very difficult for people with narcissistic personality. Um, also, another theory I have is that in a weird sense, people with narcissism, uh, are they feel entitled, right, to their life, and uh, more so than other people. So when they think about death, it really challenges their sense of control on life. And they have to uh, wrestle with the fact that they do not have control over that aspect of life, that they can't control death. And that's upsetting to them because um, they've, they've built a coping strategy that involves controlling everything in order to make sure that they uphold this false sense of self so that they can deny their deep inferiority. And so when they have to face uh, the ultimate lack of control, which is death, they um, it's hard for them. So they, they get scared of death and that kind of thing. Um, number 10, the 10th feature of narcissism is impatience. They consider themselves too good for waiting, like um, waiting in line. They'll have trouble with this. Or in a boring meeting, for example, they'll have hard times with that. Um, I knew a guy who in meetings who was narcissistic and he would sigh like um, loudly whenever he was, I always knew when he was bored because, and he got bored very quickly because he would just go, uh, you know, and it was like, okay, uh, you are now signaling to everyone that you are bored. Um, but I knew the greater part of his personality was that he was narcissistic and couldn't stand attention not being on him and also couldn't stand um, having to sit through something that he considered to be below him. Now, this is another feature for me. You know, I, my 5% narcissism manifests in this as well. When I became a program director of my uh, program at Antioch, one of, there, there were many things that I didn't, that I did not like about being program director. Uh, uh, it, there were so many things I liked about it, but there were a lot of things I didn't like. Among the things I didn't like that I talked about a lot was the meetings. And I would go to these meetings and, you know, they'd be two, three hours long. And there's not a lot that happens in these meetings because people don't come with an agenda. Oh, my phone is ringing. I did not silence my phone. How about, how about that? Let's, uh, let's silence the phone. Okay. Um, so I, uh, I have that old, old timey, um, cell phone ring style, as you just heard. <laughs> anyway, um, I wonder who I just hung up on. Uh, so when I would go to these meetings, 
I, I would just find myself, you know, getting so aggravated because there were so many of these meetings that, and they always were in person, you know, they were never over the phone or very rarely over the phone. The phone meetings were better because you could kind of like browse the internet, you know, maybe get some work done. But when you're in a meeting of 10 people, you know, it's hard to do that. So I would go to these meetings and I just found myself just getting so bored and like so angry that I would be sitting through these like completely pointless meetings. And after the meetings, I would walk out and I'd, I'd, I would try to review what did I learn in this meeting? Did I have to be there? Did I contribute anything? Was What was the point of all of us meeting there, you know? And sometimes I would calculate how much money the university was spending to have all these people at the meeting. You know, it's sort of like, roughly what everyone's getting paid per hour. And I'd be like, the university is spending thousands of dollars for these 10 people to get together. And, and we're doing nothing. You know, we are doing nothing. Um, you know, first of all, uh, everyone shows up late. So the meeting doesn't even start until like 30 minutes after the start time. And I'm super punctual. So I'm always like right there. One o'clock, I'm there. Meeting doesn't really start till one thirty because everyone else is sort of trickling in. And then we like check in. Everyone's like, how are you doing? I'm like, Oh God, I don't need to, I don't need to hear about some random administrator in their, you know, their life. It's like, I don't even know them. What, you know, it's like, why do I've got other, I have friends, I have family. I don't need to do this. Okay. After a while, I started really thinking about it. It's like, why do I hate these meetings? Cause I would ask my coworkers, you know, and they'd be like, yeah, you know, and they wouldn't care that much. And that, and some of my coworkers actually loved the meetings. They're like, Oh my God, that was such a great meeting. And I was always like, what are you from another planet? Like, so I realized that there was something different about me, that there was actually maybe something wrong with me, <laughs> that I was so, uh, that these meetings bothered me so much. And I concluded after a lot of in- introspection that it was my 5% narcissism, that I felt I w- my time was so special and so um, superior, so to speak, that I, um, I deserved to be, to be doing something more important or at the very least I deserved to not have to be bogged down by things that don't, that don't matter, you know? And, um, now I still hold to the notion that meetings need to be structured better. Um, uh, and I've heard in other organizations that they have similar problems. Elon Musk, for example, talked about how at Tesla, um, he was telling people, look, if there's a boring meeting that's pointless, just walk out of it. Um, so a lot of organizations have these problems. And, um, you know, some organizations will actually, they'll institute some kind of policy where they'll have standing meetings. Have you heard of that standing? And I always like that idea because the whole idea is like, um, you know, meet in a room, but don't sit down. And if, you know, the idea is, is like, you need to have the meeting be fast enough because everyone's standing, <laughs> you know, it's like, get this over with as fast as possible. Cause we can't sit down and it makes everyone be very concise and only say things that are really relevant to the situation. Um, or anyway, the point is, is that, um, I had a pretty, um, you know, I would say, um, above average <laughs> uh, emotional reaction to it. I wasn't livid or anything, but I, it definitely was, on my mind, you know, it's definitely like an itch that I'd be sitting in the meetings and I'd just be like, Oh, get me out of here. Get me out of here. And so, you know, there was something different about me and I, I concluded it was my narcissism about it. So that's the impatience part of me. And, and that's true about a lot of venues. It's not just, um, 
meetings, but it's also standing in line, you know, like I'll, uh, go to Disneyland and, um, I'll, I'll pay money so that I don't have to stand in line, you know, cause I, I just, I'm impatient, you know, I just, and some people are impatient because they're, um, hypomanic and this sort of thing. And I, and I'm, I'm that way too. I'm fairly energetic. And so I, um, have a hard time sitting still. So I have that going for me as well. But, um, but it also has to do with my narcissism with my time. Um, okay. Number 11, the 11th feature of narcissistic personality that I thought about, uh, was feeling entitled. Uh, I've talked about this before, but it, it, um, it's worth its own category. People with narcissistic personality feel entitled because of a lot of reasons. One of a general immaturity because of mistreatment. They also feel entitled because they have impaired empathy function. Remember because um, their empathy is immature and often um, suppressed because of a need to uphold a false superior self. They um, also feel entitled because deep down they're really quite needy. They're really quite needy of, of things, the way a young child is needy. They also feel entitled because they're desperately trying to survive. You know, they, um, when you're desperate, you grab at things. And so that's what narcissistic people will do. Um, for example, there's, there's just a lot of examples you could say, like, you know, um, I get the top bunk, you know, and it's like, why do you get, why do you always get the top bunk? Or, um, I get the big room or, uh, I get the big slice of pizza <laughs> or, uh, without really thinking about if it's fair or not. Um, some people will engage in unethical behaviors at work or in, you know, regarding the law. They'll just be like, well, I can break the rules because I'm entitled. You know, I'm special. I'm different. Um, I don't need to do that. Um, so, uh, there's a lot of things that can happen with entitlement. You know, I could go on and on about different manifestations of entitlement. Just, you know, just stomping on other people, um, feeling as though they deserve things that other people wouldn't consider themselves deserving, that kind of stuff. Okay, number 12 is a self-destructive coping method. Uh, often people with narcissistic personality or any personality disorder will develop self-destructive coping methods or just extreme coping methods because they're suffering so greatly. When you have narcissistic personality and your narcissistic supply isn't going so well, which is can happen quite frequently, the narcissistic person will will plummet in terms of their mood and they'll have no way of of um, soothing themselves because they don't have a self. They don't have a self that can that can reassure them that everything's going to be okay. And so they grasp at uh, extreme coping methods in order to, to cope. For example, alcohol or substance abuse, because it just numbs you altogether. Also being drunk or high on cocaine can elevate, um, euphoria and just make you feel awesome. Also, some people will cope by isolating or traveling alone or, you know, just, just sort of, um, I, I'm saying self-destructive coping mechanisms, but maybe what I should call it is like extreme coping method methods. Um, okay. 
Number 13 is moodiness. I've already talked about this before, but I feel like it bears its own category. I'm not going to go to it again. But again, when their narcissistic supply is going well, they're in a very good mood. They can be elated. And when they're not getting their narcissistic supply, they can be very um, upset and 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 uh, dour and uh, sort of punish everyone around them. Okay, let's go on to the next one. The 14th um, feature of narcissistic personality is a lack of ethics. People with narcissistic personality, as I've been saying in other categories, they consider themselves to be too good for rules. This is a part of their entitlement, their impatience, their immaturity, and their desperation to build a grandiose self. Research has actually shown and demonstrated that higher levels of narcissism have been associated with unethical conduct at work and other places. Narcissistic people prefer their own rules over the real rules. You know, they, they, they think of themselves as being superior to, to just rules itself. And they don't like conforming in general. And they might cut corners to fudge the rules to their own benefit. Um, this is due to a lot of things, bad modeling, growing up, uh, like I said, immaturity, uh, feeling entitled. One study actually uh, looked into this, uh, um, Marinick and Craig in 2010, looked at CEOs and um, whether or not they were narcissistic and whether or not they engaged in um, unethical behavior. And what they found was that, yes, indeed, narcissistic CEOs are more prone to lie and cheat to get ahead. For example, jo- Joseph Naccio was a CEO of Quest from 1997 to 2002. And he lied about their financial situation, and that helped him to get ahead. It helped him to make money from the stock prices. But in 2003, the SEC charged him with 42 counts of security fraud, securities fraud and insider trading. And he was convicted of billions of dollars of financial fraud and of benefiting from the inflated stock price. And he was sentenced to six years in federal prison. So he was narcissistic and um, he was a CEO and he fudged the rules to his own benefit. Number 13 is sort of a weird category, but I, f- I feel like it deserves its own category. I don't, maybe it doesn't, but uh, is occasionally revealing their dependence. Um, I don't know. This feels like it should be in some other category, but anyway, it deserves to be mentioned that people with narcissistic personality will occasionally reveal their own dependence. I feel like that should go in the relationship section. Anyway, another feature here of narcissistic personality number 14 is extroverted or introverted. And again, I don't, I didn't know where to put this in terms of other categories, but so I just made its own category. The point here is, is that we often think of narcissistic people as being extroverted, but they can be extroverted or introverted. They can, um, be extroverted, like, look at me, you know, look at me, I'm the best and, um, I'm awesome. Or they can be very introverted and very reserved because they're so terrified of being criticized. And so they're just like, don't look at me, you know, do not look at me. Um, number 15 feature of narcissistic personality is envy. They, they're often envious of other people. They, uh, essentially they, Deep down, they're like, well, geez, if I only had what they had, then I would be better, I would uh, feel better, and I would be less likely to be rejected, and I would be more secure. They might really notice when other people are winning, and and they're not winning. They're at, like they're at a casino, and 
um, someone next to them is winning more money. They might be very envious of that. They, they really notice and it's like, oh my God, that guy's making more money. You know, think of American Psycho when, um, uh, Patrick Bateman sees so-and-so's card, business card, and it's like, he gets all sweaty. It's like, oh, it's so beautiful, that card. And he's just instantly angry about it, just rageful that this other guy has a better business card than his. Um, also, this envy can result in contempt of others who have more than they have. So it's not just envy, but it, it can sort of grow into contempt. Like that asshole, he, he had, you know, at work or something, a, a coworker is, got a promotion and you didn't. And just, it's not just envy of that person, but contempt. That person is such, and they'll, they'll build some kind of narrative about their coworker, about what an asshole they are, or what a kiss ass they are, something along those lines. Again, not everyone with narcissism has this, but, but many do. They might see other, uh, other people do cool things and they think that they can do that too. So I've seen this before and I, this is another part of my 5% narcissism is like, I'll go to a, so I'm a musician and I'll go to a show, uh, a, a music. Actually, let me tell you the full kind of path on this. So, you know, I've always been narcissistic. I've always been 5% narcissistic. Maybe when I was younger, I was 10%. I don't know, but I've, I've been a musician since I was young. And, um, when I was in my twenties, I was really dedicated to music and, and, uh, you know, practice with my band, few times a week and we would play once or, you know, once a week we played all over Seattle, all the different clubs and blah, blah, blah. And I always thought it was curious that I didn't like seeing live music. <laughs> I, my friends, you know, would like to go see other bands and they would go to clubs and see other bands. And I was like, isn't it weird that I'm in a band and love to play, but I don't like actually going to shows. And I just always thought that was curious. You know, people would be like, oh, we're going to go see this show. We got to come. And I'd be like, eh. and, and I did because Seattle had, had so much live music that, you know, I definitely did. But I would get kind of bored or something. And then later in my 30s and into my 40s, I started actually really enjoying going to live shows. And I think it's because I actually became less narcissistic as I got older. And when I would go to shows as, you know, a 40-year-old, I could tolerate it more. I'd, I'd be like, Oh, okay. I don't have to compete with the person on stage or I don't have to feel jealous, I guess, or envious of the person who's on stage. I can just enjoy the show, but I still retain a certain bit of narcissism because as I watch them do their show, I often will think about what I could do in the same vein. I could be like, Oh, I could do that. I could incorporate that into my show or, or I could do that better or, you know, that kind of comparison thing. And I, I feel like most people who see shows don't do that. You know, they don't, they don't go to a live music show and scrutinize the show or, or think about how they could incorporate. And I know other narcissistic musicians who do the same thing. They'll go to shows and they will scrutinize and, um, also think about how they could do it better or how they could incorporate everything into their own situation. Uh, I know narcissistic people who do that. I, I also know narcissistic musicians who can't actually go to live shows. They it just, what they say consciously is I, they get bored. They don't like it, but I think unconsciously it's because they're envious of what's happening on stage. And another part of narcissism is you don't actually, um, take 
entertainment from other people, right? You don't like to be entertained. You, you want to entertain. You want to be the one that people are looking at. And so it's very counter to go to a, to be a, just another audience member, right? It's, it's not the normal mode that a narcissistic person wants to do. The narcissistic person wants to be on stage. They don't want to just be in the audience. Um, and, uh, another is that when, when other, for people with a narcissistic personality, when other people are creating things that are good, they, they often see it through their own narcissism. And anyway, that's basically what I was talking about earlier. Um, another feature of narcissistic personality is that people with narcissistic personality often have very repetitive mistakes. They sometimes don't learn from their mistakes because they're so desperate and they're immature and they feel so hurt often, and but they're suppressing their hurt and they're in denial of their own faults because that would mean to them that they're flawed and unlovable. So they're so distracted by that whole thing that they don't, they can't even admit that they made a mistake, let alone learn from the mistake, you know? And the last feature of narcissistic personality that I've made here is excessive shame and, and inferiority. I've been talking about this the whole time, but I think it bears its own category um, that people with narcissistic personality have deep down excessive shame and excessive inferiority. They're easily embarrassed. They're easily humiliated. They ruminate on humiliating moments. Um, this isn't exclusive to narcissistic personality, right? I mean, lots of people can feel shame and and inferior, but it's a, it's a very dominant feature for people with narcissistic personality. And they, again, as I've been talking about, they have a very all or nothing view of the self. It's like they're either this perfect, awesome, superior being, or they're just nothing. And so, um, there's, and on the nothing side of their personality, there's this just tremendous shame and inferiority. Okay. So those are the 17 features. I probably should probably rework some of these categories and, and get them to be a little bit more concise. But I, I think I feel good about it. I feel good about it. So um, how, where are we right here? Okay. Now we are at the five hour mark of, <laughs> of this podcast and I am halfway through my notes. So this episode is going to be 10 hours. So maybe I should do a part two. How about that? But there are probably some other categories here that fit in part one. Let me look at this for a second. Okay, so how do we diagnose narcissistic personality disorder? To you clinicians out there, how can you detect it? There are some tips that I can provide. Some clinicians will say that the way that you can diagnose it is, you know, you do a short interview, you provide a, um, a measure of some kind, an assessment tool of some kind, and that that will be able to give you enough information to diagnose someone with narcissistic personality. It's possible, but for me, I need much more time. And uh, I, I've i seen people diagnose people with personality disorders in too short of a time. It just takes a long time to get to know someone's inner world and their general reactivity to things to really begin to understand someone's personality. It's really true for any personality disorder. It, just, it, takes, it takes a lot of time to get to know the way that their personality works. Um, and just providing them with a measure isn't a good um, method, in my opinion. I have administered uh, assessment tools and measures to clients before and found that they don't have enough insight to be able to answer those questions that will illuminate you to the personality disorder. Or they're good at knowing what 
the questions are asking for. And so they mask their personality by responding in a way that makes them look good. And what people will say about these assessment tools is, well, these assessment tools are designed to uh, suss that out. And I'm here to tell you that, um, yeah, some of them, but uh, they're not 100% reliable at all. Um, for me, when I diagnose people with personality disorders, like I said, I have to work with them for a while, you know, maybe uh, at least a couple months, uh, maybe minimum a month. So how do you diagnose narcissistic personality disorder? Well, the first thing, uh, what I'll say rule zero is you have to have patience. You have to give it time. Uh, there's this compulsion or this convention in our profession that somehow you're supposed to be able to diagnose people in the first session. And for some things you should be able to like major depressive disorder isn't, it doesn't take that long. So it'd be easy, but with personality disorders, have patience, give it some time, give it a couple months, give it a few months. Uh, take some time to really get to know their personality. So that's rule zero is have patience. Rule number one is pay attention to the way that you feel when you're with them. People with narcissistic personality, again, particularly over time, they will engage you in particular enactments, particular projective identifications, particular recreations of their early life and their early relationships through transference that will make you feel a particular way. For me, Everyone that I've worked with who has had narcissism, borderline, histrionic, antisocial, passive aggressive, I, I generally feel afraid when I'm with them. I've talked about this, you know, previously. I feel this sort of anxiety in my chest, adrenaline. It's not always severe. With some, with some people, uh, it's just a kind of low grade anxiety. Um, because they're, they're, through transference, they're, they're inducing a countertransferential fear in me. Because of just the way that they, the way that their personality is constructed. Um, and for some of them, there'll be spikes of anxiety like this. Another pay, another feeling to pay attention to is, do you feel belittled? Do you feel like you're stupid or inadequate or, li- or little or un- unimportant or unheard often with this client? It's another sign that it might be someone with narcissistic personality. Rule number two is to assess for a difficult childhood. Everyone I've ever known who has any of the cluster B personality disorders had a difficult childhood. Now, the difficult childhood might be classic in the sense that the parents were drug addicted, or it could be more subtle, like the there was a divorce that didn't seem too bad, but it felt enough of an abandonment or enough chaos for the child that it they interpreted it as a bad thing or a really bad match between mother and daughter that can result in, you know, enough difficulty to cause uh, a personality disorder. So it doesn't have to be classic all the time is my point. Rule number three is assess for the presence of enough of the features that I ascribed above. Um, I, I sort of mixed them around real quickly here just because I, I didn't want them to have so many of the categories. So let me list them again. Um, compensatory grandiosity, lack of self, anger and hostility, difficulty with empathy, difficulty with emotions, excessive shame and inferiority, feeling title, feeling entitled, relationship problems, envious of others, perfectionism, lack of insight, hypo, hypochondriacal, impatience, extreme coping methods, moodiness, lack of ethics, and repetitive mistakes. Uh, they don't have to have all of them, obviously, but they do have to have some of the key ones like compensatory grandiosity, 
difficulty with empathy, excessive shame, feeling entitled, relationship problems. All those need to be present and always are in my experience. Rule number four, assess for blaming others for everything that happens to them and assess for um, them not seemingly acknowledging that there's even a possibility that they played a part in any of their problems. You know, they'll tend to, as they're telling stories, they'll, they'll talk about, oh my God, so this person said that, and man, I just laid into him and I let him have it. And you, you're listening to the story. And if you're listening critically, you know, with a critical ear, you'll, you'll likely hear a lot of these stories where you're thinking to yourself, well, I don't think your anger was justified in that situation. It seems like an overreaction. So, that's another feature, but they'll be completely convinced. You know, they'll be like, well, of course it, that person deserved me to yell at them because, you know, look at what they did. You know, rule number five is don't be distracted by auxiliary symptoms like anger and moodiness. A lot of inpatient diagnosticians will say, oh, there's a lot of anger, a lot of moodiness, bipolar, right? Without waiting around to make sure, well, let's make sure it's not narcissistic personality. Rule number six is watch their eye contact. When they talk to you, how much eye contact do they have? When uh, when you look away and look back to them, have they started to look away themselves? Rule number seven, are they rigid in their beliefs? That's another sign. Uh, rule number eight, do others complain about them being cold or distant or narcissistic or arrogant or manipulative, etc.? So, you know, one key is to ask them, like, so if I was to have your spouse in here, what complaints would they have of you? Rule nine is, do they seem to feel as though they're better and superior than everyone around them? Right? It's a good thing. You, and you'll hear it in the way they talk about things. They might even say, I'm better than other people. Rule 10 is, do they drop names? Do they say, like, oh, you know, I was talking to Barack Obama the other day and blah, blah, blah. Um, again, not a sign, but, you know, one of the things to look for. Um, not a definite sign, I should say, might be a minor sign. Rule 11 is, do they try to invade you somewhat by asking you personal questions? Or um, sometimes they'll actually want a lot of sessions with you. Sometimes people with narcissistic personality will want, um, you know, to meet with you every day of the week. One, because they're desperate to heal from the traumas and of relationships that they had when they're growing up. But also because they might see you as a special human being and the more they associate themselves with you, the more narcissistic supply they get. Also, if you're a good therapist, you're giving them what they've always wanted, which would be attention and narcissistic strokes. Um, uh, rule 12 is, do they act charming? Are they, are they very, um, uh, do, are they very charming? Are they very, I don't know any other words other than charming, uh, charismatic, I guess is another word. Uh, rule 13, are they trying to manipulate you? That's another sign. That's a sign of not only narcissism, but particularly of higher levels of narcissistic personality. People who are um, extremely high on the narcissistic scale feel as though they have to manipulate everyone. One, to make sure that no one criticizes them and they can be in control, but also because they just defensively believe that they're superior and it's okay to do that. So you know, they, they can be psychopathic and sociopathic in that way. Okay. So differential diagnoses to look out for are mania, borderline histrionic, antisocial, or just a famous person who is rewarded for their narcissism. I mean, that's another thing, you know, like I would imagine that if, um, Oprah Winfrey, for example, came into your office, but you didn't know who Oprah was, um, 
which would be weird, but let's just, let's just go with that. And she proceeded to talk about her life. You would at first might think she was narcissistic. She would say, you know, well, as the most successful, uh, black woman, uh, entertainer of all time, I, you know, blah, blah, blah. And you're just like, whoa, that's quite a statement. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if Oprah would say that, but, but it's just important to understand that some people trade in, narcissistic occupations essentially and that doesn't mean they have a narcissistic personality it just means that that's just sort of the world that they live in also another differential uh, situation is a spoiled child who was mostly loved right they they as i talked about before they they just feel entitled because they were taught that they were entitled but it's not an overcompensation for low self-esteem and inferiority they were just taught that they were better and they just need time to realize that they're not better Okay, DSM-5. What, what does the DSM-5 say? Well, they say that you need to have five or more of the following uh, symptoms. And these are my words, not I've sort of condensed them to my own phrasing. Uh, exaggerated achievements, fantasies of being awesome, believes that they are special, requires a lot of admiration, unreasonable expectations of special treatment, takes advantage of others, lacks empathy, envious of others, and arrogant. So according to the DSM-5, you need um, five of those 10. Is that 10? 10 or 9? Um, notice that in the DSM-5, there's no mention of an inner life, the inner life of someone with narcissistic personality. So let me read them again. Exaggerated achievements. That's a behavior you would observe. Fantasies of being awesome. I guess that's somewhat of an inner life, but they would talk about having fantasies. Uh, believes they are special. Again, it's kind of inner life, but... They would talk as if they believe they're special. Requires a lot of admiration, unreal, unreasonable expectations of special treatment, takes advantage of others, lacks empathy, um, envious of others, and arrogant. So none of these symptoms have anything to do with the cause of narcissistic personality or the inner psychodynamics of someone with narcissistic personality, which makes sense because the DSM is designed to... Um, uh, be primarily behavioral because if you go too astray from that, it becomes more of a theoretical book rather than a diagnostic manual. Um, and, you know, in this way, we shouldn't be looking at the DSM as a guide to understanding the full holistic nature of narcissistic personality. Uh, we have to look toward a lot of other sources, uh, primarily psychodynamic literature or other non-DSM, non-behavioral sources. Um, in other words, you really have to pay attention to the inner experiences of people to really assess for narcissistic personality. The external symptoms are a sign, but you really have to get to know their personality and the way it works on the inside. Then then you will be able to know their uh, whether or not they have narcissistic personality. Um Incidentally, DSM-5, when it was being developed about six years ago, they were going to get rid of narcissistic personality disorder, but there's a huge backlash, so they included it. It's possible that in DSM-6, they will revamp the whole personality disorder system because they, they almost did it for DSM-5, um, which will be interesting to see, so we'll we'll find out. Okay, now I am well above the five hour mark and again i'm halfway through my notes and i feel like a 10 hour episode would just be ridiculous so i am going to make a part two 
uh, in which I go into, I don't know, just more descriptive. Uh, in part two, I'm just going to talk about everything I didn't get to. I'm going to talk about what um, narcissistic personality disorder is not. I'm going to talk about the causes, which I kind of already did. I'm going to talk about narcissism versus borderline versus histrionic versus antisocial versus complex PTSD. I'm going to talk about stories of people with narcissistic personality disorder. I'm going to talk about movies, types, treatment, history. Uh, what else here? Um, the measures, dark triad. Are we becoming more narcissistic? What about politics? What about parenting, etc.? So, God, I hope I can get done in another five hours. We'll see. Um, so, patrons out there, super cool of you. I hope you're coming to the um, 10-year anniversary show on August 11th, 2018, 3 o'clock, North City Bistro. Go to the Facebook page and say you're going because, um, I don't know, just kind of cool to have people say that. <laughs> Feeds my narcissistic supply. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You, you really do. And God knows I deserve it. I, me, 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 me.